Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird. Cheryl is not feeling well today. She was coughing and didn't want to, um, did, wasn't able to, and needs to rest and take care of herself. So we're grateful you join us here on Radio Station 2, and um, we'd like to take a few moments to just center ourselves and set the tone for the day. So take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Slowly and gently and intentionally cleansing breaths. If you let go of that dross of the day, we go into our heart space, gather with our guides and our guardians, our spirit teams, our healing teams. And our ancestors, our totems. And also, let's uh, take note that there is a council fire over here in the center. So let's all gather around this council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. Come in close. As we call in those seven sacred directions in the Cherokee tradition, also would like to include the tones. I like doing that toning, but I need your help. I want you to tone, and I want you to know where the east is, <laughs> wherever you are. Do you know where the east is, and the north, and the and the west, and the south? So let's start at the east, and let's tone for the east. <clears throat> ah, for purification. So tone with me. Oh. Spirit keepers of the East, come look this way. We give gratitude for the rising sun, for this new beginning, for the clarity of mind and openness of heart to learn and to grow. And we welcome Eagle, Condor, Hawk. Thunderbird, you high-flying ones, for your gifts of insight and that ability to look at our lives with a benevolent eye. We give thanks for this new day, this opportunity for beginner's mind to truly experience the joy and the humbleness of starting anew. And we invite divine masculinity, that solar energy of power and protection, to be with us as we begin this journey. Waldo. Now let us turn and face the north. 
for the North for the tone O, and it's for innocence. of the north come look this way give gratitude for all the ceremonies and the teachings that sustain us and for all you white-haired ones you elders thank you for joining us here we invite you for white furred ones the snowy owl the hare the polar bear to live in that place of the cold hard tree in the north Teaching us to embrace and be grateful for the truth. Mm, we give thanks to Buffalo people for your medicine of abundance and gratitude. And we welcome all you standing nation people for your teachings of longevity, endurance. Is how to stand in our power without breaking. We're grateful to you, winds of change, for empowering us to resist complacency. Welcome, all you spirit beings of the north. Wado. Now let us turn to the west. And tone with me, E, for awareness. of the West, come look this way. We're grateful for you, Bear, for your medicine of going within and for your discernment and healing. And thank you, all you big cats. Come join us. Jaguar, Panther, Cougar, Pashat. Thank you for showing us how to walk in two worlds, the intangible, invisible world, and then the physical world. We give thanks to you, Divine Feminine, Lunar Energy, for your gifts of life, death, and rebirth. 
welcome twilight for that sacred time and place in between. Be with us on our journey. Give us the strength to look deeply within our hearts, welcoming our hurts and fears to sit with us in order to be transformed. We give thanks to you, Otter, for your playfulness in women's medicine. Wado. Now, let us turn to the south. As we face the south, we turn eh, for relationships. Turn with me. of the South, come, look this way. We give thanks for the medicine of plants that keep us strong in body and mind. There's medicine herbs, all their magic. We give thanks to you, coyote, rabbit, tricksters. You're reminding us to laugh at ourselves, to not take our egos Seriously, and for that balance of the irreverent with the sacredness. And we welcome you, Porcupine, for your gifts of innocence, trust, and faith in ourselves and in every being of the planetary family. We're so grateful for you, Stone People, who carry the library of creation, who give thanks for our physical fitness. We can't hear you, Rainbird. Hello. Hi, Don. Hello. Hello. Yes, yes. Uh, we can't hear Rainbird. Huh. Oh, she, she must have hung up. Well, we'll get her right back. Okay. Thank you. So, <laughs> we're back. And thank you for staying with us. And we're inviting the Sky Nation to join us. So, we give thanks for that historic medicine bowl from the campfires of our ancestors, lighting the dark sky. And we give thanks to Sister Sun and Brother Moon and all the cloud beings and rain beings for our lives and for keeping us company on our earth walks. So with lots of gratitude for dream time and ability to travel in our spirit body to experience our true natures. And many gratitudes to swan and dolphin and lizard and dragonfly. We're thankful for your guardianship of our dream time and for the messengers of the dream time. So, all you Sky Nation people, 
Welcome, Wado. Now, just put your hand down on the earth, which might be just the floor, but it goes to the earth. It connects. So, put your hand there below, that low direction. All you spirit keepers, the earth, come, look this way. Mama, Gaia, the earth. Thank you for life. Thank you for all your children of the earth blanket. You creepy crawlers, you winged ones, finned ones, the four-legged ones. All you pollinators and regenerators who keep us alive. We're so grateful for that web of life and the equality of each member of the planetary family. So thank you, Mother Earth. Thank you for teaching us how to take care of you, to honor all life forms and to walk gently upon you with love and respect. Wado. And now, reach up. (laughs) The the last tone is the center, and it's the within, and it, it is the tone, ooh, and it's for carrying. So let's tone ooh for the within direction. within direction for that inner sacred space. Thank you for joining us here. All you spirit keepers of within come. Come look this way. And ancestors and our personal ancestors. Thank you for that wise choice in your lifetime to sustain and nurture us. To pass down the wisdom and the knowledge so that we can better live our lives as sacred human beings. We're grateful for the next seven generations, reminding us to make wise choices with intention and respect, to pass down the wisdom gained, and to create beauty and balance upon the earth. Thank you for joining us here today. I know. So just (laughs) stay wherever that drum beat took you. Thank you for that toning and thank you for joining as we called in those directions. And I'd like to take a moment to change my hat.
as we are a listener support radio program. It's all of us that happen. Each week we have um fees for, for BB our commitment with BBS radio for all that they do to support us here today and and on Thursdays and on Fridays. So we're grateful. And um we have two hundred and eighty dollars that we still owe from an accounting error from last year. So we're trying we're wanting to collect that two hundred and eighty dollars. And in addition, all of February. And that doesn't mean it hasn't been contributed, but it means that Peter had to borrow from Paul. And so that's what happens, and so this is what we need for the radio for February. And get this, people, it's one 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 thousand one hundred and eleven dollars And with all that twin magic going on, surely we, we can... We can reach out, we can go into our heart space, we can see who, what is ours to give, and, we've, and if we haven't given and would like to do that, and here's how we do it. Now go into that heart space, see what is yours to give, then go to bbsradio.com, and there on BBS Radio site, you will see at the very top of the page is the schedule. As you click on that, you'll see a schedule for Radio Station 1 and Radio Station 2. We're on Radio Station 2 right now at the 3.30 hour. You'll see it's listed there, and you'll see an icon there with our um, program description. So you click on that icon, and it magically takes us directly to our account with BBS Radio. We're using your bank card. You can make a donation in any amount. And we have two other places on Radio Station 1 at the 8 o'clock hour on Fridays. It's hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. And you can click on that icon there. It looks the same as the one that you find on the Saturday show. And then on Thursdays at the 8 o'clock hour on Radio Station 1, we have a night at the round table at 8 o'clock hour. So click on that, and that takes you to our account with BBS Radio. So it's easy to do. You can do it with your bank card. You just need to find us on bbsradio.com, schedule listing. And so there you go. Thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful. We would love to be able to catch up. And we know that uh, it takes time, and we're patient, and they're patient. But let's do what we can, and may miracles happen with 1111. (laughs) <laughs> and that two extra, extra two hundred eighty. I'm not even going to bother that one 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 by adding those two together. So we're going with the magic. We're going with the flow, and we're going with your blessings. So thank you for reaching deep. Thank you for taking that action. Uh, and may many, 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 many blessings come back to you in exchange for paying it forward like that. We are so grateful for all the ways that you show up in your lives. Thank you for showing up in this way. And, uh, yeah, lots of gratitude. So we're also assisting Tar and Rama with their needs. And the only bill they have is 50 more dollars that they need for the electric bill. And they also have uh, 200 more dollars for the the car uh, battery situation. And so that's not much. 
we're we're nearly there, and they need two hundred dollars also for living expenses. So, as we can assist Tara and Rama with their needs, we are so grateful. And here's how we do that: uh, we need to go to the Rainbow Roundtable dot net, the web address, or if you if you uh, on the list for the updates, you can find a link there to the to the donate page as well. But on on rainbowroundtable.net, you'll see a listing for donate. The, the link to donate is on the right-hand side of the bar at the top of the computer, or if you have a menu, if you're on a tablet or a device and there's a menu grid, click on that menu grid. It'll be next to the bottom of that list. So there you go. That's how you link to the page for Rainbow Roundtable. And there you can make that donation in any amount. And as you would uh, access the friends option, which is a good way to do it because it eliminates the commercial charges, and we are a uh, donation basis uh, situation. We're not selling any products or services. So here's how you do it. There's an email address to who you're gifting to, and that email address that you want to gift to is as follows, and please write this down. If you don't know it, the gifting address, Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. I'll say it again, Coran, 9999, four nines, at hotmail.com. And so there you go. That's how we make it happen. And if you're making a donation, please let Rama know at his email address, which and 999 at comcast.net and let him know what you sent and and when you sent it so he knows how to plan his day. And uh, uh, yeah, and also I'll give that again, that email for Rama, Koran99 at comcast.net. And then as you need it, there's a mailing address and it is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280, and that is in Mexico, the zip code 87567, and I'll say it again, Post Office Box 280280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information, 13 thank yous, and honey in the heart. And I'm passing this talking stick, and it's got a lot of energy on it. Um, it's that wood dragon energy of the year and the month, and it's got all kinds of little people. And uh, the the Manahunis and the gnomes and the dwarves and... They're all ready to go. They're they're busy <laughs> and active, and there's lots of fairies and feathers and lots of streamers, and hurrah for the spring that's here. And so spring flowers are in the air. <laughs> Greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings, everyone. Happy full moon in Virgo. 
Yeah, and what we're going to do right at the beginning is we're going to do a really active meditation. Yeah, this guy shakes up the energies like nobody I know. Yeah, we're going to shake up that Nagwo stuff. Yeah. And uh, this is 28 minutes, and so find yourself in a, you know, sitting upright. Uh, whatever you want to do, just make sure it's in a meditative position and thought, thought, you know, contemplative mind. And we're going to send good vibrations to Rama's head. Yeah, the solar flares are moderate today, almost going into X, but they are, let's say, monstrous in the sense of the size of what's pouring in. It is amazing. And at the same time, it is about ascension and doing the sadhana, the work. I sat with 14 deer and seven crows and the caretaker, and we did that meditation that Aurora Ray talked about yesterday, Adi Shakti, Adi Shakti, mm-hmm. Namo Namo, and it works. It is awesome to behold as you do the breathing and call in the energies with the sun, I say no more. Okay, I'll read this really quickly. Um, uh, it's called Guided Energy Meditation with Spirit Hacker, Shaman Durek. This meditation with Spirit Hacker, Shaman Durek, will open up your channels and run energy through you to assist in opening the neural pathways for more cognitive response and awareness in your world. This meditation may work for you right away. And for others, it can take a couple of rounds, as everyone has a different biological makeup. So breathe and be open and just listen. As you want to know more about Shaman Durek, download his Bulletproof Radio podcast with Dave Asprey on iTunes and Google Podcasts. All right, so let's begin the beginning here. (laughs) Okay. Whoops, whoops. Oh, I'm Shaman Durek, and I'm happy to be here with you. Why? Because I love you. And I love seeing you in your power. And I love when you witness all of the beautiful things that you represent, which are so apparent in every day of your life. I am so happy that you're on this planet with me. And I'm happy to be here to share with you a powerful and amazing meditation to keep you lit and to have your energy soaring higher and higher every time you listen. So first, if you're driving, Please do not listen to this meditation when you're driving or working any type of machinery. It's important that you can sit down and listen and be present because that is the most important thing is being with you because who could you love any more than loving yourself? So give this time to yourself now and take a deep inhalation. Inhale and exhale. Good. Inhale and exhale. Beautiful. And as you breathe, I just want you to listen to my voice. And as you do, 
you will begin to be taken on a deep internal and external experience shamanically. Good. Now continue to breathe. And as you breathe, I want you to create space inside of your abdomen. Be sure to keep your eyes open during this meditation so that your focus and your response is with you here in this moment now. When you close your eyes, you check out. And in this meditation, we need you to be fully present. So eyes open. Thank you, beautiful souls. Good. Continue to breathe. Now open up space inside of your abdomen. And as you open that space inside of your abdomen, expand it and allow it to increase. Good. Continue breathing. Now go into your heart and open up space in your heart and really expand that space. Good. And feel the energy that you feel inside of your body right now. And when you feel that energy, say out loud to yourself, I feel it and increase it. Good. Now breathe. Inhale and exhale. Remember to keep breathing because breath is life. And the more that you breathe, the more life fills you up. Good. Now accelerate the energy in your spine by creating space in your spine. Continue to breathe. Open up the space inside of your spine. Good. Now increase it and expand it even further to your shoulders and to the side of both your lateral and right side of your your waist and the lateral left side of your waist. Continue it even more. Make it as expansive as you can get it. Breathe. Now that there's space in your abdomen and in your chest and in your spine, now create space in your legs. Breathe. Inhale and exhale. Open the space inside of your legs and allow the energy to expand. Expand it in your feet and increase it. As you open the energy in your legs, open the energies in your right and left arm. Expand it and increase it. As you're increasing this energy, continue to breathe. Now that you've opened space in your stomach, your chest, your back, your legs, and your right and left arm, open space in your brain. Breathe. Inhale and exhale. Allow the space inside of your cranium to expand, creating more space until it's all the way outside of your head. Now breathe. Good. Now you're going to fill energy into your stomach and energy into your chest. Continue breathing. Expand that energy in your chest now and any energy in your back as well that you feel that has been causing you any tension or discomfort, you're going to release it out of your mouth and throat through long, deep yawn or cough it out of your system. Accelerate. As you're releasing this energy out of your spine, you're going up each vertebrae from your lower sacrum and your coccygeal area all the way to your lower lumbar, your thoracic area in the middle of your back, and your cervical vertebrae, allowing all of the extensions of your spine and the discs and the vertebrae to open up with more energy. Do it now. Good. Accelerate that energy and make it even stronger and send it all the way up your spinal cord into your white and gray matter. Send it all the way up into your brain and release it out of your mouth and throat 
through deep yawn or deep cough. Accelerate the energy and make it even stronger. Good. As you are releasing this energy, move it through your entire body. Pull the energy that's inside of your legs and your feet and release it out of your mouth and throat through a long, deep yawn or cough it out of your system. Then go into your stomach. Release the energy and tension or any echoes or energies that you've been holding on for other people or things that you've been thinking about too much that have been stored inside of your abdomen. Release it out of your mouth and throat and send it back into the spirit world. Good. Now move it into your chest and around your heart, around your aorta and your pulmonary valve in your heart and all the way into your bronchial tube and into your right and left lung. Release any energies. Now that there's space, you can release the energies out of your mouth and throat through long, deep yawn. Notice how your feet feel. Notice how your legs feel. If your feet begin to move, that's okay. That's your body receiving signals from the universe, the spirit world, and your ancestors to clean out more energies through your body. Accelerate. As you accelerate this energy in your body, allow the field of light to move into the areas where you've created space. This then opens up the energy even more and then release the excess poison out of your mouth and throat from energies that you've taken on throughout your month and also throughout your week and throughout your year. Any energy that has been discordant and out of alignment that has not been operating in the field of unconditional love and self-love towards yourself or from other people. Release it out of your mouth and throat now and cleanse it out of your stomach. Breathe. Cleanse it out of your chest. Breathe. Cleanse it out of your spine. Breathe. Cleanse it out of the top of your head in your brain. Breathe. Cleanse it out of your right and left arm. Breathe. Cleanse it out of your right and left leg and feet. Breathe. Now feel the energy in your body even more. Notice how much more expansive your energy has become and how much more clear it has become. Good. Now we're going to accelerate it even more. We're going to open up your energy gauges inside of your body. You don't need to know what energy gauges are. Your spirit already knows. The energy gauges inside of your body allows how much information and how much data streams of light that are flowing into your body simultaneously while releasing the input and output levels of your being. Some people who are more uh, more empathic will begin to pull in more energy in and hold more energy. In order to have optimum health, it is important to have the same flow out and the same flow in. This allows data streams to move through your system simultaneously, allowing a current of flow that allows balance and harmony in your body. Breathe. Open up the energy gauges in your body and allow them to flow outward and inward. Any energies that have been stuck, limited, or held back that are inside of your body will release out of your mouth and throat now. These energies have no place with you. If there is any resistance inside of your body, find the resistant places inside of your body. Good. Locate them, breathe, and pull them out of your mouth and throat. Use a lot of energy from the spirit world to pull it out of your mouth and throat so that any of that trapped energy, resistant or stagnant or discord energy that is limiting you from increasing your power, raising your awareness, and keeping your body lit will come out of your mouth and throat and return to the spirit world. Now notice how your body feels now. 
Notice how your energy feels inside of your body. Now feel it even more. Feel the energy that's inside of your legs, inside of your feet, inside of your right and left arm, inside of your hands, inside of your spine. Breathe. Feel the energy inside of your stomach, inside of your chest, and inside of your brain. Breathe. Notice if there's any changes inside of your body. Notice how the sensations feel inside of your body and notice any blockages that you may still feel. If so, go ahead and take down the firewall of those energies and release them out of your mouth and throat. Good. Accelerate the release out of your mouth and throat through long, deep yawn or cough. Your spirit will cleanse it out just by you listening and following along. As that energy is being released, allow the energy to increase. That energy that increases, move the vibration through your spine and circle it around the top of your head. Now that that energy is circling on the top of your head, bring it all the way down to the center of your head and expand it out through your eyes, expand it out through your mouth, and expand it out through your ears. Cleanse the passageways of your body. Then release it out of your nose with a nice breath and a release of hmm and clearing it from your body. As that energy is releasing from your system, feel the energy and the sensations you're feeling in your body. Now that you feel that sensation, increase it, expand it, and make it even stronger in your body. And notice the sensation that follows afterwards. Then increase that and expand it and make it even stronger. As you're beginning to do so, open up the meridians inside of your body from head to toe. Allow the meridian flows to expand within the network of energy within inside of your body. This energy will then create a higher sense of understanding of energy and frequency. Pull the frequency in your body and accelerate it to 100. Breathe, 200. Breathe, 300. Breathe, 400. Breathe, 500. Feeling that lit feeling inside of your body? Expand it, radiate it, and illuminate it. Now increase, 600. Breathe, 700. Breathe, 800. Expand and illuminate. Breathe, 900. Breathe, 1,000. Expand and illuminate. Illuminate your energy field and reverse your aura towards you. That means your electromagnetic energy frequency that moves on the outside of your body with your subtle energy frequencies. Turn it towards you and increase the energy exchange from your own energy polarizing into your body, creating a deeper sense of healing. Now accelerate it and breathe. Remember, don't hold your breath. As you breathe, you are allowing life to move through your body. Remember, your brain is a conductor. It conducts energy. The more you breathe, the more you allow your conductor to bring in more energy that supports you in health, vitality, and staying lit. Now, accelerate the energy in your spine. Allow the branches of your spine to spark in each area of your spine, your lower sacrum, your lumbar, your thoracic, and your cervical vertebrae. Shock your spine now. Good, breathe, shock it again and make it stronger. Feel that sensation, expand it. Good, now shock your spine again, feel that sensation, expand it even more, make it stronger. Bring that energy all the way through your arms and through your legs. Any energies that you're holding on to that are not supporting you and creating more power, more focus, more drive, and more elevation in your consciousness, 
so that you're using full portions of your brain at higher accelerated levels so that your synapses is moving and firing off in other areas of your brain which have been lying dormant. Release that poison out of your mouth and throat now. Send it back into the spirit world and accelerate your energy dynamic. Move the energy through your body even more. Good. Now accelerate it and feel how that feels. That feeling right there, expand it. Good. Now feel how that feels. That feeling right there, increase it. Good. Now feel how that feels. And that energy that you're feeling right there, increase it even more. Any poisons that need to leave your body will leave naturally through your mouth and throat, through deep yawn, or coughing it out of your system. Don't force any of the actions. Let your mind and your spirit work together so they become a team. So they begin integrating themselves into your process. Your process known as the four spirits of your body. Your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual body. All four spirits must see each other and acknowledge each other so that you can go up in your power and become an enlightened being in this embodiment. Remember, this is a biological spacesuit that has many functions and many capabilities. As you raise your vibration and energy, you will have access to all of those capabilities and more. Now accelerate your energy cortex inside of your brain. Open up the energies and shock your right arm. Shock it strong and don't hold back. Shock it again and breathe. Good. Now shock your left arm. Increase it. Anything getting in your way, release it out of your mouth and throat. If you notice at any given time while you're doing this meditation that you begin to fidget, that means that there is a spirit attachment or a parasite connected into your body. It is wanting to distract you from your power and your energy. Find the parasite in your body, localize it with electricity, shock it, and then bring it out of your mouth and throat through long, deep yawn and deep cough. This energy will then create a new surfacing energy inside of your body which will allow your system to open up its sensorium and create a higher synthesis of energy frequency that's moving in and out of your body through all of your syntax nerves, through your sympathetic nervous system, your voluntary nervous system, and all the way up through your spinal cord. Open up the energies even more and accelerate. That's it. Now breathe. Inhale and exhale. Increase it even more and shock your body at 800. Shock your body at 900. Shock your body at 1,000. Shock your body at 1,100. Shock your body at 1,200. Breathe. Shock your body at 1,300. Breathe. Inhale, exhale. Shock your body at 1,400. Shock your body at 1,500. Shock your body at 1,600. Shock your body at 1,700. Inhale, exhale. Breathe. Big breath. Breathe. Shock your body at 1,700. Shock your body at 1800. Shock your body at 1900. Pull the poison out of your mouth and throat. Long deep yawn or cough. Shock your body at 2000. Now cycle the blue energy around your body faster. Move it in clockwise position around your body. From the base of your feet all the way up through your legs, through your hips, through your back, through your stomach, through your pelvic region, through your lower pelvic floor, all the way across your chest, across the back of your upper back, across your neck, all the way across your face and all the way to the top of your head and then explode it and expand it. Spin the energy around you even faster. Now bring in yellow energy and bring it all the way into your stomach. Bring it into your stomach. Pull it in and any energies that you are releasing out of your body will release naturally and easily out of your mouth and throat. This process is easy. Continue to breathe. 
All you have to do is breathe. Now take the yellow energy and bring it deeper into your chest. Open up your heart and allow the chest flame, the heart flame, the spark of life to move out of the heart center and all the way up to the top of your skin so you can feel the warmth in the center of your chest. Breathe. Release any toxins or poisons you're holding inside of your liver and your lower pelvic region and release them out of your mouth and throat through a long, deep yawn or cough it out of your system. The spirits that are in the room with you right now will assist you in releasing this poison out of your body. Good. Now spin blue energy on the top of your head and spark it to the top of your head all the way into your body. Feel the vibration inside of your body. Notice it right there. That feeling you're feeling right there, increase it. That energy you're feeling that's increased, expand it. If you notice any fidgeting going on inside of your body during this time, release the poison out of your mouth and throat through deep yawn and return back to the place of meditation without doing any type of fidgeting, such as scratching your eyebrow, moving your hands around, or doing anything that would cause a distraction during the spiritual process. Open up your body even more and expand it. Good. Now breathe. Very good. Now allow the energy of the green light to move into the top of your head and move the energy circumference all the way down into your stomach. Expand the energy inside of your stomach and open up a serifial gate. Allow the serifial gate to open as wide as it can, polarizing every energy gate inside of your body. Move this energy gate all the way up to the top of your head and to the top of your spine that increases attention, intelligence, awareness, understanding, and fortifies your ability to be focused and have clarity. Increase the clarity inside of your body. Now shock the ocular nerve behind your eyes and accelerate the ocular nerve to have more mobility through the understanding of your iris opening. Allow the iris to open and expand even wider. As you expand the iris open even wider, notice the changes of energy in front of you. As you begin to notice the change of energy in front of you, allow the blue light to penetrate all the way into your spine. As this energy penetrates into the base of your spine and all the way into your spine, notice the feeling inside your body. Feel the radiating, glowing, illuminating energy inside of your body and expand it. Good. Now take the red energy out of your chest, release it out of your mouth, out of your hands, and out of your lower pelvic region in your upper chest. Pull that energy all the way out of your system, release it out through long, deep yawn, cleanse your body, and move forward. Open up the energy gauges inside of your body. Move the energy gauges even into a more balanced and more harmonic state. Allow the harmonic state to move through your system and then accelerate joy inside of your body. Accelerate this joy and move it through your entire system, to your toes, to your feet, to your hands, to your fingers, to your knees, to your legs, to your spine, every area of your body increasing with joy. Any emotions come out of your body that's causing you any tension, notice that your body wants to stretch as you're pulling energy through. Go ahead and stretch your body. If you need to stretch an arm or a leg or bend your toes or your fingers, go ahead and do so. Now breathe. Increase your energy even more and make it more lit. Open up your energies even stronger and spin the circumference around your body. Now, take a deep inhalation, release, and inhale again and make the sound ah, through your body. As you release that sound, do it again. Inhale. Ah, and again, one more time. Inhale and exhale. Ah, feel the energy of the primal surge move through your system. Notice how good you feel in your body. Know that you are a beautiful, powerful, enlightened, intelligent, creative, and wonderful and magical being. That doors open for you easy. You're always at the right place at the right time. And that you have so much power inside of your being. I love the way you love yourself. I love the way you give to yourself. And I love the way you nurture and take care of your body. Remember, live in prime optimum. Always live with love and joy in your heart.
and stay lit. I love you. Shaman Durek. All right, everybody. Are we awake now? <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Hey, that's so good to hear you, Rama. You hope? <laughs> you don't know. Oh, I um everything's good. <laughs> okay, so let me just read this before you start the next one, Rama. Yeah, I gotta play with stuff so that the yeah. commercials don't show up. You'll go on Brave. Yeah. All right. All right. So this is called Lost Wisdom of Atlantis, International Beings and Time Cycles, Matthias De Stefano and John Churchill. I think that that name, John Churchill, is interchangeable with Rama, seems to think so, Aubrey Marcus, right? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, all okay. three of these characters are. Well, there. no, that 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 means there's three. You said that John Churchill and Aubrey Marcus were one person. No, I did not say that. Yeah, you did. Um, I'm mistaken. Okay. <laughs> all right, everybody. So those three, what what is the wisdom we can recover from ancient civilizations and mystical outside? and mystical teachings that could help us understand how to navigate the time of transition. What would the world be like if humanity's ancient wisdom wasn't suppressed for thousands of years? And empire had not systematically installed the maladaptive software of modern cultures worldwide. Our connection to nature, time, spirit, sexuality, and the universe itself have all been manipulated over millennia to bring us to this existentially threatening moment in time. It's time to remember what our ancestors knew and reimagine how we live. In this full-spectrum dialogue, Matthias De Stefano and John Churchill share deep codes that stretch back into our ancient past. From the history of Atlantis to ancient Tibetan Buddhist wisdom, that as we remember remembered could turn the fate of humanity into a reality where the shackles of millennia old suppression are lifted and the untold potential of our existence unfolds before us that's that and this is one hour 54 minutes and we'll get started won't we Ron? here we go outside the cycle of nature. We don't understand how nature repeats itself once and again. In the Buddhist tradition, when they talk about Kala Chakra, the time wheel, 
the awakening, the enlightenment happens through the cycles. You harmonize yourself with the cycles and it happens naturally and in its own good time. We got a mistaken idea of what Atlantis was. This civilization was not a civilization that developed towards the outside, but a civilization that developed within. If you appreciate that your civilization is going to fall, but you understand that you reincarnate not just individually, but we reincarnate. This last 500 years has been a quickening where the empire force is spread over the world. But it feels like there's other forces that are at work, extra dimensional, extra planetary forces. If they reach this planet, it's because they understood how to travel through a fifth dimension. And if they travel through a fifth dimension, it's because they understand the system. Like, for example, the gray ones. There are civilizations that for us in Earth, they are the bad guys. Okay, let me tell you a story, Matthias, okay. from our planet. <laughs> so there is a law. Don't interfere with planets that are evolving in consciousness. So aliens aren't going to save us. Oh, no. <laughs> Matthias, John. Wow, look at this combination. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> so as we were outside talking, one of the things that came up was this deeper understanding of the importance of remembering our history so that we can actually recognize the patterns and the cycles and then make the necessary adjustments to those patterns and cycles. And so I just want to open this conversation up with a remembering of there was a time when there was a flourishing civilization that felt like nothing could stop it. Well, the idea of Atlantis um, with that name emerges for the Greek people. The Greek people got the stories from Egypt and the Egyptians from the previous civilization and that previous civilization from their ancestors that were from the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so I would say that most of the stories that we have today about this civilization, they were described by the Greek tradition um, describing the idea of the civilization as if it were a magical civilization or uh, an utopia for their own governments. Like they wanted to tell something to the people that we could become like that eventually with the perfect order, with the perfect civilization and everything. So I think that since the Greek time with the description of that civilization, we got also a mistaken idea of what Atlantis was. Uh, like if it was a civilization exactly as we have today with technology, like huge technology or, or very, I don't know, uh, Dubai style <laughs> mm-hmm. with, uh, um, with this weird construction and so on. But actually, uh, from my memories, this civilization was actually not a civilization that developed towards the outside, but a civilization that developed within. And in the last period, tried to manifest everything outside because they knew that otherwise they would forget everything and they would disconnect eventually. So wait, so, you, so what you're saying is the Atlantis was focused on, the Atlanteans were focused on the inner sciences. Yeah. And then in the fear of forgetting the inner sciences like we had, we started focusing on the outer exterior sciences. 
so we don't die. Right. So we don't finish. And this was when they understood that everything has a beginning and an end. And whatever they are, they were building within, eventually it would collapse. It would disappear for others to start a new cycle. So they needed to build machines for time. They needed to build machines to remember how to connect with the interweaving of all dimensions. And if they come back in the future, they would have the tools there to do it. So that's why we don't actually find many things from a civilization. Because usually archaeologists try to find, I don't know, uh, jars or uh, golden things or, I don't know, um, things Artifacts. that roads, things that would say, oh, this was a very expansive civilization like the Romans, for example. But they actually, they weren't like that. They were more connected with the land. They were more related to uh, tiny temples that were for the within. And they would create huge pyramids, but maybe there were tiny houses around or small villages with domes. But that's it. So most of the great civilization that we picture sometimes, uh, it was not civilization towards outside, to conquer. It was a civilization to understand. That's why we, when we connect with that civilization, we, we usually uh, talk about the wisdom that they had. The last period of Atlantis was to conquer. The last period of Atlantis was... So that's when it started to turn. Exactly. Because they knew they, their time was finishing. It was ending. So they started to get... How did they know? Cycles. They were connected. Stars, the planet. They understood in the same way as you have spring, uh, summer, autumn, winter. They knew that whatever blossoms in spring eventually will die in autumn. But for a civilization, it takes maybe 2,000 years. So they understood the cycles of everything. So they knew exactly in 2,400 years, our civilization will turn off for others to rise. So they, we need to get ready for that moment so we could transcend and not be forgotten. So... I'm trying to understand. So then what was the motive for them to turn to conquest? Why did they think that conquest would be their salvation? Because there were many uh, different powers in the civilization. Like they didn't have a king or the major priest or something like that. They had many layers of governments and they started to disagree in how the power should be uh, kept going like the high priest they said well we should die and be remembered in 12,000 years the king said with the families said we need to bring this message to other cultures so they can remember us and we can create communities all over the world so in case something happens to us another ones will remember through blood and the military, they said, they don't want to do that. So we have to force them to do that. We have to force them 
And so they started to use the technology of the pyramids as a way to control the others. And they started to use the inner power for the outer power. And that's how the civilization entered in a conflict within itself. So the wise people left Atlantis and went to the Nile or to Mexico. Um, others just decided to get lost in the mountains, in the, in the Caucasian mountains or Tibet or um, in North America some others in South America. So they all spread trying to leave the power of control of the last 500 years of that civilization. Mm -hmm. And usually that's the moment that most of the people remember as a trauma of that civilization. Like, oh yeah, they, they, Atlantis was a civilization that tried to control everyone and they were warriors and, and powerful and they wanted to conquer and they started a war with Lemuria. And this, this, this moment, the, of the trauma was more heavier than the past 5,000 years of that civilization that actually was a civilization, a civilization that was designed to the within. As I said, that's why people don't usually find the daily life things because they knew that it was all essential. So they wouldn't keep anything. They would just restore everything to nature until the last period. And the only things that they actually built to be remembered were the huge structures that were used as a technology. Mm-hmm. So that was the most important things for them because, because in that, in that way, they would be remembered, not as, not as a civilization. They would be born again and they could use it again. So, hmm. it's because they had the, the the understanding of their reincarnation, the fact that they were going to keep coming back. Yeah, and so they started to plan for their future reincarnations for at least twenty four thousand years. It's like now the presidents make a plan for four years. We did a plan for twenty four thousand. <laughs> <laughs> When Matthias talks about this, you know, obviously you've been, you know, deeply enmeshed in, of course, your own tradition, you know, the Buddhist tradition, but also the ancient history of our civilization. So as he describes this, what does that evoke in, uh, from you, John? Well, I'm sitting here and just reflecting on how we're at a similar moment in the cycle. And the similar squabbling is happening. Um, no doubt, um, you know, there's various, various people in government who are aware of these cycles, but these cycles, our civilization has been so disconnected from sacred world. We're so separated that we're not aware of these cycles. So if you think of the effect of Christianity on the last 2000 years of separating ourselves from the sacred and putting the sacred elsewhere so that we, we're not, we're not aware. We're not prepared. We're not ready. We don't know what time it is. And then, and then as far as I'm aware, those in government who are aware of what time it is, 
Well, some of them are like, we're going to just dig a hole, right? There's the, we're going to dig a, there's the, we're going to dig a hole in the ground mm-hmm. approach. Um, possibly but, under the Denver airport. Yeah. Possibly not. <laughs> but, but, uh, I mean, you see all those underground cities in Turkey, yep. right? I mean, they were built for, they were built for something, for something. <laughs> so the first thing I'm aware of is just the degree of poverty of our civilization. Just in terms of just being so disconnected from cycles of, or even of the, of the season, let alone the cycles of the planet, let alone a 12,000 micro, you know, solar micronova cycle. We just, we just, we just so deeply disconnected mm-hmm. from the sacred in that, in that way. Um, and, and, and then it, the the next reflection is well in order to fa- in, in order to understand the cosmology it isn't just about these cosmological cycles it's also about a deeper appreciation of 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 gaia of our planet and of our reincarnatory process that is a part of our planet's evolutionary pulse and if you appreciate that your civilization is going to fall, but you understand that you reincarnate, not just individually, but we incarnate, we reincarnate. Mm. And that that is, it's not anthropocentric, it's not anthropocentric. That is a function of a larger organism that's pulsing and growing, which is the Ma herself, right? Mm-hmm. Our, our mother. Um, so I think the first thing what speaks is well, how deeply like disorient, we are completely disoriented and not ready for any kind of cyclic transformation, even like spiritually, right? Like we just, like the fact that, that in order for something to be born, something has to die. I right? like, uh, and, and in order to live, you have to be okay with death. Right. So mm. the very fact that we've avoid uh, we've avoided this history, we've avoided the possibility that we will die as a collective, means that we're not really we're not we don't live either, right? Mm. We're we're kind of we're numbed. So these are the things these are the things that are coming up. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> thinking about the cycles and how the similarities and differences. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know, that's roughly 500 years ago. And that is not what actually marks empire because we had empire far before that. I think the Egyptians took some empirical, you know, that the forces of empire and this desire to conquer and conquest that existed before in limited areas. But it really blossomed when that ship technology came and people could come and start colonizing the Americas and colonizing Australia and all of the different indigenous peoples who had lived in right relation with the land. So in some ways, there was an earlier appearance of empire in our story of this 12,000 years. It happened earlier in some places, of course. You know, the Greco-Roman empires, uh, all of the Persian empires, all the Egyptian empires, all of the empires. And then also there was a huge swaths of land that were basically untouched, potentially helped seeded also by Atlantean wisdom mm-hmm. that came and were able to live 
in connection where they could speak to the rocks and, mm-hmm. they could, and the trees and the wind and everything was sentient and alive. So it's similar in a way that this last 500 years has been a quickening where the empire force has spread over the world mm-hmm. and we're trying to control everything now mm-hmm. in this final, you know, we're going to die. We need to control everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then with that is an opportunity to, to do something different, mm-hmm. you know, and potentially change the way that this transition, some transition is going to happen, but feels like we have the opportunity to navigate how that transition happens. Yeah. The, um, we, we as, a, as, as humans, we started to, to expand and trying to control others, uh, because our fear to death. We, we wanted to survive because we had no idea what would happen after. Uh, so as a, as any cell or as any organism, you are trying to eat as much as you can to stay the longest alive as you can. And uh, when you feel that there's a threat, you better first to be before you get attacked, you have to attack in order to protect your survival. So this created idea of expansion constantly and uh, the idea of empires trying to control others in order to survive for longer. And this disconnect us from the, the very truth, with, which was um, that actually expansion could be done from within. So some people, some of these first cultures, they started to wonder what would happen if instead of expanding outside, would be expanding within. And that expansion takes to the idea that we actually never die. And it was not something spiritual at the beginning. It was just by looking how a flower dies, but next year, the tree will blossom again. So what if we do the same? What if when we die, we will blossom again? And we are just flowers in a tree, but we cannot see the branches. So the idea of dying and rebirth in nature, as the plants were growing and flourishing and then dying and flourishing again, uh, started to create other civilizations that they didn't fear death. And when you don't fear death, you don't fear uh, survival. So you don't need to survive. So you stop conquering. So you stop fighting for resources because you, you are not afraid of what is happening because it doesn't matter if you die, you will come back in different ways um, to keep going, going. So what they tried to do was we have to understand the tree. So when we come back, we know where the branches are. So they started to expand through the world, not to conquer the world, but to know where the flowers are. And we call it portals. Mm-hmm. We call it the grid, the the network. The and grid, yeah. Grid, yeah. So they started to find the mountains that were flowers, the the valleys that were flowers. So we went to those places and we we started to settle there with this idea of we are not going to die, but at least we know where we could blossom again. 
and they started to build the pyramids there. So they could create bridges between dimensions. So when they die in another dimension in the skies, the precession of equinoxes will bring us back. You know, so they saw the tree of life and they started to design the tree of life. And, um, that's, that's the greatest moment of that civilization. And it's something that we all have within, but as we were saying, as Mark was saying, um, we don't know today where is the North. Sure. Like most of the people don't know where is the North. Sure. And so that's why we lost the North. We don't know where we're going because until there was, an, until we created the compass, when we created the compass, we forgot where the North is because we forgot how to get in touch with the planet. So we started to create tools outside to make it easier for us but we stop using our own tool. So we cannot feel the stones, not because the, the stones talk, but because they vibrate. They vibrate with the rhythm of the hertz of the planet. So when you feel the feeling of or the vibration of the stones, you say, oh, they are talking. Or because you're feeling connected to that, or just by being like, you know, seeing where the the birds are flying, you will know where the north is. And these kind of things, like not knowing when to go to sleep, when to wake up, the first cycle, which is a day, and then not knowing what an equinox is or what a solstice is, uh, that disconnects us completely from this subtle perception of, of eternity. Mm-hmm. So we are constantly thinking, okay, I have to go to sleep because Tomorrow I have to do stuff, but no, it's an important moment to go to sleep because it's you die. You, you, every time that you go to sleep, you are dying. And every time that you breathe, you are dying. Your cells are dying. So that is the thing that we lost. That connectivity of eternity of constantly being dying and constantly rebirthing. And that's why we instead of breathing, we try to survive like, mm. you know, yeah. so yeah. I have to breathe Gasping. because I have to take all the oxygen, all the, all the food, all, all the things that I need in order to survive instead of just knowing I will die anyway. Yeah. And, and it, it <laughs> seems that there's, there's also the disconnection from the natural order and these beliefs in reincarnation and all of the things that we're talking about, mm. they fuel the forces of empire for more conquest, right? Like they work together because the less you are connected and the less you believe in reincarnation is like the more justification you have for your conquest. Mm-hmm. And so they, they work together in this kind of nefarious pact in, in a way like they're just, uh, allies. Well, the great, the great forgetting. There's a forgetting in the past and then there's, and there's also the interdimensional forgetting. Mm. And there must be a relationship between those two processes, right? That, that we've lost, we've lost a, in, in those times we understood that the center of civilization wasn't actually in matter. It was actually in the subtle and that, um, sacred world you know, the subtle is still matter, 
right? So it's not like, it's not that it's just a little less, little less coarse. Mm. But if you think of everything that we're doing in our, in Western civilization, uh, what the Rosicrucians called the invisible college, right? We, we, we could have sacred chemistry, physics, architecture, medicine. If we look at the degree of how evolved our civilization is and then say, well, what would it take to bring it up to speed? I think it's important for us to feel and know that that already exists. Uh Meaning where we've come from, the, the, the flat, like we're a flower into time and matter from a deeper center, a deep, a deeper center of civilization and culture. When we talk about secret, a sacred world, you know, the ancestral realms, this is real. It's real. It's not just a, messy kind of flowing yeah. that that actually the cosmos has has an anatomy and a physiology our planet has an anatomy and a physiology and the civilizations are part of that process and that there is a, a harvesting process of what happens what we learn in matter but but the so much of it actually happens in the subtle mm-hmm. and that isn't to negate the the beauty of of this kind of of realm, but it's really important for us to remember the, the cosmology that we lived in. It's, it's the losing of that cosmology. Because if you lose that cosmology, then you then you lose the, even the idea that there's some that there's somewhere to connect to. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I have I have students who are scientists, and um, at night they when they're in the lucid dream state, they go to a classroom. And they're learning about these these new technologies. Now that happens in another civilizational state. It's it's subtle. So that the, the loss of our connection to an understanding of continuity of civilization being not just not just on the physical, but in other dimensions. We've once we lose that, then we are, and we even lose that understanding spiritually because then you can still have a sense that you're on a path but you but you you you, we lose the the community and the civilization that we are actually a part of Mm -hmm. but even though it isn't fully manifested here all the work that we've done over these lifetimes all the work our ancestors have done isn't lost right And, and then there's another cycle available available for download Available for go to your go to your spiritual app store. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Available yeah. for download all of the wisdom that's been captured. And that's right. Um, it's like the seeds in a fruit and a tree. Like the the seeds can be reproduced, reproduced, and they will keep all the wisdom of the of the tree before. So we are constant seeds of this tree. So eventually we will grow and we will have the same information. So it's alive. All the time, yes. Like so there's two there's two things that are coming landing for me. One is the recognition of if I really just sit with that, you know, kind of timeless perspective of the reincarnation of self and civilization, it actually reorients the mission in this life. It does. Because it's not just about me and my family. It is about me and my family, but it's also beyond me and my family because my family enlarges to the family of Gaia 
the planet and all of civilization and how no matter what happens that we set up ourselves in the best way that we can for the future civilizations to come and do our best to ease the transition and salvage what we can here. But just feeling that I also recognize that I haven't, even though I know that to be true, I haven't allowed it to fully seep into my bones Mm -hmm. and really, really get it. So, you know, that's, that's one thing I just wanted to reflect as moving through me. And I also want to go back to this idea of, because I think it was a, you know, not true, but partial explanation for the desire for conquest and the desire for empire, right? Like so based on fear, based on scarcity, based on that. But it feels like there's other forces that are at work in this beyond just survival and beyond just these even extra dimensional, extra planetary forces that are actually looking to undermine life itself, looking to control squash, dehumanize, degrade life with a capital L Mm -hmm. itself. And it seems like these forces have been very active and are very active now. I'm just curious from your perspective, Matthias, to talk about these forces from a cosmological standpoint and then potentially other stories that you've heard of other star systems that decided to go one way or another way mm-hmm. and how these forces have kind of influenced in a history that even extends further back than our own history. We're talking about this galaxy or Lucifer? Well, <laughs> both. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. <laughs> when, if we talk about the origin of uh, the forces that makes everything to collapse and to um, corrode in existence. Turn upside down. Yeah. Um, the the first one that did that, the first uh, creation that did that was division. And we have talked about this, how the universe in order to fall in love with itself, needed to split into, like humanizing the idea, romanticizing the idea of a particle divided in the wave. So when the wave chose to divide itself in two different particles, we divided the universe. But in that split, a spark of light was created. And that's that's what we call the bearer of light, which is Lucus Ferus, which is Lucifer. So it means that from the trauma of division, light arose, but it was a trauma. So the very moment of enlightenment in the universe, when one thing divided in two, it created the most beautiful thing, but at the same moment, it created the first trauma. So the system of following the light is the system that constantly divides and which is the paradox we talked once Mm -hmm. Um, the paradox of as closer you get to the light more likely you will burn and it's because the system in order to create options to be manifested to be uh, 
to feel life, you need to divide many more options. So there is a system in the universe, which is the system of light, that is constantly dividing something. So every time there is a spark, there's something that has to be divided. So when we leave that trauma, boom, I see clarity. Oh, I understood. So there's one side of the universe that is forcing us constantly to divide. As the universe, the main goal of the universe was let's divide in order to understand the link. Because when everything is one, you cannot feel the link. So you need division in order to understand the connection. So there's one side of the universe that says, I feel the other. And there's another side of the universe that says, for you to feel it, I need to create the other, the opposite. So as we get closer to the light, there is one system that says, it means that I have to divide you more. Mm-hmm. So we call that evil, but actually it's a system of division in order for you to find light. Mm-hmm. So evil and good are just perception of human morality of something that in the universe is very natural, which is a wave divided into two particles. And these two particles are constantly divided into other two, another two, another two, and it creates many thousands of billions of options that creates confusion. And that's what we uh, understand as the the source of evil or the source of uh, separation, source of conflict, polarity, duality, as something that pulls us apart from the sense of unity. But even though it was the trauma that created the path towards unity, towards understanding of why we need unity. So is this paradox of we need each other in order to find unity? Because we wouldn't be talking about this if there is no conflict in the world. Like, why to explain this if everyone is living in peace and harmony? No, no, we wouldn't be in this quest of trying to understand better why we are here. Mm. So, um, for other worlds, it's different because they are not mammals for example, so they don't have this relationship with mom and dad. So they don't have this relationship. Also, for example, in, in Sirius, there are some planets that uh, they only have two hours of night, let's say two hours. There are two suns. So usually you have two sunrise, two sunsets, very short. So it means that they evolve in a way that they don't need much to sleep. So they are all the time awakened. So this means that as more stars are closer to you, um, less confusion. So they didn't need to go through the process of the trauma of separation of mom and dad, the moon and sun, the night and the light. Uh, it was not biological design like that because the structure of their solar system was different. So um, for every planet, it's completely different, the path of what is evil and what is good. Um, but everyone understands when we are, we, when we reach a point of consciousness, we all understand that 
Every separation is part of the creation. Every unity is part of the purpose. So that's why the aware civilizations and other realities, they don't interfere with our evolution because they understand that planet Earth, and not humanity, planet Earth, we are part of the planet. Planet Earth is in a path of evolution according to having one sun and one moon. Having 12 hours of night, 12 of day, let's say. Mm. Uh, with a cycle of 24,000 years because of the precision of the equinoxes. So they cannot force a planet that is learning what is duality because that would be what happened here with uh, Cristóbal Colón. Mm-hmm. How is it in English? Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus. Um, coming here and saying to everyone, Jesus is the word. Like, Maybe in the Mediterranean Sea, but here we had ayahuasca. <laughs> you know, that was better than Jesus. <laughs> you know, but but um, but they said no. This is better, so they imposed the truth. So aliens wouldn't do that because if they reach this planet, it's because they understood how to travel through the fifth dimension, and if they travel through the fifth dimension, it's because they understand the system. So. So they, they wouldn't come and force us to follow the light because it's not. So aliens aren't going to save us. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I guess, I guess then it's, it's very, it's almost impossible to see out of the prism of, you know, I had a, speaking of ayahuasca, I had a very deep ayahuasca journey where I understood that the God that I call God, which is good, mm-hmm. God and good. Yeah. And it is our God, actually, in a way, as if our our planet's God, and that there was actually other conceptions of God that could exist, and those gods could have different ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think about. You know, I just recently rewatched the movie Dune. You ever see the movie Dune, yeah. Matthias? It seems pretty clear from our God's perspective, goodness perspective, there's the Fremen and then there's the Harkonnens. Yeah. Right? Fremen, good. Mm. Harkonnens, fuck that. <laughs> like want no fucking parts of yeah. that. You know, and then there's the other civilizations that are somewhere, somewhere in between trying to find the, trying to find the balance where the protagonist of the story comes from. I forget what that civilization is called, but ultimately like, I guess it would be fair to say that in the Harkonnen, from the Harkonnen system and the Harkonnen's God system of what is good, maybe they're killing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like (laughs) maybe killing or something. (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, but then, then as they interfere, the problem is when they interfere with a world like the Fremen's, that's what's fucked up. That's the collapse. That's what's fucked up because they're imposing their good and bad onto a place where their imposition is clearly bad. Mm-hmm. And so that's where when you start to cross, cross those ideas, but it's difficult. It's difficult. It's such a stretch to imagine, imagine diff- different conceptions. I want to extend the good out universally, right? So the question you had around extending good and evil out, right? I mean, 
if you think of from one perspective, evil is what happens when trauma, when the when the cycle of trauma keeps going and it's not processed. And rather than opening and releasing and feeling, there's a process of contraction. Mm. More, 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 more contraction. And then it gets to a point where it's so contracted that no longer wants to feel the pain and projects it out and then attacks what's there. Mm. So you have, you can think of evil as complete contraction, right? Mm. And, And of course, which is, in the Buddhist tradition, this is the wheel going one way and you have the wheel going the other. So you can look at it in terms of splitting, which is one way of, or you can look at it in terms of what direction is the wheel going, mm. right? And you can, you can have, you can evolve civilization with the wheel going the wrong way. I mean, we saw with the Nazis, right? We saw like, oh, that wheel could just, and that wheel had kept going and kept going and kept going. You could, you could have levels of of evil that are that that are, that are yeah, and clearly that I mean that's in our God and goodness, right? So like there is in it's not that we're creating a moral relativism in our own in our own world. Mm-hmm. There is Nazis are not the same as the Yawanawa brothers who we just got to mm-hmm. meet and witness. Not the same. No, not the same. No, sorry, not the same. They're that's not right. morally equivalent. That's right. They're different. And so there's then, and then it's just opening up then the, the way in which we extend this out through the cosmos. Which is the same kind of cycle. So we were referring to a cycle here related to a planet, but there are, there would obviously be even larger cycles where the same process that we're talking about, the drama and the narrative of, of, of Earth and Atlantis, happens on one large an even larger scale where it isn't just planets reincarnating its stellar systems right it gets a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger same process repeating itself as as the galactic organism just like a planet is an organism and, and has a karma so, so does a galaxy so that process can we, we probably would see it throughout the cosmos Right. So then if we go from that galactic federation kind of perspective, it still seems as though there's certain things that are of the good and certain mm-hmm. things that are of the not good, even even from a, a larger perspective, even if you do have different stars and suns and you know I would would seem so. it would seem seem like that to me. But in the confederation if we call it like that, um, it's not an organization against evil. It's neutral. So I remember being there. I was not a very big politician there. It was just in... So you're talking about the Galactic Federation and all yeah, if you remember. Galactic Federation. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was just the secretary of a neighborhood. Um, in, uh-huh. Like if they had a problem with the sewer, <laughs> I was in charge of <laughs> nothing for it. But <laughs> dealing with some shit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I, but we all have kind of a like a public knowledge 
of what was happening. Um, we were all connected somehow uh, to know what was going on, even if we were not part of the government or something like that. So um, we, I remember moments of, like, for example, the gray ones, the gray people. Mm. We call it Siamur. The the Siamur, they were, they are a civilization that for us in Earth, they are the bad guys. You know, the, mm-hmm. not good. <laughs> not good at all. But they had a chair there. They, they were, they exchange because for their world, for their planet and their system, their, their solar system, let's say, uh, they accomplished to understand how that planet worked. So they accomplished a level of awareness that represented the evolution of that planet. So they weren't trying to control anybody. Their, their nature was to turn off the light of the planet. Like they needed the resources till the core of the planet. So, um, Basically, that was their nature. That was like their planets were their food. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, but they accomplished a perfect yeah, fuck harmony. Those guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fuck those guys. So what, what yeah. you're saying is, is that their, their evolutionary path was not so much around ours, which is maybe love and wisdom, but exactly. more around. So my tradition, we talk about how different planets have different lo- logoses. Yeah. And these logoses have different evolutionary um typologies so there's some logoses that that evolve through power yeah. and the personality of the planet itself so you would imagine you could have a planet that raises a totalitarian civilization mm-hmm. in our mind that's bad but for the psychology of that planetary system that yeah. that is it yeah and it's complete order now our our logos and in some ways that balanced with polarity with our well well, this know, is, I think erotic, this is the erotic planet. Exactly. Our, our planet isn't, she is, she's not, she's more of a love wisdom. It's a mother. Our planet is a mother. Yeah. And wildly, their planet yeah. wildly was not. erotic. Exactly. Their planet was not. Yeah. And uh, for example, there's, I, there's no I, big dick slinging gray the, the conversation that I remember, for example, was <laughs> they, they were, they were saying in the conversation that they had was, um, the decision of bringing some humans to be part of the meeting. And these people said, no way. And the reason was because humans feel so much that would hurt the magnetical field of their bodies and they would die of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> if they caught, if they caught a little piece of, yeah. piece of yeah. my so, Jewish anxiety, it would just, so, it would just okay. burst into flames. So imagine, imagine, imagine you as a Pisces going to a grave saying, I love you, brother. <laughs> And also, who is the evil one? <laughs> so, so really, this is about creative friction, right? Yeah. It's like good versus evil. At least in this, it's, it's polarity, different typologies, different evolutionary, different evolutionary functions, like different that when they rub against one another. I mean, clearly, mm. we might not. Our planet seems to me has a. It's a lot about free will. And, and there's a lot of freedom and we value, we value that. Mm-hmm. There might be systems where that isn't the case. Yeah. 
And we, I think, I, I think we would see that as being evil. Mm -hmm. But if you're a mantis being, or if you're, right, I, I mean, if, if it's a different line of evolution, we have to be able to step outside and just appreciate and that. And that is, I mean, the best of us, the best of us, our planet could create the, the Christic impulse, mm -hmm. you know, which very well may have been carried by the one named Yeshua, but it's, it's a real thing, regardless of your history. Quite likely Yeshua did carry that Christic spark of non-judgment mm -hmm. so that he could actually see the grays or see the others and actually sit at the seat. So if they were going to bring one up there, he could sit at the seat and represent from that radical place of non-judgment. Mm -hmm. But it's, that's, uh, that's perhaps the aspirational impulse of how we could earn a seat at the, at the table is we'd have to step beyond our judgments, you know, to a place where we could actually hold the balance of all the cosmos. And that, that's what we were trying to do in the Atlantean times mm -hmm. when there were not only one ruler. It was around the table. We talked previously that it was around the table of different powers that they were all together deciding. So from inside accepting each one of the levels of this humanity. And that's why they created, they created the idea of politism. So each one could follow their own truth. And even though they were all together in the Olympus. So even the bad guys and the good guys, they would hang out together because at the end of everything, they are just part of the same circle, the same sphere. It's something that we are trying to practice with a UN in a way, <laughs> trying, uh, in which all the different voices could be heard and we are trying to bring balance in between all these voices. The thing is that the people that represents today, they are disconnected from the North Pole. Mm. They are disconnected from the seasons. They are disconnected from mother. So, um, so that's why this planet is not evolving. It's just practicing stuff. So what about in this in this galactic federation if there's a an ideology a type of people a race that is trying to intentionally impose their own way on a people that don't want that way mm -hmm. and potentially even deriving pleasure like a lot of the evil is when you derive a certain sense of pleasure from the hurt of somebody else right it's not just about the necessity Maybe you need to eat a planet to survive. That's one type of thing. Yeah. But then if you're actually enjoying torturing the people that are there and the beings that are there, like you enjoy the torture, you're actually doing that. Is there like a, is there like a unilateral code of ethics? Like, no, like that's not cool. You can't come from this planet and fuck with these people and torture and hurt and kill them. That violates that violates an international, intergalactic, I should say, kind of eth ethos. Yeah, there are parts of that. There, it is like that. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so think about it. So we, we are yeah. like ants for them. <laughs> so, there, so if the be if the dark beings weren't policed by another 
you know, ethos, mm-hmm. they would have already eaten us. Basically, fuck with us. Uh, they, 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 they even wouldn't bother to talk to us because they just would eat the planet. But let's think about this. There are billions of planets and, and most of the planets that are evolving, they are not in the level of evolution of their planets or our planet. Like there are billions of planets that they just have by bacteria or they're, yeah, they are just unicellular creatures trying to evolve. And those planets has also a nucleus, a core. So there are many planets to be eaten by them that they don't need to kill us. You know, so it's like. So it would be unnecessary and sadistic to kill us. And so the, it's so full of planets, so yeah. full that Earth is just in a corner. It's not even important in our galaxy. Earth is like in the, it's like you have a garden and there's one little plant around there in between the whole forest and you say, yeah, sometimes that plant has beautiful flowers. But it's, it's like, if, imagine if everyone, all the people that are here are just concerned about what is happening with that little plant there. Like, maybe some bees go. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So, um, our planet, we, we, we perceive that the planet Earth is so important because we are planet Earth. Yeah. So of course we take care of our, of our, who we are. But when you take a look into the universe, planet Earth is just a spark tiny little rock that is evolving. So there are billions and billions of planets that just have bacteria that are useful for the source of energy that they need. So there is a law, for example, saying don't interfere with planets that are evolving in consciousness. Mm -hmm. So when a planet starts to think and say, I am, so don't bother that planet. And of course, there are people that could come and try to convince us like, our way is the best way and these kind of things because we are still trying to figure out what we want to do. But um, they cannot interfere directly Mm -hmm. because uh, there is this law of resonance that makes that this planet is connected to the path of evolution of certain planets that are also mothers. Mm -hmm. So it's like mother cells. You cannot kill a mother cell because otherwise, if you need to reproduce the same pattern, you cannot have the mother cell. So the earth is like a mother cell in your body. You just can come here, put some stuff here and say, in case my planet dies before I was able to do something, I can come back here, take some human, take it back to another planet, bring the DNA and reproduce it again. You know, so this is like Noah's Ark, mm. like a mother cell in a huge body, which is the galaxy. So nobody would kill us, just us. Right. <laughs> no, just nobody us. would, yeah, because um, they need us alive. Mm-hmm. We we're memory. creating the diversity, complexity, the oh, yeah. possibility of the whole of the whole universe. We have so many choices, like human. This planet, not humans. This planet create so many choices like others. There are many other plants with many choices. So it's like, oh, I want to put my seed there just in case eventually I will need it. Mm-hmm. So we are not controlled. We are monitorized like a farmer tries to take care of the crop. 
Mm. So is your decision to feel that the farmer is a bad guy or if it's the good guy that is taking care of you or are there, are there both? Is this, are there bad farmers who actually want to just wipe out possibility and complexity for some darker origin or to harvest some energy from us or do something? And then are there the good farmers that want to see how our consciousness develops and see what if we talk about harvesting, emotion is very good energy to harvest. So, of course, as more unaware you are, more energy you create that you are not aware of. So you don't know how to handle your energy so someone else can eat it. <laughs> so for sure, there are some beings in other dimensions that they try for you not to be aware so they can use your energy. So let's say the bad farmers. Vampire, vampire yeah. farmers. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as I said, um, before this podcast, we were eating. So for <laughs> someone in nature in this planet, we also are the bad farmers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. life has to keep going. Mm-hmm. Energy exchange. Yeah. But interplanetary. <laughs> and I think that, and so when you become aware as a planet, that cannot happen. So the planet itself is protecting the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, that's why some people don't want for us to become aware. Mm-hmm. But they cannot kill us because otherwise they cannot have mother cells. Mm-hmm. So in, in that sense, the uh, the aligning with the unfolding of the planet itself, it's it's intelligence. Yeah. Like our, our awakening is not our awakening. It's awakening to, to planetary intelligence. Yeah. And that what, as that happens, then something else happens because it's a much deeper degree of integration. Oh, yeah. Right. So you that start I, to listen to yes. So so that this this our awakening process is essentially about becoming becoming the planet. But when that happens, there's a, a a much deeper level of cohesion, coherence, and protect the, and integration. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's a it's a now it's a it's the planet as a conscious integrated entity. Be, Continuous, continue its, its, its evolutionary. Is there, is there a story, Matthias, of another planet or, uh, that has gone as far into what Charles Eisenstein would call the myth of separation? You know, he, he told a story in his book, A More Beautiful World, Our Hearts Know as Possible. And he talks about, you know, in his fictional story, there's never been a planet that's gone this deep into separation and made its way back, you know, just hypothetically, right? Like, like we've gone really far. We've been so disconnected from the planetary consciousness mm-hmm. that John is talking about. Like, is there, is there, are there stories of other, other, maybe it's in our own planet or maybe it's in other planets of, of planets losing, losing their bearings to the degree that we've lost our bearings with the interconnectedness of the planet. Well, at least many of us. Yeah. And then finding their way back home. Yeah, of course. Of course. There are 
there are planets that even died like forever and they need to go to other planets like the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki didn't come here because they wanted to go and queer. They came here because they had nowhere to go. They, their planet died because they were so lost. Mm-hmm. So Mother Earth received them and said, this will be your home. So that's why they were able to leave for a period of time here. Because um, if the planet don't want you, it will do everything to kill you. Mm-hmm. And they survived. So that means that Mother Earth allowed them to be here yeah. with love. Because she understood that they just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And our planet is um, unconditional. Come here, lost children of the exactly. cosmos. Mm-hmm. Like I'll show you some motherly love. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah. maybe you'll find your way again. Mm. So they found love and they fucked everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> Yeah. So the, so these, I mean, the, the forgetting could go all the way to existential destruction, complete, complete existential destruction of the whole planet. You could forget so much that you kill everything or you could just depends on how quickly we we remember. So this process is about like, how fast can we remember? Can we remember before we have, before we forget? so deeply that there's, you know, even greater and greater and greater calamity that we have to face. So it it seems like that's really our directive here is like, how quickly and deeply can we remember who we really are? Mm -hmm. Faster, you mean? Yeah, like, isn't that, wouldn't that be the impulse is like, what are we, what are we, what are we working for, striving for, fighting for? We're fighting for a remembering that takes place quick enough yeah. that it avoids existential calamity. You know, right? Like, I think let's compare it with something simple in this case. Like, if you would have a child, what would you do to teach him? Like, would you force him to follow the right path or would you? Give them the free, the freedom to choose and to learn from their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you would say to them, this is the right path. You have to honor this God. You have to be good in this way. Or you would say, this is how I lived and discover your own way. Like, how would you raise a child? Yeah, but if you had a child who was playing with fire and they, were, and they were trying to light your house on fire, <laughs> yeah, you'd probably go like, yo, 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 yo. You have to put <laughs> wait, limits. Wait, wait, yeah. Yeah, you have to put like, limits. Whoa. But if you for, live in this house. But if you forbid him from use the fire, he will burn the house. Uh-huh. So, uh, so what would you say? Like, this is not the right place to use the fire. But we can go there and burn these things. Yeah. And try here, you know? So, because the need of learning and when you're learning, you don't know what is the outcome. So there are beings that follow rules and beings that try to find a different way. Mm -hmm. So, um, usually our mind is trying to find different ways. 
So if you forbid this, your mind will try to find a way to do it anyway. So that's why the learning process of a, of a child is to create the environment for them to practice without hurting others. Yeah, we're hella creative. It's like Mormons and they're soaking. You know about Mormons and soaking? No. <laughs> okay, let me tell you a story, Matthias, okay. from our planet. <laughs> our great from planet. our planet. Yeah. So, in, and I've heard this from, you know, from a, a Mormon friend of mine who told me the story. Let's crack it up. So basically, you know, premarital sex is forbidden uh-huh. and the act of intercourse is forbidden. Mm-hmm. So what they've devised to get around the forbidden law is what's called soaking. And soaking is where you penetrate, but you don't thrust back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. But if you got a good friend who's with you, the friend can jump on the bed. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so it creates the motion so that you're not actually doing it. So you're not doing the forbidden. You're not <laughs> fucking. The bed is doing the fucking for you. You just happen. You're soaking, oh, not be fucking. A good friend. <laughs> yeah. good friend. You want your heaviest friend. <laughs> you, got, you, you got your thick boy Mormon soaking assistant who's just good at just bouncing on the bed in just the right way. You see, you find a way. You find a way. Oh, you will always yeah. find a way. Yeah. So oh. that, that's why. <laughs> you create always the environment for that. So <laughs> go back to what you were saying. <laughs> Let's just redirect this one. <laughs> um, you know, I think that the other way to, to think about this is that um, clearly, um, clearly the, the world desperately needs to awaken. Yeah. And yet, if one moves in that process to help awaken people from a place of existential anxiety where you're still looking for your survival in that process, then actually it's going to just, mm-hmm. right? The, the, on, the only elegant way is to essentially live in that world that our hearts know is possible right now like like really right now and then yeah be right? the living invitation and then to the other way right so that so that then however people because in the long run in, the, in all of these cycles that actually in the long run is probably what make is what allows for real growth <laughs> okay <laughs> hello Cyrano. <laughs> You're now the fourth guest on the podcast. There you <laughs> yeah. go, buddy. It's, it's one thing to, for all of us to feel like, to feel that the sense of urgency and, and existential, um, the meta crisis that we have, right? And, and how it wants us, it's like when things want to go faster, slow down. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I hear. It's like, you want to go faster? We slow down. Because the only, the only possible way of allowing that culture to arise to whatever degree it can is from that it's from that place yeah that we right well otherwise we just get whipped up into the the speed of of empire that, right. that's why i was trying to say with the 
with a child. Like you can force someone that has five years old to do something that someone with 50 years old would do. You know, like just because you know with 50 years old that that's not right or that's not good. Um, there's a process of many years in between that needs a lot of practice to become that. And as humanity, as, as Homo sapiens sapiens, we have been in this planet for three million years compared to the history of the planet. It's nothing. So we are, we have gone too fast in a process that actually takes more time, like mm. millions of years until you become actually a planet. Imagine the dinosaurs have been billions of millions of years and, and they were just practicing something or becoming the earth, but no with awareness, just with unconscious. So then with consciousness, everything speed up. So that's why mammals started to become so aware and it was faster and faster and faster. But the process of evolution takes a long time. It's not something that we will experience in just this life. Is cycles of and cycles. and the the impulse to create external technology versus internal technology has put us in a place where technology externally has outpaced our inner technology so much so and that's why so we're so. in a fucking tight spot. It's, it's exactly <laughs> if you think of if we were to bring up our internal tech to the level of the degree our outer tech is like. Like, I don't know, like, that's like, that's so much ground that needs to be covered. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, so much ground. It's, it's, uh, it's a huge gap. Yeah. And we, yeah. you know, we're starting with psychedelics, right? We're going right, like, we're, we're beginning, but like, imagine that process. We lost psychedelics 2000 years ago. Yeah. So now we're beginning. <laughs> We've lost 2000 yeah. years in that particular. And we, did, and we did it as children. Yeah. Like in Egypt, when you were seven years old, here you are, mushrooms. Blue lotus. Blue <laughs> lotus. So yeah. this, was, yeah. this was your, this was your lifetime in, in chem. Yeah. Right. So you were using the sacred plants and, you know, there were no antigens. teachers. They, the, the teachers gave you a tea. So you would do a ceremony with a tea. You would drink that tea, you start to see, and the teacher would start to ask questions. So mm. it's the opposite. Just come out. Yeah. So, so you would learn through the questions. So the teacher would say, what is this? What is that? Mm. And you would start to see the answer. Mm. So it was the opposite. And then when the effect was gone, you discuss about the answer. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's been my education for the last 24 years. You know, I had, I was educated all through high school, didn't know shit. And then I went on my first, I sat with my first real teacher who was not a shaman, but a sitter, a sitter at the highest level. And the difference between a sitter and a shaman, shaman will actually influence the energies that are in the space, you know, kind of cultivate, create. A sitter is actually neutral and gave me a tea. And the tea was psilocybin, MDMA, Hmm. and gave me a tea and then allowed me to just find 
the answers, mm-hmm. you know, and that started me on my own quest of finding the knowledge mm-hmm. internally. Yeah. And so that's, and that's also one of the technologies for this, these inner sciences, which have been shut down and cut off, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of the things that could help accelerate our growth and learning is now we're able to not only harvest those technologies from our localized area, but through global trade and travel mm-hmm. and, and conversation, new possibilities of these medicines as have emerged. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's the, you know, I've talked on this podcast before about the God bomb medicine that to my knowledge, maybe somebody else was doing it, but nobody was talking about it. And I'm pretty got my ear to the ground, a combination of a certain, you know, series of ingredients that create a power and a way to actually be with somebody as they move through that process to discover their own inner truths. And this was part of the mystery school kind of concept that was all the way back, you know, Mm -hmm. when we focused on inner sciences versus exterior sciences. Yeah. It was all about discovery. Like one of the, one of the hardest tasks that we had was uh, to live in darkness like in caves or hidden, so no light, um, to awaken the light within. So it was, it was very tough. Some of part of the, of the processes, um, uh, there were initiations. There were initiations all the time, but we were children. Like, um, they said you had to experience all of this before you were 14. If you, if after 14 cycles, you didn't do that, you would be um, linked to the perception of the outer reality. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it will be very complicated for you to relate with yourself and you will relate all, all the things with the, with the others. So uh, that's why if you don't know yourself before you're 14 years old, you will only, only know yourself through others. That's so, so that's why when you were 14, you were an adult. In that, in that civilization, with 15, you could be mother, you could be father, you could rule a country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, that's why the perception that we had is that we live a lot. Because when you were 50 years old, it was like you were an elder, mm-hmm. like a very, very elder. No, you knew so many things and you, you understood so many things. Now we are 30 something, 40 and we're starting the path. <laughs> so, well, and that's, and what know, we should do is yeah. to heal the childhood, the traumas that our mm-hmm. parents did. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like we spend 40 years trying to heal traumas instead of, you know, becoming one with the God. Right. With God. <laughs> so. Yeah. And that's only, it's only one of the technologies that was kind of shut down and clamped down. It was yeah. also our, the technologies of sexuality. Yeah. The inner technologies of understanding our own eros, our own mm-hmm. erotic impulses, which I'm sure also had a much different trajectory. And what was it like, you know, how did people learn about sex? And how did people like where and how did that ultimately develop as well? Because there's a big reawakening, not only of the psychedelic renaissance, but also sacred sexuality in in its way in magical sexuality, sex magic, Mm -hmm. you know, starting to understand how to harness those energies 
in a powerful, in a powerful, magical, productive way. Yeah. Yeah. In that time, um, um, sex was, uh, they said there are many ways to understand it, but first is reproduction and you, um, they said you need to find the right person to create, to manifest and create reproduction. Then you need to find people that would complete your chakras, let's say. So, um, mm. for that, for that moment, we had one partner that was forever and it was not usually because of love. Like when I, when I met my husband in that life, for example, it was a priest that chose that we should be together because they understood the pattern that we had. Like you are from the clan of water. You are from the clan of earth. So you pour the water on the earth to create this and suddenly we were married. So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, but, um, uh, the classic arranged marriage. Sign. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Water. Uh, so, um, but, um, we were practicing sexuality since, um, we developed like 12 years old, for example. Like we needed to practice to have the ability to connect with our own sexuality, with other sexualities, with, um, reproductive sexuality. So, uh, sex was a way to, uh, restore the magnetical and energetical energy of our, of our, um, own self. So some people choose the path of, um, how do you say it in English? Celibate? Celibacy. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, in order to, uh, to work mainly with the, um, with the whole, with, with the pattern of their own energy. They're called Kundalini. Yeah. With the Kundalini. So it would, it would, uh, be a whole life about that. And it was a choice. It was a, a choice. And, uh, for others, for example, in, in, in our clan, uh, we had many people. Like we were many people. What it do you was, mean? Huh? What do you mean? Like I, I was, um, like mm, we were in a community. Polyamorous. Is polyamorous, you mean? Like many. Many sexual relationships. Yes. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. So in, order, had, in order to balance, there were priestesses in, and priests. in order to balance the chakras, there were many many relationships in order to bring to help support. Yeah. For example, in the temple of Den, uh, of Dendera, which it didn't exist at that time, but the temple of Dendera still teaches or was teaching about um, there were the priestesses and priests that they taught how to use the Kundalini energy to others. So they usually said, okay, this person will live with you for four years or four months or like that to teach you this. And it was like, this person was specific for that task. And then you have to go to another person mm-hmm. for the specific chakras mm-hmm. to awaken a specific type of energy. So I have a, I have a question for you. But it was not love involved yeah. in that. It was only a process, energetical process. So, it's, so it sounds like the 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 civil this chem was organized as an educational civilization. Yeah, is that 
where it was all about, it was all about how it, to become all about, it, all about education, right? All about lifelong learning. Yeah. And Actually, the, the, the people was called mm-hmm. Sut. Sut. Sut means, uh, means the path. And so the, it was along the Nile. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. all the people they needed make, to walk the through journey. the Nile, yeah. make the journey. Mm-hmm. So we call ourselves the, the path. The path. Yeah. So we needed to go through the path and we shouldn't be attached to any one of the steps of the path. So all dimensions, whether it was human sexuality or whether it was agriculture, whatever, everything was integrated in an educational journey. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it was equally important to know how to cook, mm-hmm. how to sing, how to have sex. Mm-hmm. It was equally important for each one of the chakras to be balanced. Mm-hmm. And once you accomplish all that, that took around 33 years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, you would you were considered an elder, a citizen, like a citizen, like a proper citizen, proper citizen. Yeah. What a, I mean. Weren't there still those impulses for just wild love that would just happen that was not educational? Oh, yeah, and, and so what was the place for that type of just like, I fucking love you. And I got this husband over here from Earth Clan and but like, fuck, we're in love. Like, like what, what, what was the place? Like what, what place did that type of love have in, in Kim? I don't know for the. I don't remember exactly for the lower society. We were divided in clans. In our clan, uh, which was Idilian, so we had to work with the elements. So we were divided in four clans mm-hmm. that were the families, representatives of the main four that came to the Nile. Osiris, Seth, uh, yeah, Isis and uh, Nephthys. So we we represented that so we could only and only be related to the element that was complementary to us. Mm. We weren't allowed to be with others. Mm. But it was in that But don't you say that every time something's forbidden, people do it anyways? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were humans. <laughs> Yeah, of course. But, uh, it would be, uh, for, for the other classes that were not part of these four families, it was much more open. And, uh, also for the societies above us, which were like the kings and queens and stuff, they didn't care because they were not on the, on the path of what we called the suit, the one that we had to, um, it was like the difference between like the caste system with the Brahmins and the warriors. Yeah. The warriors stop some matter, but the Brahmins have to stay with the Brahmins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was something like that. Yeah. So in the not lower society, but those who were um following different gods, like the the polytheist the polytheist part of the society. So the ones that honor agriculture, the ones that honor the fisher, mm-hmm. uh the fishes, the ones that so they didn't have that problem. So they used to have gatherings and orgies and, uh, because they were exchanging all this. Mm-hmm. 
Like, did you ever, did you ever sneak out of Water Clan and just go like, I'm gonna check this orgy out? <laughs> there's, there's a fucking orgy grave going on down, down over here in the, in the French, in the French quarters over here. So this shit is we, fucking lit. We had, no, we, 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 we were supposed to be very responsible. <laughs> yeah. We were supposed to be were very you, responsible. Were you, were you? Were you, I, do you have any memories of this I was, moment? I was. You were, you were responsible. I was very responsible, but, uh, we could do anything with the kind of water on earth. Yeah. So that was crazy. <laughs> so you had your own, <laughs> so you had your own wild and crazy kind of. Yeah, of course, because it was natural. Now the trauma of sexualities is because, mm. because we had 2000 years of three main religions that forbid us to fuck. Yeah. But before that, Roman Empire, the politism, um, all the other traditions that were polytheistic, they had no traumas with that because nobody was telling you, you have to keep yourself for someone or you have to, you know, it was different. Uh, now we have to deal with our personal traumas of our traditions and cultures and, and many things that, um, that are related to um, um, to this re- religious thing of um, possession, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's something that um, uh, you cannot do this because God don't don't like it. You can it, when we were polytheistic, every god wanted something different. So there were not like this idea of. Mm. Of following only one rule, you had like thousands of rules, so yeah. you could take whatever you you wanted. Um, that's why in those traditions it was very common homosexuality. It was very common uh, orgies. Um, it was very natural that the the whole thing was natural because it was it was a way of exchanging energy. Mm-hmm. It was not, uh, um, yeah. Even though they had sacred sexuality. So sacred sexuality was related to the creation. Mm-hmm. So it was, I have, I have to create myself in another level of consciousness. So I choose someone to bring me into that level of consciousness. There were no problems of connectivity with anyone, mm-hmm. but when you were trying to reach creation, yeah, you needed to have the person that matches with your chakras. So that's what they call, you have to be with this clan. You that was the version of the sacred union for the sake of the, of the child, the progeny. Exactly. Yeah. The child being your own soul, being their own soul. Huh? The child being their own developed, their own exactly. development. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's, that's what they call the sacred union because it was about the balance, the connection, and the creation. Um, but culturally, there was no uh, repress on on sexuality because sexuality was constant creation and exchange. Mm. But as I said, for some levels of society, it was like, no way. You shouldn't touch someone that is from fire. Mm. You can burn, you know, these kind of things. Right. Yeah. So, so when you've now, when you've stepped into this life and this life has, 
you know, thousands of years of stories that were potentially seeded from this monotheistic, shame-ridden religious structure. Obviously, you've either chosen or were born to live a homosexual path, right? Like, it's just your nature. Yeah. And and then, so that's already, you know, divergent from the, but also fully accepted, thankfully, thank God, we're at this place, at most places in the in the world. But as you interface with the with the stories, the stories of just being with one partner and that partner and you guys possessing, owning each other's erotic impulses and all of that, has that just never really landed for you because of your memory of the way it used to be? Or what do you what do you think about? Because these stories have momentum and these stories are now, you know, putting us in a situation where that story is starting to deteriorate. Divorce rates above 50%. Those who stay together, most of them unhappy. You can chart graphs of the eros between them, the erotic impulse and like Wednesday Martin's book, Untrue, you know, kind of declining or falling off a cliff and then infidelity rates, yeah. extraordinarily high, you know. So all of these things are trying to support a story that may not actually be the best guiding story to go by. It's, um, we, as I said, we are coming out from 2000 years of Pisces, which is the two fishes. So you need the two in order to organize everything. Now we are going to Aquarius, which is network. So when people starts to wake up, the need of being two disappear. Because that's why people, when they start to connect and realize about their own lives, um, they start to go or against their older traditions or trying to um, live a different way. So you start to wake up. So you are not bounded by the culture that you previously had. Yeah. Uh, that's why people get divorced and people start to to... Right now is so fast the process that a person has that before it took 50 years for someone to realize something. And now in a weekend, you can just have a huge realization and in 15 days man. change it <laughs> at Burning Man. Maybe. So, um, so, uh, things are happening so fast right now and our civilization is experiencing all the processes that before took thousands of years to learn in just a few weeks. Yeah. So that's why um we are experiencing this uh disconnection from the two and started to go to the net. And that's why a lot of people is is like weaving this connection of people instead of just looking for that someone. Um mm-hmm. so um I think it's right now we are living the trauma of that because we don't know how to do it properly. Mm-hmm. We don't know. I li- look, I lived the trauma of that. You know, I decided like I get it. I understand this from my own in- inner exploration. Mm-hmm. You know, it was twelve years of inner exploration, no, fourteen or something like that. Fourteen years of inner exploration. I was like, fuck, I get it. You know, this story, the stories. It's not the story. It's not the story that that makes sense to me. So I was like, I'm gonna be polyamorous. Yeah. And I was like, I got this. It makes perfect sense. You know, love should not be 
Eros should not be possessed by one person. There's so many possibilities and so many things that can happen. And I went in there and I was just fucking roasted. I was still just 2000 years of right. So even though your frontal cortex is Aquarian, Oh you, man, still carrying carrying all that. and and tormented and and broken up inside and so much pain. Eventually, you know, like a initiation, like a sure. nonstop ceremony, I ultimately evolved through the crucible of breaking and opening, breaking and opening, and got better at it and was able to understand it. But it was still like trying to step into that new story was tortuous. Yeah. You know, in the Nile, the first temple that you visit is the root chakra. And the last one is the crown chakra in the pyramids. So, but um, we tend to believe that these are like opposite when actually one is ruling the other. So when you go to the root chakra, you learn about spirituality, when you go to the crown chakra, you learn about sexuality. And why is that? Because the hypothesis gland, which is called pituitary here, and um, the pituitary gland is the one that controls the genitals. And the genitals are the ones that calm the pituitary. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. So why? Because the spirit is asking to be manifested into the matter. So your higher self is trying to manifest and your genitals are trying to survive and calm, like stay still in order to produce. So they balance to each other. What happens? When we disconnect from the spirit, we let all the forces of the spirit just into our bowls. Which means that <laughs> he's like, no. <laughs> Which means that we divided the process of the spirit mm. into need and purpose. Mm. So in the middle you have the solar plexus, which is the ego. So um when we disconnected from the spirit in all this two thousand years of history, or 5,000 years of history, let's say, Mm. what started to happen is that we were more controlled by our genitals than our spirit. Mm. So because they are so interconnected, we can confuse the purpose of it with the need of it Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we are not connected. Mm. So that's what creates the trauma. Because you have an idea of, oh, this is how it should be. But actually, what is ruling that need is your balls. So, so it's like, uh, because we were disconnected from the spirit, the spirit knows, oh yeah, everyone is love. Everything is connected. But you can feel that not having sex. Mm-hmm. Why you have the need of having sex? Because the body was disconnected from the actual spirit. So because we are not interconnected in this way, like we used to become like with the Kundalini and everything. Mm-hmm. So we are, we are pulled by the need. We all are because we have been, our bodies have been 2000 years or more 
is connected from that. So we can confuse the sexuality with spirituality because we are disconnected and all the spirituality went to our balls. And now, now when we try, when we understand that sexuality is a way to the spirit, but we have been forbidden to have sex for 2000 years. Now we want just to fuck. <laughs> so the first two, 200 years of Aquarius will be a trauma of sexuality because we have to release all the spirituality that was stuck in our balls. And what's the equivalent for balls for a woman? It's the same. Pussy. No, it's the ovaries. The ovaries. So ovaries and uh, mm. eggs, well, their eggs is the same. So just uh, our, our balls actually are a malformation of uh, ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So we, we are a mistake in evolution. <laughs> a necessary mistake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, so, so this disconnection of the actual spiritual sexuality, which is bring the spirit into the matter, made us confuse sometimes that having sex is love. Because we were disconnected. And, but actually having Sex is bringing the spirit into the matter. So that's why it was the sacred sexuality is what not, it was not about pleasure. It was pleasure is the result of the connectivity of all the chakras together. Mm -hmm. So the spirit can be manifested. Mm -hmm. So in sexuality, you experience the same thing as with ayahuasca. When you do that. When you do it right. When you do it right. Otherwise, it's just need of expressing something. And uh, I think that that's why to teach sexuality again and to be again expanded, to be connected with others in a free way, you have to go through the trauma that you have been Mm. holding for 2,000 years. Um, The belly bottom down is seen. So it's still there. So everything that happens from the belly button down, even if we like it, our body interprets it as sin, as a mm. conflict. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have jealousy, conflicts, and and trauma from that. So even if our head understands what is the the pattern of it, and we say, "Oh yeah, love is is expansion, is everything," every one of our cells and some patterns in our brain still don't get it because it's only in the need of expressing something that I was forbidden for so long. So it creates confusion mm. and trauma. So yeah. That makes a lot of fucking sense. So it takes time. It takes time. <laughs> it takes time. The As we're wrapping up, it's been a, a long day. We're going deep into the night here. And, uh, the, the last thing I want to touch on is, you know, I'm wearing this necklace now and I've described this necklace. It's about relationships that I have that are not sexual in, in, in nature, but they're deep, deep, close friendships and alliances. And this is like a symbol of my inner circle of my like closest friends and, and my own tribe within a greater tribe. You know, there's many more people that are not represented on this necklace who I love very much. But 
What was the, what was the idea around you? Cause you probably had a much greater sense of community for your whole civilization, but were there, was there anything involving like developing the relationships with your friends, your brothers, your sisters? You know, what was that psycho technology, the inner technology, the fruition of that? How did that look like the deepest friendships that you had and how you cultivated those and, and the importance of those? Community. We um, we interpreted that family was not the blood. So, um, so we lived in communities, not families. At least that's how all the ancient traditions used to do. Like, um, um. Every, every woman was a mother, a sister, uh, every man was a brother. Um, so. I mean, you see that in Hawaii, you have the Ohana, everybody's auntie, everybody's yeah. uncle. You know, there's this idea that it's beyond just the blood, that mm-hmm. there's some other sacred bond. Yeah. There. Yeah, I think that, that, um, that the idea of just the family was created because of the of the um, uh, the king and feudalism uh, mm-hmm. tradition and, and of the, the hereditary blood. transfer of wealth yeah and title exactly and yeah so they said we have to create a family separated from other families and stuff like that and by separating clans the process of empire leads to greater and greater separation a clan is so much more potent than a than a couple than a than a little family yeah right I mean. Mm-hmm. So much more power when you're a clan than if you're just a, an isolated family. Hmm. And as I said before, for, for us was we were divided in in elements, and we only can cross with certain elements. I had my sister was another element, but even though we were in certain moments together doing stuff specifically for. Uh, our lives, but um, but I had my family as the water and the water plant, and she had mm-hmm. she had her family as the air. So even if we were the same blood, our clans were more important that than the family we were born in. Um, so um, because that creates a connection through time. And through, um, like, like a, like a soul that holds each other beyond time, beyond space. Mm. Um, yeah. So we, uh, that's how we lived it. Yeah. That way. Yeah. John, what, what would you like to, uh, what would you like to ask Matthias as we kind of bring this to a close? Anything that's sparked in your own mind or anything you'd like to offer hearing this? really deep remembering of of sacred world and sacred relationship i, I think I'm, I'm i'm curious about how how do you suggest as we as this cycle is repeating itself again how do you suggest that people prepare themselves what is what does that mean what does that mean for that to to happen again and, and what does it mean for people to 
come into right relationship with where we are, despite the obvious gap that we have between ourselves and, and, and how it was in previous times. Yeah. The, um, well, of course that there is something, uh, today that we are, it's a global thing that now we have to take care of the planet. It's a whole, it's the whole thing. Before it wasn't, this is now a, a global civilization. Exactly. exactly. Before it was a region. Uh, yeah. During the Atlantean time, it was, it was a whole. But after Atlantis, there was regions. Right. And we were protecting regions and connecting with regions. Now it's a whole again. Yeah. We are repeating the same right. pattern. Right. The cycle of our worldwide civilization that connected everything through pyramids mm-hmm. that we have the same cultures, similar languages. And now we all kind of speak kind of the same languages, mm. even if each one has their own. Um, so it starts to be global again. Yeah. We started to talk about the net again. Yeah. About nodes. Um, so, um, we started to recreate what Atlantis was, but in the mood of Aquarius, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and globally, we have this thing now of taking care of the planet, mm-hmm. which is, again, from the point of view of we human humans have the task of save the world, you know, which is a whole story that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that this is the first step for people to engage with the planet and start to wonder how to take care of the planet. So that is the first step to become the planet. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I, mm-hmm. what I suggest, what I would suggest is for people to start understanding the main subtle things like why do we have 24 hours? Why there is a North Pole physical and one magnetical? Why, um, the seasons change? Um, to understand why the moon is there, why we have 12 months. So there are so simple, such a simple things that you don't even study in school. Mm. Like when they, when you learn about that in school, it's not powerful. It's just like data, but it's not powerful. You don't, you don't feel it. You don't learn how to connect with that. And, and, I think one of the most important things to understand is that, uh, we are not trying to awaken this life because we have to accomplish something as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. This is in every day we have this practice that we are going to sleep. We wake up. We do stuff in the day. We go to sleep again. Mm-hmm. So this first cycle helps you understand that you have you can do stuff and there's a moment to relax mm-hmm. and you can. So, uh, when you die, it happens the same and the cycle is constant and understanding the cycles helps you to know that you are not, um, late, that you are not, mm-hmm. um, uh, failing anything that it doesn't matter if you don't accomplish that in this life. Because 
<clears throat> when a branch cannot give a fruit in this third cycle, maybe next summer it will. Mm-hmm. But maybe it needed to go inside and store energy for them to blossom again. So um, I would suggest to take the chance to look into nature because we we went outside the cycle of nature. We don't understand how nature repeats itself once and again. We we lost that connectivity on how humans also do the same. How civilizations arise and fall is the same as summer and fall. And it's, it's exactly the same thing. So um, uh, religions also do the same. Is the process go up, go down? A civilization, a country, a family, a relationship. So it's all cycles. It's, it's constant like that. So as soon we can engage with that, we are not going to get enlightened. We are going to live in harmony. Yeah. So first thing to understand, don't do this to get enlightened mm-hmm. <laughs> or to finish something or to arrive to somewhere mm-hmm. because there is no, there is no way to no. go. The earth is rounded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if you're running a ride in a yeah. straight line, you yeah. arrive the same place. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So that that kind of that wisdom of of um, learning what it means to start harmonizing with cycles, mm-hmm. like that the. the mm. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, this is what they, when they talk about Kala Chakra, the time wheel, the awakening, the enlightenment happens through the cycle, like through the cycles. You harmonize yourself with the cycles and it happens naturally in its, in its own good time. But if you try and be somewhere else in some other time, rather than learning the lessons that we have to learn right now. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, for me, when I started to remember when I was 12 years old, what my life 12,000 years ago, I was desperate because I was like, my gosh, like I need to do this and this and this mm. right now in order to accomplish what I couldn't do in 12,000 years. Mm. And suddenly I said, 12,000 years. <laughs> like I have time, mm-hmm. you know, and I remember a very high priest who was kind of an alien. Kind of an <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I was, we were, we wasn't supposed to look into their eyes. And, <laughs> and I did. And he, he, he said, um, he said, now because of you have seen my eyes, you will live with the burden, with the burden of knowing that you have to wait 12,000 years to do it. Mm. Mm. And and I remember that time uh, when he said, I said, why so long? And said, there's a time for everything. Mm. We are not in a rush. Ooh. We will see again. But you just have to do other things in the middle. So... <laughs> he was he was so calm Ugh. about waiting twelve thousand years to just do something. I'm so impatient. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so. I guess <laughs> also another realization that's coming here is, you know, well, the cycles of our civil our civilization is is impatient. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the, yeah. the thing is, is we, we are harmonized with these cycles and they're in our nervous systems. Yeah. I don't know if you're that. I mean, yes, but if you, if we run that rhythm, we feel impatient because the world is the world is, us up. Yeah. yeah. It's, the civilization is like, we have to do something new. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I understand that I'm a product of our culture and civilization. Yeah. However, from this other new perspective that's washing over me and, and I mean, it's like everything you, the things that you're bringing though, Aubrey, are reflections of slowing down. It's true. Right? Like it's a reflection of remembering. Yeah. Of remembering. Exactly. Yeah. That, that if we want to go faster, we actually have to go slow. That's why you have to leave the trauma. Yeah. To slow down. Yeah. 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 Wow. Mm. Well, this is a <laughs> wild fucking podcast. So let's suffer. <laughs> <laughs> and slow down. <laughs> mm. Anything else uh, either one of you guys want to add before we uh, drift off into our little sleep death <laughs> that awaits us? See you in 12,000 years. Civilization that developed within. Do you appreciate that your civilization is going to fall, but you understand that you reincarnate not just into... Okay. You didn't let it end. He said, see you in 12,000 years. <laughs> I know, but that wasn't the end. Oh. It's okay. It's at the end. It's at the end. Oh, my God. Okay, we're going to do this. It'll be a little past 6.30 when we're done with this one. It's called Consciousness Rising. What did the ancients know that we do not? And where can our consciousness travel? Understand how everyday occurrences are markers for intuitive capabilities and how intuition helps heal our planet. And there's 19 people that are engaged here. Dr. Carl Johan Kallerman. Kallerman. Mm-hmm. Haven't heard from Kallerman. Haven't heard from him for a long time. Dr. Jude Curavan, Brenda Dunn, Dr. Joe Gallenberger, Dr. Roger Jean-Chi, Dr. Claire Johnson, Dr. Julia Mass- Mossbridge, Sky Nelson Isaacs, Penny Pierce, Dr. Dean Radin, Hollister Rand, John Stewart Reed, Dr. Glenn Rain. Rain. Dr. Beverly Rubick, David Salvage, Stephen A. Schwartz, Dr. Scott M. Taylor, Suzanne J. Wilson, Dr. Mauro Zapahera. And we're just going to, Zapatera, excuse me. We're going to just get started. This is an hour and three minutes. Oh. I read plenty fast, but Rama didn't find it yet. (laughs) Consciousness rising. Yeah. Um. There's a hyphen between consciousness and rising. (sighs) That really stretched us out, I would say. That conversation. Yeah. Yeah. 
As we're solar beings, that's okay. how long does the sun live, you know? Billions? Trillions? Not. You don't know. No, I don't know nothing. <laughs> here we go. All right, here we go, everybody. Whether our minds are able to access a connection independently of distance and time. If you get that contact, realizing that there is a source to everything. We don't have the English words to describe what happens in that experience. What is this showing me? What is it showing us as human beings about who we are? We can use this as a form of guidance that lights our way along the path of life. traveled in Egypt many times, but on this particular occasion, early in 1996, we found ourselves in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid all alone, which was a very unusual occurrence. You know, prior to this, we've always been surrounded by so many other people. Well, for those of you who've actually experienced the king's chamber, you'll know that it has an extraordinary acoustic quality. This sarcophagus is a block of granite, 3.7 tons, that's been hollowed out. It's supposed to be the interment for King Khufu or Cheops. Many people disagree with that concept, but nevertheless, if you strike the side of it with your fist, it rings like a low-pitched bell. And of course, you know, as an acoustics engineer at that time, I was fascinated by the sounds that that sarcophagus made. So I'd always wanted to lie in the sarcophagus and make sound. And never until this time in early 96 did I have the opportunity. Anyway, I did lie in the sarcophagus and I made a vocal glissando. And at one particular frequency, every cell in my body seemed to tingle and a wave of acoustic energy washed up and down my body and goosebumps broke out, you know, all over my flesh. And uh, it really got my attention, and I thought, wow, you know, having at that point in my career um, spent almost 30 years studying sound in various acoustics environments, I'd never come across anything quite like this. So when we got back to the UK, I made inquiries with Egyptian uh, authorities. It was not easy. But, you know, several months later, I returned to Egypt armed with lots of acoustics instrumentation, about three weeks before going out to Egypt in 97, I severely injured my lower back. And oh my goodness, the pain was very severe. And it was so severe that I actually thought I was going to have to cancel the whole mission. But you know, I paid a lot of money to the Egyptian Antiquities Department. So I just gritted my teeth and somehow I managed to get myself into the Great Pyramid. 
This experiment consisted of stretching a membrane across the open top of the sarcophagus, this granite box. And in the bottom of the granite box, this time, I had a small loudspeaker. Sprinkling sand onto the membrane itself would create the cymatics experiment that I wanted to conduct. Cymatics is the science of sound made visible. We switched on the electronic oscillator and expected to see a series of geometric patterns. Up to that point in my career, that's all I'd ever seen, just simple geometric patterns. What happened was that a whole series of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs began to emerge in the sand. I actually had no idea, I had no expectation of seeing ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs on this membrane, right? But after about 20 minutes of making sound in the sarcophagus and taking all these photographs and seeing all these amazing ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs appearing on the membrane in these sand patterns, I suddenly realized that all the pain in my lower back had left me. Well, in that moment, I actually, the thought that went through my mind was, I know what this is. This is endorphins. You know, these are endorphins, you know, flowing in my bloodstream. I'm so happy seeing these and excited, you know, seeing these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And um, and I thought, well, when I get back out of the pyramid and get back to the hotel, the pain will come back. But the pain never did come back. So that really got my attention. I thought, you know, this is extraordinary. How could the pain just suddenly vanish? Remembering that I'd been in severe pain for up to three weeks before going out to Egypt. The other thing, of course, was that the cymatics experiment was phenomenally successful. Seeing ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs appear in sand on a membrane in the king's chamber. I mean, who would have thought it? You know, I certainly didn't expect that at all. This seemed to be designed. This didn't seem to me to be happenstance. You know, I thought that somehow, for some reason, the ancient Egyptians had decided to create this effect. What we're realizing now as cosmologists and scientists across many fields of research is coming to stand alongside these ancient spiritual understandings that actually the energy and matter and space and time of our universe are expressions of a deeper reality. So they are the appearance of our universe, but they're not its foundational truth. And its foundational truth is that our universe emerges from realms of essentially cosmic causation, intention. So our universe has meaning, a purpose, and a journey. The ancients were very smart. I mean, they were at least as smart as we are. They just had less stuff. These ancient cultures who weren't so distracted by developing new inventions and you know, all the stuff that we love and do all the time. What was it that they had that we don't have? And what has been lost as we've gained what we've got? I came to Mexico the first time in 1979 to Chichen Itza, which is a World Heritage site with two or three million people every year visiting. And was stunned to see that their main pyramid was dedicated to a snake. I mean, what's that, you might say? Then, of course, I've learned later that the mighty city of Teotihuacan outside of Mexico City 
with central pyramid is devoted to Quetzalcoatl, the plumed serpent. Then you can go around the world, the biblical story about the serpent. You know, the aborigines in Australia, they worshipped a rainbow serpent as their creator god. In China, serpentine dragons were the big thing and divine matters, so to speak. People all over the world would look upon serpents as being the creator gods or dragons, maybe. So it's clear there's something here modern people have lost their contact with. Our state of consciousness is completely different from what it was a thousand, two thousand years ago, and even more so if you go back 50,000 years ago. And what that means is that in the state of consciousness, they, as well as all our ancient people, saw that, of course, there are serpents and dragons. They were living in a world of spirits that most of us cannot see in our current default state of consciousness. But in their default state of consciousness, it was possible to see it and experience it. That means that they had access to a domain of experience that, for the most part, we don't have anymore. Shamanic peoples, and I would say indigenous peoples in general, they look upon reality as multidimensional. In the default state of modern people, you know, it's just the rational physical reality around them, so to speak. A spiritual experience is about seeing things that are outside of our physical reality. Where do I go when I die? Such a beautiful question. And one of the answers is that you don't. Your body goes in the ground. We understand that. Your personality diffuses in whatever way that it does. But you are already everywhere. So how is it that you think you're going to go somewhere? You've always been there. People seem to be more concerned about what it takes on the way to death, what the experience might be, how you die. So not necessarily what comes after it, but what leads up to it. Long illnesses, and how might that be more difficult than dying all at once, let's say, or dropping dead of a heart attack? And is one way of dying better than another way of dying? And the spirits will even bring this up. They will discuss the experience of what leads up to death. How someone demonstrated their love by caring for a person. What were the conversations that were had? We have such issues around dying. It seems that that's where the issues are, not around death itself as much. We think that we are losing people. We think that there is no way back to the relationship, that the relationship is lost, the communication is lost, the physicality of that person is lost. What I have learned over time is the physicality is even part of our spirit relationship. So the spirits will still have an effect here in the physical world, because after all, they are energy and energy changes form, but it doesn't disappear. It isn't created. And so in this way, things in our life can move. We can be inspired. There can be continued connection with those who have passed. My mother passed a few years before my dad, 
And one day I woke up from sleep and clear as AT&T can make it, a voice, my mom's voice said, your dad's going to die soon and it's no big deal. And he died soon. Uh, so she was giving me a little heads up. All the senses can be involved rather than they hear a voice. Like telepathically, when my grandfather comes to me, he's been long gone, uh, I smell Captain Black pipe tobacco. Some people, their grandmother's cookies. When I was speaking to a group of college students and giving messages, the physicist Niels Bohr showed up next to a young man who didn't believe in this work at all. He was kind of gobsmacked because he was writing a paper on Niels Bohr's work and how it could be furthered on this planet now. There was a musician who came to see me and Woody Guthrie showed up with her. Surprise, surprise. Well, it turns out she was doing her first concert outdoors and it was Woody Guthrie music. And he was there inspiring her. Spirits we do not personally know, but may be connected through their work or kind of a through line of what they started here on this planet. We can be inspired and we can be helped by them as well. When we die, we do not die alone, which is very important for people to know, especially if they can't be with a loved one. Those in spirit who have gone before are actually present with the person who is dying, no matter how quickly that person may die, no matter how tragically, no matter how suddenly, no matter how traumatically, there is a group that is present helping that person to pass. Now, in some dramatic situations, uh, two young children were killed by their father, who then killed himself. When I spoke with these children, the father was not present. So I spoke with just the boys. So there is also protection, separation, different frequencies, depending where people fall and what people's intentions are. So we are not forced to be with the people who have maybe affected our passing. I've also spoken with families who have gone down together in a plane, and they have been together. They held hands all the way through and were met by family members who reached out and grabbed their hands. And they walked. They they didn't even crash. They were out of their bodies before the crash even happened. So know that each person is being taken care of. The role of religion can be facilitative. Um, and at some point, it may be like a pair of shoes you've grown out of. So be discerning, you know. No baby out with the bathwater. Uh, there's mystical traditions in every religion that uh, talk about ecstasy states, talk about a lot of what we're talking about here. And then there's the uh, pedantic, legalistic type of religious thought. In karma, what happens is that uh, you you have many lives. When I spent time in Thailand, I really dealt with the idea of karma. Well, who decides how we're going to become conscious again or if we're going to come back to this world or you know when people say you're like if you're a good person you'll have a better next life part of what the spirits do when they speak to us is show us how to be free from repetitive patterns which can look like karma but may be more unhealed 
inheritances that we have received from parent to child. And whenever it looks like we're stuck in a pattern we can't get out of, we may call that karma. Why would you even want to come back here, like to have a better car and a better house? And given the fact that there's probably no time, who says that you get better in order? Maybe you are already as good as you can get, and it's your job to get less better every time. I don't know. We get to be thoughtful about these things. That's one of the things that happens with people who meditate is, think, well, if I'm not going to think about the past or the future, what am I going to think about? Well, I'll think about the nature of being. I actually hid the abilities that I had for many years because I wanted to fit in. I worked in uh, university administration. I worked in corporate human resources for a major company. And I guess life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. I had a near-death experience. And after that, it rearranged my priorities about what's important to me in life, in afterlife. So now I'm devoted to teaching people how to make their own direct connection with their guides, with their beloved people and pets and spirit, with their their own soul, the higher self. My girlfriend and her son were in this horrific car accident. Mary Fran was killed outright. And her son, Nolan, who just turned seven, had this, this mortal head wound. They, you know, put him in intensive care. And um, he was in that space for six days. Uh, he never regained consciousness, but um, he was fighting for his life. What happened to me was I had anaphylaxis and went into full shock where my breathing stopped and my heart stopped. And fortunately, I was at the doctor's office when that happened and was given injections to come right back. So I didn't know I could call it near-death experience because there was no operating table and no flatline. And in those days, I didn't even know who to talk to about it. The morning of the sixth day, um, Mary Fran's sister and I had to shift at from 3 to 5 a.m. in the morning. We went and we sat with Nolan. Hearing's the last sense to go. So we were, um, we were talking to him the whole time. And we told him that um, we loved him very much. And that he had been such a brave boy to try to stay with us and to be with us. And he was really fighting hard. But if his mother came, I remember she had died in the car accident six days before. But if his mother came, it was okay that he could leave us and go with her. My throat started honking like a goose. And then it started closing and then everything else went in slow motion. Two doctors walked in. The same technician that had been doing the skin test with me came back with another technician and all four of them were moving in slow motion. To me, my perception was they're barely moving. When he flatlined, um, what I experienced was Mary Fran crossing the veil, coming to her son, and scooping him up out of his physical body. Somehow, I got to feel that. Somehow, I got to be 
with them as they were having this reunion. And it was this, this glorious um, expression of love between mother and child. And then there was sort of like this popping sound, sort of like if you hear somebody pop uh, the cork on a bottle of champagne, but it felt like it was off in the distance, but it was me leaving that body. I stepped backwards and up a little bit off the floor. And I remember looking at the back of my head and I had this, this weirdest thought. You don't know what you're going to do in a near-death experience. Nobody prepares you for that, right? And I looked at my hair and thought, I've got to fix that spot right there. And like, whoa, wait, I'm looking at the back of my head. And then to my surprise, the two of them turned to me and came over and embraced me. And then the three of us lifted and went to the flight. All the medical professionals continued to move in slow motion. But now I noticed they had changed. Of course, it's my perception that changed. They looked flat, like cardboard cutouts. They looked one-dimensional. Their eyes were just like dead. There was nothing there. Where I was felt more real. And I heard this beautiful music. These tears are a reflection of this mixed emotion of um, the death of two people that I really cared about, that I loved, and and tears of the most amazing, wondrous, loving universe that's out there, that is this far from us, that is where we go when we lift out of our physical body, and I got to be there. I felt the arms of my grandfather who has passed. I felt him around me, and I just knew it was him. And I was like, oh, I want to go with him. Let's let's go see where that music's coming from. The three of us were there for a while. And then at some time, and I don't know what time means because I'm at a spot where it doesn't seem to make sense anymore. But at some point, they turned and left and went further into the light, and then I came back to my physical body. And then I heard this very robotic voice say, your work hasn't started yet. And I was just starting to see all these beautiful colors, and next thing I know, I'm back in the body. They had an injection in me. There was a technician holding me up on this side and one holding me up on this side because they don't want you to lie down. They want to hold you up. And all of a sudden, the doctor said, um, she's breathing. I had bilocated. I was with Mary, Fran, and Nolan in the light, and I was in my physical body at the same time. So I had two distinctly separate consciousnesses. I I split and was in two locations at once. And I know this because I have I have such a clear memory of being with Mary Fran and Nolan in the light. And I have an incredibly clear memory of being in the room with all of the grieving relatives. I mean they're holding each other and hugging each other and crying on each other's shoulder. And I realize that my face is showing this the love of the universe was wanting to break out of me. And um, 
in my face was entirely inappropriate because I'm in joy, absolute joy at where they are and what I've been able to experience that I know it's going to be misread by the people in the room. So I, I wind up covering my face with my hands until I can compose myself. And that's going on at the same time as I'm with them in the light. And let's just say that's not part of the lexicon of the Presbyterian tradition. It's the idea that we can, um, that in the moment of our greatest grief, I'm in the moment of my greatest joy. And then I'm in two locations at once. And I can have um, complete communion with Mary, Fran, and Nolan, and communion with whatever all that is at the same time. I didn't have words for that for the longest time. Near death is when you start to take that journey of dropping the veil and going into the other side of life, but you don't get all the way there. You get pulled back into the body. So for me to tell you, I know exactly what heaven is like, the other side, whatever you want to call it, from a near-death experience, doesn't really work. It's sort of like I fly from Phoenix to Singapore. I get to Singapore. I get off the plane. I walk around the airport. And then I get right back on the plane back to Phoenix. I couldn't tell you a thing about Singapore, but the airport's nice. DMT is dimethyltryptamine. That is a molecule that's found. It's widespread in the animal kingdom. It's used a lot in like shamanic rituals for mystical experiences and things like that. Um, and we synthesize it. We make it. And new cool research has showed that it's made in our brain. It's made in our choroid plexus. It's made in the pineal gland. And what endogenously, endogenous means, you know, what's in us ourselves, what it does endogenously, we don't know yet. They did induce, uh, cardiac arrest in a rat and showed that during the cardiac arrest, this level of DMT greatly increased in the visual cortex. So we don't know what that is. It was hypothesized that it, you know, it's present when you're born, when we die and possibly during dream states. So vivid dream states, um, near death experiences. The fact that it was actually increased that it increased in concentration in the visual cortex while these rats were undergoing cardiac arrest is interesting because many people have described near-death experiences where they've seen bright lights, um, you know, or some where there's an image, there's images coming to them. So could that be, right, because an increase in DMT help people have those visions? Lucid dreaming is all about awareness. We're all aware right now in the waking state, we're effortlessly aware and awake and conscious. And in the dream state, very often we just slide down into unconsciousness. But the amazing thing is when we raise our level of awareness in the dream state, then we become conscious and we are then able to interact with the dream as we feel is best. This waking up to the dream state enables us to engage consciously with our deepest unconscious images and emotions. And that is a very powerful thing to be able to do because it means that we can react and respond 
while a nightmare is happening, for example, you know, there are people who, who can just, they will have these recurring nightmares of being chased and then they will manage finally to become lucid in that recurring nightmare. They'll turn around to face their aggressor, their chaser, and they will say, why are you following me? And the person will respond, well, I don't know. I thought you needed me to follow you. You need me for your fear, you know, or something like that. And then the, the dreamer will realize, wow, my fear is self-created to some extent and I can change it. And I don't have to have these nightmares every night. I can change what's happening in my unconscious. And then very often they will then find that in their waking life, they become less anxious because something has shifted. When something shifts inside us on the unconscious level, our waking life shifts as well. This is a dream that we're having. It's a physical vibration dream, daily reality. And then the higher part of the mental realm is inspiration and, you know, getting guides and teachers and, and visions and all kinds of great stuff. All very fluid, higher level mental ideas. So at night, and even during the day, like you may be at your desk and then suddenly something makes you think and you're daydreaming or you're off thinking about something that reminded you of this other thing. And then you come back to your body and you're all, you know. <laughs> so we're in and out a lot, even in the daytime, but at night, especially so, because we can really travel, you know, because the, the left brain's gone to sleep. <laughs> it is not judging anything. It's not in the way. When we wake up inside a dream, it feels almost as if we've been watching a black and white movie and then it suddenly turns to color. Everything is so vibrant. It feels as if the objects are imbued with conscious awareness. We can touch things and they feel super real. We can hear, we can smell, we can taste. I actually know one guy who keeps himself lucid, who stays lucid in the dream by licking things. <laughs> so he tastes whatever the dream tastes of. He'll just lick something uh, to, to raise his consciousness, to, to make him stay lucid in the dream. Because, of course, one of the dangers when you become lucid is you're so excited to be lucid in a dream that you just you lose awareness. You wake up and it's gone. So we have to learn as well how to stay in that lucid state. If you stare at a fixed point in a lucid dream, you're more likely to wake up, perhaps because a lot of lucid dreams take place in rapid eye movement sleep where there's always this little eye movement going on. So to keep that going, just look around and explore the dream, examine the dream, engage with it, you know, touch it um, to, to get that clarity, to keep yourself on that raised level of consciousness. It really helps to reach out and touch something, engage with what's around us. If there's a tree there, go and run your hand down the bark. If you see a friend, give them a hug or just simply rub your hands together. That can really, really help to to just kind of wake you up a little bit more so that you stay lucid for longer. A really good way to begin to have lucid dreams is to try to raise your level of awareness in your waking life. You can do that by asking yourself regularly throughout the day, am I dreaming? Am I dreaming this right now? And really look around and think about it. Don't just dismiss it. Look around. How do we know that we're not dreaming right now? 
You know, this is how real it can be in a dream. Dreams fool us all the time with their reality. You can do reality checks as well. Like you can see, uh, say, okay, well, let's see if I'm dreaming or not. I'll see if I can put my finger through my hand. Yeah. And if you really, really can't, then I guess you're awake. Also the nose pinch where you pinch your nostrils closed. And if we do that when we're awake, we can't breathe through our nose. But if you do it in a dream, you can because you haven't blocked your physical nostrils. You can mix it up with those little kind of reality checks. We can have the feeling that we live an entire lifetime in one lucid dream. Time flows differently. Research studies have been done to see if lucid dreamers can count time the way that we count it. So counting out the seconds. And they're actually pretty good at doing that. So time is a funny thing in general, but also in lucid dreams. Your brain is such an amazing thing. It saves everything you've ever heard. So in my dreams, I used to fly to France. People were speaking in exactly the way they had spoken while I was living in France. And that helped me to really practice uh, my French. When we practice a particular skill in a lucid dream, scientists believe that that strengthens the neuronal pathways in the brain. There was a fist clenching experiment that was carried out. They asked subjects to clench their fists while awake. Uh, clench their fists in their imagination and then to become lucid in a dream and then clench their fist. And so researchers were able to see the fist clenching in a lucid dream will actually light up the same part of the brain as if we did it in waking life. So there's definitely something to this whole connection, this physical connection with what we do in the dream state. To me, it's all real. We are functioning at different frequencies of ourselves in the different dream zones. So if you start recording your dreams and you figure out what you're doing at night, you can start to see what your growth process is all about. Because often a lot of the subconscious stuff will pop up in the dreams that you wouldn't allow yourself to have in the waking state because you have a monitor on it, right? I'm not going to think about that. But at night, sure, it pops right through. So it's very helpful and also for just loosening up your creativity. It's such a nice, wonderful, rubbery state that you can do all kinds of things in there and whatever you want. It's a lot of freedom. So if you play with that, you can start to see, well, I could do that when I'm awake too. You know, so it's very empowering. It's been found that we can improve sports skills when we are lucid in our dream. One guy would magic a swimming pool and he would practice his swim strokes really precisely, really feeling his body moving through the water. And sometimes for fun, he would be a bit playful and he'd make the swimming pool fill with yogurt or honey. The end of the story was that he got the highest mark possible for his swimming. With psychic phenomena, how do you know that you feel anything? It's all about your internal sense of awareness. There's thousands of different kinds of experiences that people talk about. You have clairvoyance, which in its modern euphemism is remote viewing, which is perceiving through space and time. The time part is sometimes called precognition. Sometimes you see backwards in time, so that's retrocognition. Uh, this kind of experience is you go to a place and uh, you see people in period costumes, apparently, and everything looks old. You're wondering, what, what's happening here? Well, it's like a retrocognitive sense of the place, but sometime in the past. 
Precognition is, in my view, a human birthright. And actually, I think there's evidence that other animals have it. But certainly among humans, I think everyone has it. And the question is, can you get conscious of it? And what's your skill level with communicating it to others? And so you can learn that. You can learn to get conscious of it, and you can learn to communicate it to others. It's very much like musical ability. I don't think it's that hard to teach most people how to hum a simple tune, which is, I think, the equivalent of teaching people how to do controlled precognition. Most people can do it, and they're actually kind of impressed with themselves when they do it because we don't we don't usually think we can predict the future, right? But to get to the level of skill so that it's operational and can be used, kind of like to become an opera singer or you know the first violinist in a symphony orchestra, there's a lot of practice involved, and you probably wouldn't practice that much if you didn't have that initial talent. I was a returning student living in the Chicago area after taking several years off to get married and have kids and all that sort of thing. I had recently come across the paper that Hal Putoff and Russell Targ had published about their remote viewing work. They mentioned in the paper that sometimes the recipient could describe the scene before it was selected. And I came up short on that. I said, you know, The distance part doesn't bother me, but the time part, I don't know. That's really hard to swallow. When we study intuition in a science form, often we'll call it remote viewing, because there the person has no way to know the information except for psychically. So there I was, a suburban housewife on a Sunday afternoon folding laundry. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about it, and I said, you know, I'm going to just think about a friend of mine and see if I can figure out where she's going to be at 5.30 this evening. And then I'll call her tonight and find out where she was. The thought had no sooner hit me than I had this image or this feeling of her walking in the woods, which was not something that was typical for her. She would have been bike riding or playing tennis or something. I said, okay. I'll just call her later and see where she was at 5.30. This was at about 4 o'clock or 4.30. Anyway, 5.20 or so comes, the doorbell rings. There's my friend standing outside and saying, you know, I've been going stir crazy and I was thinking it would be nice to go take a walk in the woods. Would you like to come? And after I sort of picked my chin up off the floor, I I was just blown away. Um, I decided this was... This was too much. I had to explore it. I created a protocol uh, for what I call distant viewing in those days. In my back garden of this house that I was in, I laid out a grid that was uh, 12 squares. And I would take mason jars and put things in them and bury them in this grid. I had a mimeograph paper. That's how old this was, mimeographs that was just the grid, and I would send it out to people and say, can you try to locate which square in the grid has something buried there, and can you describe for me what it is? And I discovered that people could do it. A computer may pick a target that no human has seen in California, and the remote viewer may be in Virginia. They will draw that target out with such precision that if you wanted to know say the target was a dish, where the dish was made, and how many kids the the person who packed the dish into the container had, you could find that information out. So you can access all information 
without regard to time or space. You can go forward in the future, back in the past. Most of the researchers who do this kind of work start out with, is this stuff real? My question was, what can you do with it of practical utility? How can you do that? And what is it telling us about who we are as human beings and our place in the universe? There was a huge discussion at that time. Most archaeological finds were made serendipitously. They were doing road work and they revealed a temple or some farmer was plowing in a field and found a burial or whatever. We used this protocol that I had designed in Alexandria, Egypt to locate the Palace of Cleopatra, the Palace of Mark Anthony, the Timonium, the Lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You can see this. It's upon YouTube, the Alexandria Project. You can find it. Watch it happen. Our remote viewer here, Joe McMonagle, has found ancient temple sites in Japan that nobody knew about, has worked with the government for 20 years in their program, and could draw in high detail the uh, inside of a new submarine the Soviets had before it was ever launched. I wouldn't do classified research. I felt that anything we knew about consciousness, given the state of humanity, we ought to make immediately available. Could remote viewers locate an unknown shipwreck on the sea floor? That is, could they look through hundreds of feet of seawater and locate a previously unknown wreck on the seafloor? So I got a chart and I sent it out to 11 people and I said to them, Please go over this chart and locate an unknown sea wreck. That came to be known as Project Deep Quest. I filmed it also. It's up on YouTube. I got Leonard Nimoy to narrate it. We are dancing with parts greater than ourselves uh, that we don't fully understand. That may be our higher self. It may be guides and angels. It may be God. It may be uh, all kinds of things uh, that we're accessing beyond our personality and ego. Precognition and remote viewing are related in the sense that precognition is sort of a larger umbrella term that includes um, multiple ways in which you could be precognitive. So one way is physiologically your body can predict future events that you don't even consciously know it's predicting. Before um, an important event occurs, you might have had the experience of like a zing going through your body, like, wait, something's going on. They did a study based on a factor called interoception. That's when you're able to sense your heartbeat or sense your viscera. Some people are very good at that. Like for reasons I don't understand, I can just sit down and be calm and I can feel my heartbeat all the time. Well, other people can't. So people who are good at that tend to do much, much better in terms of day trading with futures than ones who don't. And so you can learn to pay attention to these, what amounts to signals coming from your body. And yeah, you could get better at it. One of the common ones is you're driving to work one day and you're reaching an intersection. You have a green light. Everything seems to be working fine. You have an internal sense that something's not quite right. So you start slowing down. The people behind you are thinking, what is wrong with you? So you slow down, you slow down. You get to still have a green light and you're going really slow. And suddenly somebody shoots through the red light and would have hit you broadside if you didn't slow down. Maybe that suggests that it's peripheral vision. Maybe you saw something you didn't even realize you saw it. But maybe also you had a premonition that something bad was about to happen. And so you didn't know exactly what it was, but you just slowed down anyway. So we take that into the laboratory, into an experiment we call presentiment, which is not precognition. It's not pre-knowing. 
but it's pre-feeling. Since it's not something that you know, we have to use your body as an indicator of what's about to happen. We measure your heart rate or your skin conductance or your pupil dilation or your brain waves. Sometimes we measure all of them at the same time. Having someone in the room that knows what the target is, is going to make you potentially tune into what they're thinking about instead of the actual event. You can use a random number generator to produce events like showing a picture of a plane crash versus a picture of a pair of shoes. So something more neutral. No one on the planet knows what the target is. And then you can actually get information that you know is free of of anyone else's bias. If, in fact, you're feeling your future physiological state, maybe that like you feel something in your gut that's not quite right. Then before you see one of these negative or, or emotional pictures, maybe the body begins to become more emotional, even though in this case, it's there's no peripheral information at all. It has to come from the future because nobody knows in advance what's about to show up by the design of the experiment. So this experiment has been done many, many times now. You can see beforehand when you analyze the data, the difference between the physiology leading up to the randomly selected emotional image versus the randomly selected neutral image. Virtually every physiological measure that we look at does respond between around one and nine seconds before the image comes up in an appropriate way. That's an example of taking a relatively common experience, putting it into a laboratory context where it's extremely controlled, and that you can exclude all the usual mundane explanations. And what you're left with is apparently the fact that we can know between one and nine seconds or so what is about to happen. Do we look into the future or do we somehow or other tap into the probabilities of a possible future? I don't know the answer to that. I don't believe the future is set and absolute. I think, like everything else, there's a probabilistic aspect to it. Another example is compulsive precognition, where you don't know why you have to do something. You just have to do it. And then once you do it, you come back and you recognize, oh, if I had been there during that time, something horrible would have happened. He's an officer in the military relatively high up. And he's in Iraq in his van, And he was just waiting around for the next thing to happen. And it was really hot. And he was sitting on a cooler of water. So he could absolutely have had some water from the cooler. (laughs) But that's not what he did. He felt compelled. He said, no, I don't want water. I want this kind of iced tea that I have to get up out of here to go get. No, that's ridiculous. I could just have the water. And Nope, I'm going to get the iced tea. So he stands up, he goes and gets the iced tea, comes back. And he can't go back because um, a mortar had landed right near the van. If he had been there, he might have been right in the way of this situation. So that's kind of an example of compulsive precognition. How can you explain a phenomenon that doesn't respond to space and time? That's an anecdotal story. That's not an experiment. The only conclusion I personally can come to is that space and time are not characteristics of the physical world. They are characteristics of our consciousness. Or, as Albert Einstein once said, they're there to keep everything from happening all at once. The basic message is, time doesn't work the way we think it does. And you can get information through time and use that information if you're compelled to and if you feel you have the talent and you want to develop it. If information is flowing from the outside world into you, it's somewhat passive. This would be called ESP. So it's precognition and clairvoyance. If the information is going out from you somehow and changing the world, then it's psychokinetic. 
Most people would define that as affecting matter with your mind. Using your intention to change or manipulate the world in some way outside of yourself. They said explore, experiment, expand, play, you know, to really widen your horizons. We were having a, a time to play with the energies we'd been working with, and we had kind of a gaming night. There were dice there. And I found myself going into that same energy, wide open heart, warm hands, connected to the earth really strongly, but connected with spirit as well. And I found I could roll what I wanted on the dice. Okay. So, uh, you know, seven sevens in a row, that kind of thing. And that's studyable. Some of the things I'm really interested in is when we do PK versus rest, when there's no psychokinesis. What's going on in the brain? So we do a 128 lead EEG on a person's head, and we find real interesting EEG results when the PK is going on versus control or rest times. Most of those things are boring in a lab and tough to do because that one, for example, is 48 seconds on, 48 seconds off, 48 seconds on for 100 trials in a row after spending the half hour getting that EEG on. I'm a psychologist, so I looked at the motivation to keep this really juicy for people so their performance would not rise and then fall and become boring to them. And that's where the Vegas stuff comes in. Because it's definitely exciting when you do it in Vegas and you hit something at 200 million one by chance, you might also have some cash to show as a prize for doing that. In meditation, for example, before I go to a slot machine, I may visualize exactly what I want, such as a royal flush and hearts. That's 160,000 to one by chance. And I'll go down and hit it in the first pull. Okay? So that gives me proof that this is real. I've meditated. I've raised my energy. And when I go down, I'm also checking intuition. Is the time right now? And is this the machine to do it on? If you wanted to understand the data underlying precognition, there's a bunch of information out there. Go to Google Scholar and just look up precognitive abilities. You could also look up predictive anticipatory activity to find any of that information. So go have at it. If what the data were about were about some kind of new drug for some kind of disease, people would be taking the drug for that disease. My experience going into the academic world and giving talks about this stuff to basically people who are largely interested but skeptical First of all, they'll ask questions, well, have you thought of this? And often the have you thought of this will be like the most basic thing that of course you thought of, but but they're just learning to think about this, so they're gonna they should ask, right? But after the talk, they'll come up to you and one by one say, Can I talk to you afterwards? Can we just talk privately? I just wanna tell you my experience I had about this dream that was so real and then it happened the next day and then the next person, I just have your card and then you get an email. I didn't wanna say it in front of anyone else, but I had this experience and the night before my aunt died and she wasn't sick and da 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 and then the next person and the next person. And at some point I started saying, talk to each other. (laughs) You're all having this experience. (laughs) Talk to each other. The topic is so controversial. You cannot get it published. We tried to send one paper into a physics journal. The editor thought it was fine, but the publishers, the higher-ups, were very uncomfortable with the topic. Usually, when you send a paper for publications, they send it to two, maybe three reviewers or referees. Well, this paper went out to something like 21 referees. I mean, it was getting really rather silly. 
until at one point we said, look, why don't we just go with the majority vote at a point when we knew we were one ahead <laughs> and the paper got published. I worked at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas for a while. And so there, one of the sociologists I knew was studying prostitution in in Las Vegas. Well, Las Vegas business people did not like it to be known publicly that this was going on, even though everybody knew that it was. And so her ability to do that research and publish it was tamped down to the point where she could not do it. And that's just one of many examples where if there's some community that says, we, we don't want that to be out there, they will stop it. We can look back at tobacco and all kinds of things that, that were at one time suppressed for political or business reasons, and it's no different in this domain. There are some things that are very hard to get with remote viewing. It's hard to get analytical things like names or numbers or dates, but remote viewers are really good at describing the sense impressions about an object. So could you communicate with a submarine using associated imagery? So I needed a submarine. John Warner, who was the Secretary of the Navy, invited me to go up to Groton, Connecticut with him. And on the plane was Hyman Rickover, the father of the American nuclear Navy and the nuclear submarines. And I asked him if he would let me do this experiment. And he said, let me get back to you. Let me think about it. He was quite interested in it. And he called me, I don't know, a week, 10 days later. And he said, that's a really interesting experiment, but I'm not going to do it. It'll leak out, it'll get a lot of attention, and we just don't want it. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. I did a consulting job for a big hotel chain that wanted to integrate empathy into their core values, real empathy, the kind of empathy that doesn't resolve easily into a spreadsheet to help them understand what it was to actually be tuned in with another person. And they were not available to that message. They wanted it in theory, but in practice... It was a grind. I know a lot of my colleagues who have had their labs burned down and uh, their lives threatened and things like that. For some reason, I guess my angels are working hard. There's always a worldview by which science is bounded, more or less. But if you ask questions that go beyond that conventional worldview, you're out there in frontier science. I just have to be in the lab and do the experiments because most conventional scientists won't. It's different from what some people might call fringe science, which is really far out topics that aren't necessarily substantiated by experiment, conjectures. Uh, but my science is largely experimental, also with some theory underlying it, uh, where we try to validate uh, what we're studying by scientific experiments. My attitude is, well, if they accept it, that's great. I don't care what the mainstream people criticize or whatever, whatever. I'm here to do the work. And if it's not recognized while I'm living, it will be recognized 50 years from now. I remember going to a conference uh, in the UK. Um, I think that was 2000 and Three, yeah, 2003, I think it was. And I said, I'm doing my PhD while I sleep in my lucid dreams. You know, that's where I'm doing my research, which is, you know, a bit preposterous to hear. Um, but it was true that people in the audience were like, what, what are you saying? How could that be possible? And lucid dreaming doesn't really exist and all of this. And so then I gave them the scientific facts. And some people as well in that audience came up to me afterwards and said, 
I'm a psychoanalyst and I have worked for 30 years with dreams and I've never heard about lucid dreaming and I think it could really help my clients. In the 1960s, there was a lot of research going on with psychedelics. Well, that got pushed underground very quickly and it became illegal. That is rising very quickly as well. Because the moment you start doing research on something as dramatic as a psychedelic experience, you realize that there's a whole bunch of very useful things they can do in those states. People who have a terminal illness and are facing enormous amounts of fear and angst over it, they can have a psychedelic experience, which gives them a mystical experience, and their fear of death vanishes. They will say then, not only terminally ill patients, but other people will say that the experience they have under the right conditions with something like psilocybin is the most profound experience in their entire life. Wow, that's pretty good. So it's it's quite different than the kind of the chaos that was surrounding psychedelics in the 60s. It's much it's more, like more mature now, more controlled. But it's an example of where aspects of consciousness that are normally pushed aside as like the only thing you should pay attention to is the here and now. Well, that's a very small slice of reality. There's a lot of important issues and we each just have our piece of the puzzle. But the more we can understand and know what our piece of the puzzle is and do that, without the resistance that comes from being told that what we want to do is wrong, then I think we can really collectively make a huge difference. In the academic world, you can study these phenomena from the point of view of anthropology, certainly from psychology in terms of belief and what people experience. But from a scientific perspective, it's very, very rare to find anywhere in the world which is using scientific approaches to studying these phenomena, even though most people actually have these experiences. It's a very strange taboo, but it's quite strong. Someone would say, well, you're now assuming that mental things are somehow different than physical things, and mental things have to behave differently than the rules we expect for physical things, where causality is a certain way. Like, that's a common discussion. And we say, yeah, so what's your evidence that mental things aren't different from physical things? They sure seem different in every way. Having a thought sure seems like something that isn't physical. It doesn't have any physical properties like location. The thought of the color green has no location, has no mass, has no frequency, no spin, no phase, no charge. How is it in any way like anything else that's physical? They'll say, then that's dualism, which is a, which is a, just a, a bludgeon. I'm saying, of course it's dualism. I'm saying mental and physical things are two different things. That's two. That's dualism. And then there's nothing. There's no argument. So the argument is just, you can't possibly be a dualist because that's not allowed in the world of of science, you see, because mental things don't really exist, but physical things do. And the history of that has a lot to do with um, behaviorism, at least in psychology, has a lot to do with behaviorism coming out. Behaviorism was all about, we're going to figure out what's going on in people's minds, which don't really exist, by looking at the input and output relationships, because that's what we can see. What if we actually went inside? The thing about mental things rather than physical things is you can actually go inside experiences because you're having an experience and you can discover things. That's a different, that's a different tool, but it's still a scientific tool. Students, especially, they would love to study psychic phenomena. And yet you don't see it in the academic world. We're talking about administrators. We're talking about senior professors. We're talking about people who hold what amounts to the uh, acceptable topics to talk about. There's a fear, often, that can constrain you in academia. The underlying fear is the fear of being shamed for not being right. 
for being a fool. You don't want to be a fool. The whole point of academia is we're going to figure out what's really going on and we're going to be right about it. And if you don't understand this, you don't really understand what's really going on. You're kind of a fool. You don't want to be on the outside of the cult. The university administrator just does not want anything bad to happen ever. So they're more afraid of being embarrassed than they are of dying. And they, they don't they don't want to have to explain to somebody, oh, yeah, we have this in this department. We're studying this weird stuff. They just say, no, we don't, we're not doing anything weird. We're completely normal. That's what it meant. That's like the administrator mindset, which I sort of understand. Uh, only unusual places, unusual universities or institutes like ours where we say, well, we don't care what you think. This is what we're doing because we think it's an interesting thing to do. See, at Pear, we were very fortunate. We had an interdisciplinary staff. We had physicists and psychologists and engineers, all of these people working together on a topic that had no answers. We didn't even know the questions, but we did find that when we put our heads together, each of us coming from our own unique point of view, we were discovering things that we never would have seen alone. If you look back maybe 30 years ago and you were trying to find conferences to go to on consciousness, it would have been very, very difficult both in the public domain and in the academic domain. They just, they didn't happen. Now we're saturated with them. There are conferences all over the place around the world on consciousness and aspects of consciousness, and it includes philosophy and science and neuroscience and everything else, but they're there. And and they're very popular. There are journals based on it. There are centers at universities now. So that has significantly changed. It's it's hard to see the change if it's slow. It's a 30-year cycling up. But that's likely to remain. To me, I'm all about let's change the culture that looks at it as some kind of a problem. Instead, get out there like, look, this is scientifically validated. It's a small effect on average. Some people are talented, but almost anyone can improve their abilities. To the extent that we can develop this as humanity and get more operational about it, we could actually shift um, our understanding of the future and navigate the future more effectively. So given that, how are you going to use it for good? Okay, everybody. Wow. Um, That's amazing. I think we'll have things to share about this on our conference time. Uh, For now, it's time for us to take a little bit of a break. And as we come back, we'll have a look at the stars with our brother Richard and... Tony Gabrielle, Kay Pacha, and on we go. Mm. So for now, see you in a, about five or ten minutes. Namaste. Namaste. the talking stick to you, Richard. Hello, hello. Hello, Richard. Greetings. Greetings. Yes, it's still winter. It is. Yeah. All right. Let's jump right into this situation here. Okay. So... Yeah, I know. We got, we got two, we got, uh, yeah, we got two major things going on. We've got this conjunction between Venus and Mars, right? 
And right now, Venus is at 11 and Mars is at 10 Aquarius. So that was, and since Venus moves faster, that conjunction has been pretty much operating for the last five or six days. Mm. Venus conjunct Mars, you know, it's kind of, um, for some people, going to be very difficult depending on where in the chart it falls for the individual, right? If it's below the horizon, it's going to react, affect differently than if it's above the horizon in your chart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other, the other biggie going on here is uh, Mercury's approach to the sun it's at four tonight, and the sun is at six Pisces, and together they're approaching Saturn at ten Pisces. So this is also operative as I speak. It's operative, and it's going to, remember, the sun's moving a degree and, and a little bit every day. So, four days from now, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the sun conjunct Saturn. Now, Saturn's on the other side of the sun from us. Okay, so you've got Earth, and then the sun is up there, you know, and Mercury is between Earth and sun. All right. Okay. So that's going to have one kind of an effect. All right. Mercury's location is going to distort solar radiation. But because Saturn is on the far side of the sun, not exactly behind it, but on the far side of the sun, its radiation is going to be distorted. Greatly, because the sun is between us, all right? Now, let me, let me see if I can see how much, yeah. Um, Saturn is at, uh, well, they're actually on the, they've got the same declination. Sun is 10 degrees south of the ecliptic, and so is and so is the sun. So the, the, the sun's going to block most of the Saturnian energy this week. Is it? So one might one might think that's going to open up a doorway. All right. If, if Saturnian energies, which tend to limit, if those energies are Reduced because the sun is in the way. It's going to open up a little bit of freedom. Good. Yeah. All right. So, and then of course, Pluto. uh, I guess. I guess 
Uh, Mars is 10 degrees. Uh, Mars is... Pluto's at 2. Okay. Mars is at 10. Uh, so... Pluto will be operating independently of Venus conjunct Mars. All right. Then the rest of the rest of the charts pretty much all the same. Neptune in late Pisces. Chiron is uh, Chiron has advanced another degree. It's at seventeen Aries. And then you got Jupiter and Uranus up there, Taurus. So that's that's the layout. Okay, and of course, Moon's in Virgo. It was full yesterday. So I guess that's why that's why Karpach is running long tonight and Tanya as well. Uh, they're probably going to talk about this full moon in full moon in Pisces, which is an interesting one. You know. Depending on depending on your chart, but it's always interesting, right? Right. All right then. Well, let's let's go. Uh, let's go ahead and start Kaipatra. All right. And, let's and, do it. And, yeah, and uh, when we we get through with him, I'll uh, we'll take a look at see what the differences are between tonight and next Saturday night when the moon should be in Sagittarius, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, next Saturday night. The moon's in Sagittarius, and everything is shifted a little bit. And uh, so let's go ahead with that. All right. away, Rama. Or okay. Hit the button, hit the button Rama. This is Kai Pacha with the weekly Pele Report. Oh, yes. This one is for Wednesday, February 21st. And it's a very special day. Venus is exactly conjunct Mars at the 8th degree of Aquarius today. Now, it is square to Jupiter, we have to say. Uh, there's still flies in the ointment or trouble in paradise. <laughs> As that square to Jupiter, I'll talk about it a little bit if I have time. I mostly want to bring to you the mythology and the story of Psyche and Eros. Yes, the story of soul and love. As the moon is now in Leo. Yes, indeed. She is moving along. And, you know, she uh, basically comes into a square (laughs) with Uranus and Jupiter. And, you know, comes into this opposition uh, as, as she opposes 
Venus and Mars, but then she moves into Virgo and we have the full moon. The full moon is happening at 5 degrees, 23 minutes of Virgo, and that is exact on Saturday. The same day that Venus is conjunct, uh, uh, exactly square Jupiter. Here is my future uh, home. <laughs> How about that? It's got a little space out here, out on the beach, little hammock there. No neighbors, really, to speak of. Super nice. And then the moon moves into Libra, you know, by Monday. So uh, she culminates in that full moon and then starts to wane a little bit as everything moves on. And what else have I got? Mercury. Mercury is moving into Pisces. That is exact tomorrow. Yeah, the moon's going to oppose Mercury on Friday. Okay, uh, and that's coming around. Uh, last but not least, really, I'd say is that uh, Mars then moves a little slower than Venus and will come into a square, okay, with Jupiter next Tuesday. So let me find a nice little spot somewhere here and talk at you. All right, everybody. It's about the best I'm going to do uh, without getting blown away. There's a breeze out there on that beach. I hope you can hear me. And, yeah, I just uh, got so much to say today. It's where to begin, where to begin. Um, I want to begin at the beginning. Hello. In the beginning, with Greek mythology, there was chaos. Chaos, the original source. The original god-goddess woven into one. Creator source. Everything emerged out of chaos. And this is the interesting thing that I found. I'm looking at Venus and Mars conjunction, right? Okay, so Venus and Mars, but whoa, 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 whoa. What I found to be very, very, very interesting is that Eros, the god of love, whose tip of his arrow would unnerve the body, and completely still the mind and take over the heart of whoever it touched was born one of the original gods. Love was born out of chaos. <laughs> yeah. And Gaia, of course, was another born out of chaos. And then two things, darkness and night, were born out of chaos. And Tartarus, or hell, was born out of chaos. These were the children of chaos. So Eros' love goes very, very far back, farther back than anything, right? Right? Because then we find, and here's the thing, 
Okay. Out of Gaia with no father. Gaia gave birth to Uranus, the sky god, who she wanted him to cover her on all sides. Gave birth to him by herself. And then, out of their union, yes, came Kronos, time and space. It was only when Uranus the sky lifted off of Gaia that there was space and time and Kronos. So Kronos was a titan, okay, and uh, Uranus gave, you know, birth, Gaia gave birth to many titans, three types of titans. And Cyclops, the single-eyed beings, okay? And then the Hecantonones. They had a hundred hands and fifty heads. There were only three of them. <laughs> Holds up two fingers. There were only three of them. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is that Uranus was a ruthless, heavy-duty, intense character. And he did not want, he feared being overthrown. So he put all of them in Tartarus, in hell. And the problem was that Gaia, they made Gaia soar. Yes, having all of her offspring, all of her children not really allowed out of her womb. It was like torturous. So she actually plotted with her son, right, Kronos. And Kronos, you know, at one day when Uranus was, he had his hands in the west and his feet, no, his feet were in the west and his hands were in the east. And he was like a uh, uh, newt. The Egyptian goddess of the sky. Yeah. Uranus the arched, right, you know, over the sky. Kronos reached up with his left hand, he grabbed his testicles, and with his right hand he took a sickle and he chopped them off. And they fell to the earth. The blood, the blood spurt, and out of that was born the Furies. If you've ever gotten furious, you know the origins of your fury. Yes? And the testicles themselves went into the oceans of water, created foam, and out of the foam arose Venus. So Venus is the daughter of Uranus. She is very, again, like Eros, Venus is very ancient. Okay, and then it's only after, okay, then, you know, basically, so Kronos overthrew Uranus, and then he also, he swallowed his children. <laughs> and w but one of his children, Zeus, yes, again plotted Kronos's overthrow. Some associate Zeus with uh, Christ, yeah. No, no, 
Well, there was there's actually a foretelling that after Zeus, there will be another uh, half mortal, half god that takes over Zeus's place, and some attribute that to being Jesus Christ. Just to throw that in there. But it was, you know, Zeus's children, Mars. Mars was born of Zeus. Okay? So, what we have here is Venus and Mars coming together. Now, I want to tell you the story today of Psyche. Psyche was a mortal, born of a king, a Grecian king. One of three sisters, she was the youngest sister. And we know that Psyche in, uh, uh, in ancient Greek means soul. So this is really the story of the soul and the eternal source of love, Eros, Psyche and Eros. So, yes, it's not really Venus and Mars. This is more, how can we say, uh, interesting. (laughs) I mean, yes, Venus and Mars did get together, but there wasn't a whole lot of mythology around it. But Psyche and Eros, you know, is also just a very profound tale. And let me go on with it. Psyche then was all three of yeah, all three of the daughters were extremely beautiful, the fairest of the fair, but Psyche, the youngest, was beyond she was immeasurably beautiful. So much so that she was adored and worshipped. And people would come from far and wide to worship Psyche. And the temples of Aphrodite grew vacant and were even at times defiled because Psyche was taking her place. Well, this angered Aphrodite. Yes, and so she told Eros to take, you know, to take Psyche out. Yes, and, you know, uh, it, it throw her from the cliffs. Uh, just, you know, uh, actually, he, she, her, her vengeance was even worse. She had, she wanted Eros to prick Psyche with one of his arrows when she was looking at the most hideous, wretched, human, defiled piece of, ugh, yeah, you know, that, that there existed or he could find. So that was her punishment for Psyche. So Eros goes to fulfill, right, you know, what... Aphrodite wanted and some say that he pricked himself accidentally with one of his arrows but nonetheless when he saw Psyche he instantly fell in love the god of love 
falls in love with a mortal, we see trouble coming. Yes. Anyway, he cannot destroy her, kill her, have her fall in love with someone. So he takes her and lays her on the top of a mountain and the west wind, Zephyr, yes, comes and picks her up and lays her down in a fresh bed of flowers. And when she awakens from her sleep, there is the most beautiful palace, even more beautiful than Zeus's palace on Mount Olympus. It was beyond description. And she went in to the palace and was cared for and nurtured and fed. And then at night, in the darkness, she was visited by Eros, who made love with her. And she became pregnant. And he just told her one thing. You must promise that you will never see my face. And before dawn, before the light of day, he left. And here was Psyche. Yes, so in love. I mean, she was just overwhelmed with love and he made perfect love to her. And she was surrounded with beauty. She could not believe her good fortune. But even then, she grew lonely. And every night Eros would come to visit, but she asked if her sisters could come to visit. And after much pleading, Eros gave in. And so... Zephyr, the west wind, would bring her sisters for visits. But every visit, her two sisters grew more jealous and more envious. And they wanted to meet her husband. And finally, when she said, I cannot see, I have never seen my husband. They convinced her that her husband must be the devil must be a hideous dragon that is going to devour her offspring, her baby, as soon as it's born. And she's got to see him. And when she sees him, she will wake up from her grievous, dreamy insanity. And... She resisted her sisters for, you know, as long, for a while. But ultimately, she gave in. They even convinced her that she should kill her husband. So one night, as they lay sleeping, Psyche woke. And she took the candle and she had to see her husband's face and there at once 
she knew it was Eros because of his beauty and his golden locks and his beautiful pink face and his white neck. But most of all, because of his arrows laying right beside his body as he slept. And she went to the quiver of arrows and she pulled out an arrow and she accidentally pricked herself with an arrow. She fell even more deeply in love, irreversibly in love with Eros. But the prick hurt her and she jerked and she spilt candle wax on Eros and he awoke. Well, he was so, so upset. I would say furious. <laughs> Indeed. And he immediately disappeared. And Psyche, more in love with him than ever, set off. She left the palace, left everything behind, and went off in search of her love, Eros. And she went through valleys and forests and beaches and jungles. And oh my goodness, she went to the east, to the north, to the south, to the west in search of her man, Eros. But it was all to no avail until she finally came to the temple of Aphrodite. And she begged Aphrodite to help her find her true love. Well, you can bet Aphrodite was furious. <laughs> Again, she was not only furious that, first of all, you know, Psyche was still alive and well, but that she had fallen in love with Eros and that Eros had disobeyed her. So she had great revenge and she set forth one thing after another, impossible tasks like Hercules for Psyche to do. One was that she put together wheat and barley and corn and poppy seed and chia seed and she mixed together huge amounts of all these seeds and threw them in a huge pile and said, you must sort out these seeds by sunset. And of course, Psyche just wept tears with this impossible task. And the ants heard her weeping. And the ants came, all the ants from all over the world came, and they, they sorted out all the seeds just before sunset. And Psyche showed Aphrodite. And so Aphrodite gave her another challenge, test, task that had to be done. 
and that was to gather the golden fleece. Now the golden fleece were only on the sheep that were deadly. They had horns and no one could harm or get anywhere near these sheep. So again, Psyche went out to the hillside of the golden fleece and cried. There was no way she could do it. But the reeds, the reeds blowing in the wind heard her crying and they gave her the secret. They said, wait until midday when the sheep go to sleep and you may go up and gather their golden fleece from the thorns and the thistles and the bushes. And so once again, Aphrodite succeeded in her task. I mean, Psyche went back to Aphrodite with the golden fleece. And Aphrodite was again, how can I just, you know, punish this woman, this mortal, who dares to enter the realms of gods and goddesses? So she gave her another impossible task. And that was to gather water, a pitcher full of water from the river Styx. So Psyche went with her pitcher of water only to find that on both sides of the river Styx, it was guarded by ferocious, fire-breathing dragons. And there was no way she could approach that river. And here is where, you know, the eagle of Zeus came to her rescue, took the pitcher, flew down into the river and reaped and filled it and brought it back to Psyche. <laughs> so it is the insects and then the plants and now the birds. You kind of get this. There's, there's always, yes, the soul will always be helped. You have to look at all the symbolism in Greek mythology. I, I don't know that I have time to go into it. But Aphrodite here is just getting absolutely flustered, right? She gives her a fourth task. She says, you must take this box down into hell and you must capture some of Persephone's beauty and bring it back to me. Well, Psyche knew the only way to enter hell was through death. And she was so distraught and felt so helpless. Her life was hopeless, meaningless. I don't know if your soul, if love ever brings you to the place where it's hopeless and you are helpless. She was going to throw herself off a cliff. And so she climbed up to the tallest mountain to throw herself off the cliff. But again, the eagle came and he told her the way to succeed in her task. 
And she went out into the Peloponnese. I don't know if you've been there, but it's a, a huge area of Greece that is where all the gods and goddesses walked and played in ancient Greece. It's beautiful. And there is the gates. The gate to Hades is a cave. I've actually visited this cave. Yes, it is the entrance to Hades. If you go to Greece, you can find it. Well, Psyche went there, but she did not go empty-handed. She brought two pieces of bread and two coins. And she entered down into that cave. And she used her first coin to give Chiron, not Chiron, Chiron, yes, the boatman over the river Styx. She gave it to him to take her across the river Styx. And then she gave the food to Cerebus, the hound of hell that guarded the gates of hell, and she entered. And there she met Persephone, the daughter of Demeter. And she did what she was told. She refused to eat any of the food or the feast that Persephone laid before her. In turn, she asked for one favor. And that was that she would give her some of her beauty into the box. And Persephone obliged and did so. But said, do not open this box. It can only be for Aphrodite. And so, again, here we come. She comes out and just like Pandora, she disobeys. Eros disobeys. Pandora disobeys. Psyche disobeys. It's just. What is this life on earth? The life of the soul that we disobey the gods and goddesses. She opened the box to look to see the beauty of Persephone. And she instantly fell into a deep, deep, deep sleep. Eternal sleep. And there she lay. Now you may be wondering, what's happening with Eros this whole time that his love, Psyche, is being tortured by Aphrodite? What is he doing? Well, the thing is that Eros, he could not bear the sight of Psyche and yet wanted nothing but to be with Psyche. <laughs> and when she fell into this deep sleep, he came and he approached her. But not before asking Zeus, finally, Zeus, for the hand of Psyche in matrimony. Now, 
Eros, as we know, right? You know, I mean, he's way older than Zeus. He's eternal. He's came out of chaos. Very interesting that he would ask Zeus. But Zeus was the only one who could make Psyche immortal and become one of the gods. So here's Jupiter. Jupiter now square this Venus-Mars conjunction, right? Raises, it is Zeus who can bring us this expansion, this immortality. And so he gives Psyche immortality. And then Psyche and Eros are united in holy, sacred matrimony. And Psyche gives birth to their child, Voluptus. Yes? So the child, the creation of Psyche and Eros, love and the soul, the eternal masculine and the immortal feminine becomes the god of pleasure. Now there are so many layers to this myth and all so many interpretations. I'm going to leave you with some of those interpretations because not only time is running out, but this is a weekly Pele report where I need to discuss this Venus conjunction in Aquarius of all the signs. Aquarius is ruled by Uranus, the sky god. Right? Very ancient. Really, Venus's father. Think of that. So Venus is kind of in the home of her father. Uranus. And... Yes, we see this coming forward, but really, it is the least personal sign in the Zodiac. Aquarius rules non-attachment. It rules extraterrestrials. There's no earthling. It's the opposite of Leo, which rules the heart. It's science, technology, computers, electricity. It's, it's very, 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 yeah? I associate it with outer space, where it's very cold. And so it's very interesting. You know, Venus and Mars almost came together in Leo. Yes, last July, I think it was. July or August. They almost came together, but Venus went retrograde. She, she went up. She, uh, yeah, Psyche went up and almost caught Mars, but went retrograde. <laughs> now she comes back again. Only this time, their union is consummated. Today, Wednesday, February 21st, just before Mercury goes into Pisces, the sign of dreams coming true. I don't want to read you the whole thing, but I want to read you the Sabian symbol for the degree of their union. A beautifully gowned 
wax figures, beautifully gowned wax figures on display. The keynote is the inspiration one may derive from the appearance of capital E exemplars who present to us the archetypes of a new culture. Aquarius rules the future. Yes? And here we have archetypes. You know, Venus and Mars, the goddess of love and beauty, and the warrior god. These are archetypes. And and the symbol is talking about how wax figures are perfect. There's no blemishes, there's no... And they, they are symbols of a perfected state of being that can only be really manifest in the future, in life. And so this is, this is a very powerful degree that Venus and Mars comes together in. Is it not? This is almost envisioning a higher love. Oh, there's my song for today. I didn't even have one. Uh, bring me a higher love. Bum, bum, bum. I forget who did that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll find it. Check the notes below for, you know, and if you go on Spotify, you know, I got like hours and hours, like 50 hours or something of all the Pele Report. It's a soundtrack. Uh, check it out. Pele Report soundtrack on Spotify. <laughs> it's got all the songs. <laughs> oh, I put them up there every week. Anyway, what else is I going to say? You know, bring me up. I got distracted. So, Square Jupiter. What is the interpretation here? Jupiter down here in Taurus, on the Earth, heavy, dense, fixed. It is, and Taurus is about the five physical senses, you know, and, and you know, pleasure, you know, voluptuousness, and money, and, you know, chocolate, wine, fudge, alcohol, whatever, you know, uh, is your fancy <laughs> non-gluten dessert. <laughs> but here's, you know, so here we are. This is a year of Jupiter expanding through Taurus, getting heavier, denser, deeper into our bodies, deeper into this world, deeper into, you know, the riches and everything that are, you know, here inside Gaia. Whoa! And there is a call. This love, this Venus and Mars, Psyche and Eros. There's a square. A square is a block. So we can have earthly blocks to the manifestation of our love. We can have financial losses. We can have, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, things too much. And here is the other side, I will say, of Jupiter. Jupiter is not just Santa Claus that brings prosperity and expansion and everything else. Jupiter also removes limitations. It can remove the bars of ourselves. It can remove limiting relationships if they are not in alignment 
with our psyche, soul, evolutionary growth. It can remove money if we have been distracted or pulled down into or blah, blah. So there is this whole kind of teeter-tottering back and forth of the unexpected. This is a week of the unexpected with love and money. You may meet someone new. You may lose someone you had. You may, uh, you know, just, you know, experiment with new ways of being, futuristic ways of, of managing, of handling relationship and partnership in a very enlightened or liberated way. It's even polyamorous. This is Aquarius's groups, right? Yeah. So, you know, you know, multiple ways and experiences and expansions of, you know, of how to express my unique individual love. The evolutionary intentions of Aquarius have to do, especially when Venus and Mars are present in Aquarius, it has to be a relationship where my unique expression is fostered, supported, really held, appreciated. My eccentricities, my weirdness, my hairline, <laughs> my hairdo or non-hairdo, right? As weird as we are, there's no such thing as normal. This is one thing that Aquarius really wants to bring to us. So try not to, you know, match the novels or the Hollywood movies in terms of they lived happily ever after. As we can see, the story of love involves sacrifice. It involves toil and trial. It involves, you know, endlessly, you know, you know, using our will and our desire. Love has to conquer all of our petty little other minor needs to be fully realized. <laughs> so the mantra for this week is <clears throat> that love is a magical essence that transforms both you and me. For though it binds, no, 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 no. Oh shoot! I blew the mantra. <laughs> Probably not the first time. I was going to hit pause and rewind and maybe edit it, but I don't think so. I just don't have the oomph. Love is a magical elixir, essence. Which one you like better? I think maybe elixir. Love is a magical elixir that transforms both you and me. For though it binds and may not be kind, it both ties us and sets us free. 
it is chaos. Uh, you know, it is, uh, what do they call that? The paradox. Love is a paradox. It brings us to the highest highs and the lowest lows. It fills us. It empties us. It makes us want to live. It makes us want to die. It is the most powerful force of healing and more in the universe. We could say God is love. It has been written that God is love. Love is God. I know I got a message somewhere, because yeah, I said that before in the, some other Bailey report, and somebody came back, you can't replace God. <laughs> I'm not talking about replacing God. What is in a name? A rose by any other name will smell as sweet. God by any other name will still be freaking God. <laughs> right? The source of all, the infinite potential of all that exists. But love is the binding force that unites all of existence. That is Eros. And once you are pricked by Eros, I'm sorry, but there is no going back. One more time, I'm going to let you go. <clears throat> Love is a magical elixir that transforms both you and me. And though it binds and may not be kind, it both ties us and sets us free. You also have to understand Yes, earthly love and divine love and spiritual love and sacred love. So there are many, many, many dimensions, many, many frequencies, many, many expressions of this magical force of love. And Aquarius, this is a, a union of the highest of those. May you experience the highest forms, expressions, and experiences of love. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Faster talking stick to you, Richard. Okay, then. Uh, what I want to, what I want to do here, what I've been doing here, is uh, picking up a couple of other things that were not mentioned. We've got uh, Mercury conjunct Sun this week. That is also going on here. See, right here, right now, tonight, Mercury's at four and the sun is at six. 
and when you get to we get to next Saturday, Mercury will be at seventeen, and the sun will be at thirteen. So you've got that going on, and uh, Venus is uh, moving faster than Venus, so it's going to pull ahead this week. And we get to next weekend. Mars will be at 15, Aquarius. Venus will be at 20. So you've got uh, some separation of those combined energies energies this week. And then in another week, uh, Venus will be even further away from Mars. Because right now, Venus is moving at 1 degree 14 minutes per day. And Mars is moving at only 46 minutes per day. Oh. Yeah. So um, we're we're in a we're in a, a mul- multiple energy configuration zone here with Venus and Mars, and then we've got. See, the other thing is that uh, when you get to, when you get to this week, Saturn's at, at 10 Pisces, okay, Mercury at 4, Sun at 6, and then next week, Saturn is at 11 Pisces, but the Sun is at 13 and Mercury is at 17, so you're still going to have a conjunction. But they're going to be on the other side of Saturn, still operating as a trio of energies. All right. And then, and then, Sun and Mercury are next week are sitting between Saturn and Neptune. So as we go through the next uh, two weeks, yeah. Two weeks from next week, Sun conjunct Neptune, and Mercury will probably hit that Neptune before the Sun does, just because that's the way the orbits rotate. And of course, other thing I want to mention here is Chiron is still conjunct the North Node in in Aries. All right, North Node is Destiny. Uh, it's the open doorway, and Chiron is uh, all about human healing. So we're going through all this crap in order to get healed. Mm-hmm. Also, next week, Jupiter will be all the way up yeah. to 12 Taurus, which is opposite my son. So that's that's the look ahead for next for next week. So uh, that concludes my report, Mr. Rama. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. That was very very fun to listen to. Well, I, I mean, you know, I'm trying to be useful here. <laughs> oh, you passed for the double, triple, quadruple, A plus. <laughs> well, thank you, ma'am. You're uh, I, yeah, well, like I said, it's 
you know, now see now the now the moon also this week it's in it's in Virgo tonight, right? It was full yesterday in Virgo. So the moon this week is going to go through opposition to Neptune when it gets to late Virgo, okay? It'd be like tomorrow, moon moon opposite Neptune. All right. That can be a little dreamy and delusional. Uh-huh. All right. So watch out for that, you know. And and then and then uh, in an, another day or so, about halfway through Aries, Moon will be opposite Chiron and sitting on the South Node, opposite the North Node. And then in another day and two thirds, when the Moon is in Scorpio, that'll be next Thursday and Friday. The moon will be opposite Jupiter, followed by opposite Uranus. And then next Saturday, the moon goes into Sagittarius. And we'll have a couple of three and a half days where the moon won't be opposing anything and it won't be conjuncting anything. But... When it gets into Sagittarius, it's going to be squaring the activity in Pisces. So there's 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 no rest for the uh, for the sensitive ones. So um, anyway, right. Uh, right. Namaste. Have a great week. Namaste. Same for you, Richard. All right. Over and out. Over and out. Thank you. All right, here we go with Tanya. Hello, everyone. This is Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Starco's, and please excuse my voice. I'm recovering from having some kind of bug and... Uh, not quite there yet with the vocal cords, but I really wanted to get this video out to you, especially since I missed last week, but also because it's a very important full moon, only the second one of the year, the Virgo full moon on February 24th. And even just looking at the code, let alone the astrology, the code is 2-24-2024, so it's like a repetition of the 224 code and that really puts us in a place of love with 24 but also connection intimate connection with the number two and of course 2024 adds up to eight so it also puts us in the number eight which is strength and courage leadership and feeling empowered from within the key word is from within so This Virgo full moon is the second full moon at five degrees. There's another one following the first full moon of the year. The Leo full moon was also at five degrees. And five is all about freedom. And as you know, Aquarius, the sign that we are celebrating now because of Pluto's move into that sign and so much going on in Aquarius right now. 
the Aquarian age is all about freedom. So there is a real sense of taking new directions, considering new ways. And this Virgo full moon is no exception. So it happens on the 24th of February, 12.30 p.m. Universal Time. That's 7.30 a.m. Eastern, New York, and 4.30 a.m. Pacific, Los Angeles. And there are, there's just a really interesting setup. If you look at the image, you can see that the Saturn, Sun, and Mercury are in a stellium. Mercury at 2 degrees, the Sun at 5 degrees, and Saturn at 9 degrees. They're all in Pisces, opposite the Moon, in Virgo, and the moon is literally opposite this whole slew of planets. It's all alone in its own hemisphere and opposing not only the stellium, but also is opposite all the planets from Pluto and Mars and Venus, which are all in Aquarius, all the way to Uranus in Taurus. And all of these planets are bunched together on the other side of the zodiac and the moon is is basically taking on a stand, just going into the heart and saying, okay, how do I navigate all this really deep, intense energy? So let's start with Sun, Saturn, Mercury, that conjunction. That's a really big one. So Saturn helps us focus on what really matters, the nitty-gritty, and it gets us through those challenges it helps us overcome them and gain strength as a result. And the wonderful silver lining with Saturn is, is that it, it really integrates and cements what it is we are putting our attention on. So they have a long lasting impact on our life. So pay attention during this full moon about what you want, how you're going to go about getting it and creating a structure for your dreams, for what it is you'd like to implement and manifest for your highest good. And, you know, since Saturn is in Pisces as well, you know, this is the sign of undoing the ego and coming to terms with pipe dreams or illusions, delusions versus spiritually inspired direction and with Mercury, there's a lot of deep thinking when it's joined with Saturn, understanding things at a very deep level and then wanting to communicate those in some way, but in a more gentle way. After all, this is Pisces and Virgo is the sign of healing. So you'll only want to talk about things that actually matter, uh, not trivial stuff, not that that's a bad thing. Necessarily, but in this case, around this lunation, you'll realize that you have this constant eternal access to the divine and you have this constant access for guidance. Your internal compass is your guiding light. And that's what this stellium of Saturn, Sun, Mercury really represents is that guiding light and this natural divine mentoring that you have at your disposal. So if you listen closely and you really interpret what comes through, you can share with your heart in a beautiful way. Now, this stellium becomes exact a few days later on February 29th, the actual final day of the month, 
when the sun and Mercury and Saturn actually also create a sextile to Jupiter. And that is incredibly divinely planned as well because it creates a silver lining of joy and happiness and expansion. And it means that when you really do make your intentions clear that you can embark on a wonderful project around this time that helps you with growth, expansion, entrepreneurship, freedom, a really true sense of joy by you implementing a new approach that is truly internally motivated and inspired. Now, the moon, of course, is in Virgo, and Virgo does govern health and healing. It governs your daily life. It's the sixth house in astrology, the microcosm and the macrocosm, the above and below, being just intimately connected and appreciative of Earth and the bounties of Earth, the crystals, the aromatherapy, everything that's wonderfully Earth-centered, All divine healing modalities are covered by Virgo. And this means that in taking this time to listen to the divine guidance, you literally are inspired by Earth to do what is good for you, like grounding yourself. No matter what the climate is like for you, there are ways to be rooted in Earth and get outside and walk amongst the trees Walk amongst the sky, the blue, the sun, and feel the sun on your face. This is a really important theme at this time for healing in general. So the moon is trying to Jupiter. The sun is sextile Jupiter during this full moon. This brings a lot of blessings. Jupiter's at 10 degrees Taurus and sun and moon at 5 degrees in their two signs. So this is You know, Taurus is another earth sign to Virgo. That's a beautiful trine. It does bring many blessings. And as long as you have this strong commitment to uplifting your life and being in a place that resonates to high vibrations, to upliftment, to supporting and being kind to others, Jupiter just will bring incredible blessings at this time. These earth signs, just like Saturn, Saturn rules the third earth sign, by the way, which is Capricorn. So these earth signs were Jupiter's in Taurus and the moon in Virgo. They help you along with Saturn to lay down roots. That's what earth signs do. The roots go into the earth. And in this case, the roots are about expansion, about financial flow and love and wisdom And so you can really have it all. That's the thing. You really need to trust that this is available to you. One more thing, Venus conjuncts Mars around this full moon as well. And Venus and Mars are both square to Jupiter, which expands the inner magnetism, the deep connection, the celebration, the charisma, the sensuality, really resolving personal issues. And then the square to Jupiter is, with Venus, it's the two benefics that are really activating each other, which is wonderful. So it's really opening you up to feel generous and positive and optimistic. And then with Mars square Jupiter, you just have to watch. You get a lot of energy with that, but you want to guard against uh, impulsiveness and where your courage turns into something that's more aggressive and 
really channel that into just sheer courage to move forward with your goals, to stay in a place where that energy is supportive of you and strengthening you. And, you know, Jupiter just truly wants you to feel that sense of eternal expansion, that it's all yours. The world is your oyster. And so you want to, yes, moderate your energy a little bit with the square to Mars, but you also want to take advantage of the forward momentum. You know, Virgo symbolizes miracles, the miraculous gifts of Earth. And you want to rise up and meet those gifts. The gifts are within you. You just are being awakened again and again and again to what it is you have within you to give. And that takes clearing out your physical body, which Virgo really governs is the cleanses, you know, eating well. It also really means that you want to purge emotions. You know, Pluto's in the news and Pluto purges and Pluto really at zero degrees Aquarius early part of Aquarius is purging in order to set yourself free of the past, which is represented by Capricorn, which is where Pluto spent, you know, the last many years. So really it's, it's very important to get out in nature. Virgo is so connected to nature and let the sun just caress your body and clean your aura. And the sun is so important. And remember the sun is in the stellium. You know, the sun is very much making itself uh, known to you in terms of take me seriously. I shine every day. Go outside and let the sun rays light up your face and clear out everything that may not be helpful that may be sticking to you. And I help to clear that out. That's the sun speaking. So you want to open your heart to possibilities. And that means allowing. And the light allows. The light shines. So you want to allow that to shine so you can see the new realities, feel the new realities, allow the new realities in, as different as they may be, you want to allow that energy in. That doesn't mean you condone energy that doesn't resonate with you. It also doesn't mean that you condemn energy that doesn't resonate with you. It just means that you say no to it. There's no need to react or retaliate to energy, to people that you don't resonate with. You know, we all have these new ways of being now as we approach new earth and get acclimated and we are allowing ourselves to step out of that programming, right? We're allowing everyone to think differently. We're allowing ourselves to think for ourselves. And, you know, if others are not able to hear us, if others are not able to take in the exciting new insights that we're making about life, that's okay. You just rise above it. You keep rising above it, right? The Virgo way is to see the microcosm and the macrocosm. And that means you never get caught in the uh, spin cycle, right? So you want to take a step back if you feel that others are pushing their views on you or don't understand you. It's so much more than that. You always rise above it. Don't take it personally. That's really a, a huge key here because then you won't get caught up in these sticky emotions and at the time that we're shifting now we don't want to get caught up in being spun around again where we lose lose our grounding and lose our sense of equilibrium and we really don't want that emotional spin cycle 
in our life. We want to really be clear and simple and clean and, and pure so that kindness prevails. And that's very, very important right now. So focus on joy, focus on happiness, focus on light, being delighted, right? Allow everything in and then you discern what it is that you want to keep, right? So everything Virgo is related to health, to a clean diet, to helping you love what's in front of you, the simple life, and helping others. Virgo loves to help. Virgo is there to be of service. It's the sixth house. And the number six in numerology is all about being of service to others, being loving, being supportive, and of course, taking care of you first, right? Just like they say, when you're in the plane and you have your kids, you put your mask on first so that you can be there for your kids. And that's very important is self-care with Virgo. So live in your heart. That's the only place you need to live. And that's where you get the inspiration to do any of these activities that are life enhancing, to feel this way about life and to feel this way about others and allowing others to be themselves without you judging them and you just keeping an open heart and an open mind. So that is the news from Virgo. That is the news for the stars this week. And to help you through the week and through the Virgo full moon, I highly recommend my free masterclass, How to Master Your Stars. It dives into the new earth, the new spiritual life that we're all learning to live, discovering within ourselves. So you'll discover the secret to spiritual mastery, the true meaning of your rising sign, your natal sun and natal moon's huge impact on abundance, on living a joyful life, and how to instantly connect with spirit and so much more. We cover it all and it's there to help you and it's free. So go to spiritualmasterclass.com Enjoy that free masterclass, and I will see you in next week's Star Codes forecast. Lots of love. Give the phone numbers so everybody can come to the conference call now. Um, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody. We'll see you there for the next hour. And then we'll be right back here at the top of the following hour at BBS Radio. Best radio in your neighborhood. Namaste for now, everybody. See you on the conference. That was a song for the return of spring. Um, it was in Greek. Oh. Is there a name for it? Um, I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> You're already on the next thing, aren't you, Mama? Yeah. All right. I guess we better... Be on the next thing then. Yes. All right. So this is 
the geometry of space-time, the universe and ancient structures. Explore the captivating realm of the geometry of space-time, the universe and ancient structures with the brilliant mind of Jamie Janover in this thought-provoking YouTube presentation. Janover, a renowned physicist, musician, and expert on the unified field theory, delves into the intricate connections between geometry, space-time, and the enigmatic structures from ancient civilizations. Join him in a fascinating journey that unravels the secrets of the universe revealing how geometric principles are embedded in the very fabric of reality, from sacred geometry to the cosmic dance of particles, Janover's insights provide a holistic perspective that bridges science and spirituality. Gain a deeper understanding of our world, and its profound interconnectedness as Janover explores the timeless mysteries that shape our existence. Prepare to expand your mind and challenge conventional thinking in this mind-bending exploration of the cosmic tapestry. And this is one hour and 16 and six, 16 seconds. <laughs> Mm. All right, so we shall begin. I'm kind of dropping a needle here because, I mean, this is a very broad subject, and obviously because you're doing an entire weekend or a long seminar with so many different speakers and they're covering so many different topics and a lot of these folks have deep knowledge in uh more esoteric and spiritual and philosophical and uh the mythology and so i figured because i have worked uh with nasim haramein the unified field theorist the physicist um and understand how to explain his unified field theory and how it relates to ancient civilizations. I thought I'd do the reader's digest version of the cliff notes version of his unified field theory (laughs) and show how ancient civilizations around the world are encoding information that relates to physics. And then I will go into related information of other researchers uh, as we go along but I'm going to try to do this kind of rapid fire style. I'm not going to elaborate. I'm going to be just kind of dropping the needle on a bunch of stuff and suggesting that you go search uh, various things. So if you want to take a couple notes of things that you might want to Google later, I'm sure I'm going to say a lot of them. Um, my background is basically being a musician. I am not a physicist, actually. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a geologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not an archaeologist. I am a musician that has gone to a lot of festivals and among the many presentations that I've seen at the many festivals I've been to, 
was this guy, Nassim Haramein, speaking at a festival in 2002. So we're talking 21 years ago now. And he gets up there and starts talking. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm really interested in physics. And he started saying stuff that was unlike anybody that I've ever heard talking. Because he was connecting geometry and physics concepts that I've heard before with ancient civilizations and even out of this tetra, extra tetra real information, extraterrestrial information. And so I was flabbergasted because most of the physics that I had ever read about was very, you know, specific to the field and didn't dare mention anything like pyramids. And so why am I showing you this picture right now? Because this is a great example of ancient structures employing incredibly advanced knowledge of geometry and the solar system and precession even because right now you're seeing chichen itza in mexico uh step pyramid and it's in alignment with the setting sun on the equinox and so the shadow of the edge of the pyramid hits the staircase makes it look like a snake and you can see there's a snake head there at the bottom this shows you very clearly that they had advanced knowledge of exactly how the alignment of the sun works over time. And they didn't build this thing and rotate it in place on the equinox. They had to know from stone one how to build it to do this. It's not obvious at all. Uh, this is a great example showing, you know, this geometric knowledge. You know, where did they get this knowledge? It's, it's very accurate on the equinox. It's, it's not uh, like they fudged this. There's also, of course, pyramids around the world, and we've seen some examples of those. I'm just going to show you a few here. This is uh, uh, Teotihuacan in, in Mexico, near Mexico City, 100 kilometers away. And these structures look you know, similar to Chichen Itza in the sense that they're step pyramids, and they're arranged in very specific ways. Uh, fascinating to see that the city of Teotihuacan is at this latitude 19.47 degrees. And this is a significant latitude because talk about fundamental. The most fundamental thing really is the structure of space because space is the only thing that's everywhere, no matter where you go on the universal, universal or even the multiverse scale. Space is there. It's gigantic, right? And even down below the size of an atom, down below the size of a proton, to the little energy fluctuations inside of a proton, space is there as well. And so if you want to talk about the organization or the structure of space, what is that study called? It's called geometry. So the study of geometry is the study of space, the one thing that exists at all scales everywhere, no matter where you go. So you might think that's pretty fundamental to understand the universe that we're in. Well, one of the most basic essential structures that the universe is making at all scales is a sphere. The sun, the planets, the moons, ultimately the whole universe, likely a sphere. So now what happens if you take the geometry that is made with the fewest number of lines, with the fewest number of sides, that would be a tetrahedron. It's a four-sided platonic solid. It's equal 
triangles on each side. And if you take a tetrahedron and you put it inside of a sphere and it fits perfectly in there so that one tip hits the pole, the other three points of the tetrahedron intersect the sphere at 19.47 degrees latitude. And when you do that, you've bisected the sphere one third above, two thirds below, or the opposite if you stick another tetrahedron in there, which we will. And so you can see that these pyramids were actually showing you this relationship. That's why these pyramids are the proportion that they are. They're showing you this very specific, important relationship uh, because the pyramid is at this latitude. And you can see that there's gigantic structures on our planet and around the solar system at 19.47, including the big island of Hawaii and Olympic Mons on Mars and the Great Red Spot on Jupiter, which has been there since we started looking at it when we invented the telescope around 350 years ago. The storm has just been sitting at 19.47. It doesn't move around. So even on the sun, looking at sunspot activity, you see increased sunspot activity at this latitude, north and south. This is highly significant because the most foundational geometry you can make with straight lines is a tetrahedron, and the sphere is the most fundamental structure that the universe is making. And so this very, very basic, very foundational geometric relationship has been encoded by ancient civilizations around the world. And there's even anomalies related to this latitude, like these places where things happen that are hard to explain, like the Bermuda Triangle everybody's heard about, where planes disappear and ships disappear and all this stuff. No one exactly knows what's going on with the Bermuda Triangle. There's other triangles around the world at 19.47. The next most famous is maybe the Devil's Triangle off the southern coast of Japan. But notice there's a triangle, number 43, west of Australia over there. The biggest mystery in aviation history is an airplane that disappeared pretty much right in the center of that triangle. And, of course, no one ever mentions this uh, being related to these vortexes, but maybe it is. Here's another very fundamental geometric relationship in the universe. Wake. No matter what you're doing, if you're moving through a medium like through air, through water, through space-time, the wake of your motion is going to be at 19.47 degrees and uh, or 19.5. And no matter how fast you're going, that's the angle. So these are very fundamental relationships. If you start looking into people that were honing in onto geometry a while ago, Buckminster Fuller stands out. And he's the one who came up with this idea of a perfectly balanced space-time, or the, at least perfectly balanced space. And Sim Harman translated Buckminster Fuller's work in geometry into the physics because he was trying to explain this perhaps biggest conundrum in the history of physics, which is when we look at the quantum scale, at the tiny little vacuum fluctuations that make up space-time itself, it's incredibly energetic. There's 10 to the 93 grams per cubic centimeter of energy density of these vacuum fluctuations inside of a cubic centimeter of space. It's massive, massive, massive amount of energy in just the smallest little cubic centimeter of space but that seems strange right because here i am moving my hand i know that there's air here but if i was floating in the vacuum of space i don't feel much energy density going on in there how come i feel 
nothing if there's all this energy in space-time? Well, that's a very, very tough question to answer. Physics does not have a good answer for that. And in trying to figure that out, Nassim Haramein theorized that perhaps the structure of the space itself is so perfect and so equal and opposite in every possible way that no matter where a force is or where a force is coming from, the structure of space itself counterbalances that force, equals it out, and it equals zero. So you've heard about the zero-point field. That's what we're talking about. The zero-point field, the quantum phone, space, space-time, the ether, any of these terms is describing the same thing, which is that everything is an extension of the space. The space is fundamental. Matter happens sometimes, but space happens all of the time. So what geometry would be perfectly balanced in every possible way? This looks fairly balanced. This is Buckminster Fuller's isotropic vector metric. It's uh, just not symmetrical because inside of those tetrahedrons, you have these cavities. So then if you take two of these structures and you push them together like this, then you have a star tetrahedron with a total of 40 tetrahedrons. And now you have a perfectly balanced geometry that's been formed on the inside of these two tetrahedrons, together called a star tetrahedron or a Merkaba, a Merkaba. There's meditations related to this, and that's the reason for this is because this is the most seed fundamental code geometry of the structure of space-time itself. Inside of that star tetrahedron, you get this geometry in red. This is the only 3D geometry that has all the sides the same length and the vectors that go from the center of the geometry to the edges are also the same size, the same length as all the edges. Every line in that geometry is the same length. That's why Buckminster Fuller called it the vector equilibrium. The geometry term for it is a cube octahedron. It's eight tetrahedrons pointing in to a single point. So 12 around one. You've probably heard of 12 around one before. Esoteric and non-esoteric. So here's the thing, though. What does that mean, that the universe is one gigantic cube octahedron? It's got to be fractal. It's got to be able to get bigger and bigger and bigger to the size of the multiverse and smaller and smaller and smaller down to the size of the Planck, the Planck length being the shortest possible measurable distance because it's the diameter of the smallest possible photon of light. Thank you, Max Planck, for figuring this out. So from the Planck to the multiverse is a lot of orders of magnitude. So many orders of magnitude. So maybe it's cuboctahedron inside of cuboctahedron inside of cuboctahedron, and it goes Russian dolls forever style, all the way down and all the way up. So let's start putting more tetrahedrons on the outside of this. What happens if you put four more tetrahedrons onto each point of a star tetrahedron? You get to a total of 64 tetrahedrons, and then you get to two octaves of this perfectly balanced geometry. It's a Cuboctahedron inside of a cuboctahedron, perfectly balanced vector equilibrium inside of a perfectly balanced vector equilibrium. And that's the fewest number of tetrahedrons that you need to start to see this infinite fractal division of space-time. Then it goes 512, goes 124, 1024, and it goes infinite from there. Computer programmers in the audience are, are nodding their heads right now because this is the structure of memory in our computer systems. 
and it happens to be the geometry of a lot of things related to biology and ancient civilizations, architecture, and encoded, uh, you know, incredibly uh, knowledgeable databases, things like the I Ching, the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, but we're going to get there. This is showing you that this geometry is a three-dimensional structure. Eight star tetrahedrons put together gives you this 64 tetrahedron grid. The seventh one has a one behind it. This is kind of a computer animation of a 64 tetrahedron grid. You can think of it like music. You got an octave, and then you get to the next octave, 64, and the next octave, 512. Just like in music, you have a note, and you go up seven notes. And when you get to the eighth note, just like the eighth star tetrahedron, you get the octave. So this is a octave relationship in the structure of space-time, analogous to the octavization of vibration and uh, the string motion in music in a piano. Uh, we're using this geometry all the time in our daily lives, just through our music and through uh, our visualizations that we're already starting to tap into, thanks to the esoteric traditions from thousands of years ago that have encoded this information all the way through the generations to where we are now. And so it's pretty cool that we've got it to the point now where we can do a seminar with all of these luminaries from around the world. This is starting to become common knowledge. It wasn't common knowledge when I first came across it 21 years ago. And when I first started to do presentations on this, I got a lot of strange looks. But now people more nod at me instead of saying, that's strange. I thought that, you know, everything was the way I was taught in high school. But it turns out that a lot of the stuff that I was taught in high school is very incorrect. Unbelievably so. I mean, just the fact that they showed me a picture of gravity like this with a ball and then the trampoline, right, where gravity is bending the space-time. But the space-time is not flat. This is showing you flat space-time. I know it's simplification, but I think the kids are ready to see 3D animations showing that space-time is actually curling and falling in in every direction. So it's not just this fabric flattening of the space. And a black hole being this infinite curvature of space-time is not just some funnel that just disappears. So it's not that a black hole is a giant cosmic-sized vacuum cleaner that sucks everything in and it disappears and goes to another dimension. A black hole is a three-dimensional object. It's not a funnel going to a point. It has an equal and opposite, and it's spinning like water going down the drain. When you pull the plug out of your bathtub, the water doesn't just go straight down. It spins because there's an energy density gradient, and the water and the air are different densities, and so they're trying to equalize. And when they pass by each other, they spin. The water spins down, and the air spins up. This is what happens in all black holes as well. So... Energy is coming from both sides and then spinning out, and it forms a toroidal shape. So black holes, and this includes the atom, by the way, because Nassim Harmin's theory includes the fact that black holes are basically all there is, and that a proton is a black hole, and that there's a black hole in the center of every star, and there's a black hole in the center of every galaxy. And so it's scalar black holes all the way up and all the way down. And they're forming a dual torus shape where information goes in across the event horizon, which is the boundary condition around the singularity of the black hole, beyond which 
you can't escape, including light. That's why they call them the black holes. And the information goes in and it gets spun back out again. It doesn't just disappear. And then it goes back in and it goes back out. And so you get a closed loop system and all the information that falls into a black hole gets encoded by the black hole. And you can see only the information on the event horizon. You can't see into the black hole. And so this is very important because this is just starting to describe not only cosmological black holes, but the black hole that is the proton. If the proton is a black hole, then there are tiny little uh, quantum scale black holes rotating around each other at the speed of light inside of every atom. And you're made of quintillions of atoms. So we literally are beings of black holes. We are in the structure of space-time resonating with the information of the field of space-time itself. This is how information is exchanged across all scales. This is how the universe is keeping track of itself and not getting confused. We're confused. The universe is not confused. The universe is keeping its structure very, very organized, and it's not changing crazily over periods of time. It's staying together. The big stuff is made of small stuff. So anything cosmological size is actually made of atoms. Everything is connected literally by the structure of space. That is not an esoteric statement to say everything's connected or that we are all one because there really is only one thing. It's space time doing its thing. And it gets very, very chopped up. It gets very, let's say, it gets very isolated in some ways because space-time has its balance and where there's an imbalance where you find a vortex because there's a density gradient in space-time from the cosmological scale down to the quantum scale. At every scale, space-time is spinning. So here's spinning space-time basically at a diameter of hundreds of kilometers and here's spinning space-time at a diameter of tens of thousands of light-years and here's spinning space-time at the diameter of microns, the carbon particle. Space-time is doing this, and matter is doing this at all scales. And then nature is mimicking that field patterning. And you see it in things like plants and agave and shells and turbulence when you're flying in an airplane. And algae blooms off the coast of Ibiza and the spiral arms of our galaxy. This is the old picture of our galaxy. Nassim Haramein likes to show in that movie Thrive by Foster Gamble that the galaxy is actually stars that go out towards the halo of the galaxy and come back in and then spin back out again. The sun takes about 250 million years to go around the galaxy. And so because the sun is only around 4 billion or the earth is only 4 billion, but the sun is only about 20 galactic rotations old because <laughs> it's 240 million for each rotation. Now, this is this is where Nassim is showing that all these toroidal structures are nested inside of each other, that the human heart has a toroidal energy field, and so does uh, a star, and so does a galaxy, and so does the atom, that we are embedded in this spinning vortexes of space-time, spin inside of spin inside of spin. When I was a kid, they told me that the Earth was going around the sun in circles. And so I was imagining when I was 10 years old that I had gone 10 times like this. 
But that's not accurate. The sun is moving, and it took Nassim to be one of the very first, if not the first person to animate the solar system moving. This animation is nearly 20 years old, and he had to get the best animators around at the time to use the best computers available to make that animation. People have taken that animation and then improved upon it, but it's basically showing that the sun is moving through the galaxy as the galaxy rotates. The planets are spiraling around the sun as it moves. So every planet is making a helical structure and each planet is making a different size helical structure because they have different orbits. And so here's kind of a 2.0 version of that. And I'm very much looking forward to the next level of this where you can just play with this and, uh, you know, zoom in and out. If it doesn't exist already, I'm surprised. I just haven't dug in to find it yet. But you start looking at the geometry of motion and the geometry of our solar system over time, and you see that these fundamental geometries related to the platonic solids and the most foundational geometries you can make are starting to emerge just from the periodicity of things like Venus and Earth here. This is our more modern view of the uh galaxy that came out only, I don't know, a decade ago or something like this, NASA put it out, and it was pretty interesting to see that they're basically showing now that there are 50,000 light-year emissions of gamma rays and X-rays coming out of the galactic center, forming a gigantic dual torus. I thought it was pretty cute. They used the same color that Nassim used for his animation. And isn't that awesome that your baby picture looks pretty much like the galaxy? We all started as a sphere. And when the egg got fertilized, boom, we're a dual torus. Literally, <laughs> our physical beings were a dual torus, which matches the structure of black holes on all scales. Then our cells start to divide, and they don't just divide randomly with blobs of cells sticking off. There's a very specific geometry to our cells. When we get to be eight cells old, we are a cuboctahedron. We are the vector equilibrium. We are the geometry of space-time itself at another fractal level. And then it goes on until we're 64 cells old. And not until after you get to be 64 cells old do your cells start to bifurcate, where one cell becomes a skin cell and one becomes a nerve cell, etc. This is very fundamental to the structure of biology as well as space-time. Here's showing the relationship between the star tetrahedron and putting a sphere around each one of those tetrahedrons. This is the important point, is that the sphere and the tetrahedron are the most fundamental relationship, like I was showing with the 19.47 degrees latitude with the, with the pyramids. Um, if you put a sphere around each tetrahedron in a 64 tetrahedron grid, then you get a 3D flower of life symbol. And this is the symbol that you've seen around the world. The nodal points of where these spirals overlap is giving you the points of the star tetrahedron. This is showing you the visualization of the spheres and the tetrahedrons together. Seed of life. This is the torus, the accretion disk of the information coming out mostly along the equator. That's why our galaxy has like a record waves of stars it's not flat it's more like the surface of an lp vinyl record with grooves on it because it's all cymatics the entire universe is 
the structure of matter is basically the resonating of the structure of space-time. It's the cymatics of space-time, if you will, which is cymatics being the visualization of frequency or vibration. So biology is the feedback mechanism for the universe to learn more about itself. Where information comes into our consciousness, we are able to quickly assimilate and learn and gain new information and then change our environment. This is uh, the universe being extending itself out to the very edge of what it can do and creating more coherency. So we are basically like antenna of information and our codons of our DNA, and we have 64 of them just by coincidence, or maybe it's not, we are encoding this information that goes way back through time where our ancestors have encoded experience into their DNA, genetic memory, biological memory, and it goes through generations. We've done tests and seen that trauma can be sensed by uh, generations born seven generations after the trauma, even though they never experienced the original source of the trauma. So it's a much more subtle and much more mysterious universe than the, let's say, traditional standard model physicists are talking about in universities right now. The C word is not the normal C word in physics. The C word in physics is consciousness. They do not want to say consciousness. As soon as you start talking consciousness in the context of physics, a half of the audience of physicists start to roll their eyes and they say, oh, well, that you can't quantify consciousness. So we're not going to go there because we need numbers. We need facts. We need data. We're not doing um, theology here. And so it's unfortunate because this dichotomy happened a long time ago, the separation of church and science. Science and church have been saying the same thing for a while now, but there's not a lot of people that are talking about the philosophical and religious and spiritual and the science at the same time. Fortunately for us today, we have those people on this multi-talk uh, panel of, the, of this epic series that we're doing here. Um, basically tying together all these loose ends because there's all these different disciplines that have connected the dots, but now we need to connect those dots and create even more coherency and try to get our act together. If we don't get our act together, it's going to get pretty dramatic pretty quick. We know we're making mistakes in what we're doing. We're pulling structures out of the ground and putting it into the atmosphere that shouldn't be there. And we're changing our local environment rather quickly. Thankfully, we're starting to realize that and we're starting to make adjustments. But I feel like by us understanding the most foundational principles of nature and applying that to our physics, applying that to our methodologies across all disciplines, applying that to the way that we think about ourselves and our own personal disciplines that we do on a spiritual and you know even physical level with things like yoga and exercise then we start tapping into the foundational structures of the universe and hopefully we then learn to resonate and vibrate in coherence with the universe instead of pushing up against stuff breaking stuff 
trying to destroy things. We've seen a lot of folks get very confused because they've been told things that do not feel in alignment with what their actual day-to-day life experiences. They've got parents or religious figures or a guru or an organized religion or an organization or a corporation or a media outlet pumping people with information, being like, this is the deal, this is how things work, and then all these folks look and feel and go inward, and they're like, that doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make sense because it doesn't, because they've decided to, you know, take on ideas and thought forms that are not in alignment with nature and the way the universe is working, and that's why we're seeing such incoherence today and so many people making very misinformed decisions, including things like my book says this and your book says that, and we're not happy. And so you've got this war happening in the Middle East right now. And gosh, I'm going to show you here in a little bit about how all this information is actually encoded deep into both traditions uh, the Islamic tradition and the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition. And not only that, other more ancient civilizations prior to that. And the knowledge has been passed down. The knowledge of the structure of the universe being passed down into ancient civilizations and all the way through time to our generation now, into our biological structures, into our societal structures, very fundamental ratios like the phi ratio is encoded in many different ways, in spirals, in branching, in the um, the wake that I was showing you earlier. This is Rafael Arujo from Brazil, great artist, showing kind of the architecture underlying the spiral and the curve. The universe does not make tetrahedrons. It makes spheres. But if you pack spheres together perfectly and they overlap, the fundamental geometry that centers all those spheres is a tetrahedral geometry, which is the vector equilibrium. We're starting to realize we should probably learn from nature and employ some of the techniques that nature does, like putting our solar panel field in the shape of a spiral and uh, a phi spiral, like a sunflower, because it's the most efficient way to get the most amount of light to the most surface. We're starting to do this also with um, CRISPR, Editing genes and editing the DNA molecule, which has this very fundamental structure related to uh, phi and the structure of space-time. And all these traditions in religion from thousands of years have encoded these same kinds of geometries. I really like this image because it's showing you very basic vibrating water with different frequencies of sound. Those are the cymatics uh, images, cymoglyphs at the top. And then you have all these various mandala images from various uh, religions, from Catholic, Aztec, Egyptian, Hindu, and then the CERN particle accelerator. And then you've got all these DNA molecules, basically just giving you that sense visually of how everything is connected through geometries, fundamental geometries that ancient civilizations have been aware of for thousands of years. These are 3,000-year-old platonic solids found, I think, in Scotland. These are the platonic solids. Take a sphere. You put spheres around six of them because they that's how many fit around this one circle. And then you put another circle. After that, you get a total of 13 circles, and you connect the center points 
of all those circles. It's called Metatron's Cube, and you can get each of the platonic solids emerging out of that structure. Tetrahedron, octahedron, cube, icosahedron, and dodecahedron. And the dodecahedron is right at the right um, angle that if you put a cube inside there, it intersects with the points of the dodeca. So all these structures are actually related to each other and embedded. This is the first image ever taken of an individual molecule, and those hexagonal structures are individual atoms. We did this probably over a decade ago. This was done by IBM initially. Now we have electron microscopes and quantum microscopes that can see down to the atomic level. And we're starting to be able to build molecules. And we're starting to edit DNA with CRISPR. We're really starting to get down into the very basic fundamental properties of matter at the smallest scale. Things like probability patterns of where subatomic particles are going to be sitting. Now let's jump to the Great Pyramid. Because Egypt has these gigantic structures. This is not a tetrahedron. This is a half of an octahedron. An octahedron is one of the platonic solids. It's a pyramid and a pyramid. This has a square base, not a triangular base. Now, a lot of folks are going to be talking about um, Egypt and the Great Pyramid throughout this day. So I'm going to kind of just glance over some of this because you could do a full hour just on one aspect of this one building, but I'm trying to get through a lot of information related to ancient Egypt. These are photos I took, I think, on one of my first trips there, and uh, it's just mind-blowing. If you ever get a chance to go to Egypt, I highly recommend it. It's even safe to go there right now, even though you might think it's not. It actually is very safe and uh, very interesting and beautiful folks. And you can go right up to the Great Pyramid. I like to say, like, you can get on a plane, get out in Cairo and get in an Uber and say, take me to the Great Pyramid. And you just pay, I think it's 20 bucks now. And it's a couple hundred meters from the cab to the Great Pyramid. And you're standing there in front of this thing like, what? How in the world did this get built? Like, we could not do this today, you guys. We really couldn't. It's not obvious how difficult it is to stack that many, 2,300,000 thousand stones average of two tons each height of 480 feet there's the original entrance blown out by dynamite by some western explorer and as you've heard and seen already there's quite an incredibly elaborate structure on the inside of the great pyramid this is not just uh some people throwing some stones together and then cutting a hole and digging a digging a, a tunnel or something like this the traditional egyptology story which was originated by Western, you know, European explorers going to Egypt in the 1800s. They were like, oh, yeah, dynastic, the dynastic Egyptians, the pharaohs, those guys must have built this. This must be Khufu's tomb. Really? <laughs> I, I still don't understand. Like, we know where the pharaohs are. They were all buried in the Valley of the Kings. They were not buried in the pyramids. There's no mummies in the pyramids. No pharaohs were found in the pyramids. That's the only statue ever found of Khufu, three inches tall. I don't think Khufu built the Great Pyramid. I don't think, you know, his son built Khafre Pyramid, and then his son built the Menkari Pyramid. That's the story, is that a pharaoh became pharaoh. He said, oh, damn, I better start getting my tomb together because it's going to take a while. And, you know, my lifespan at 5,000 or 4,000 something years ago is 
only about 45 years old. So I've got about 20, 25 years to get my tomb done, start building the pyramid. And it took them 20 years, supposedly, to build this. Really? <laughs> 2 million, 300,000 stones in 20 years. You're laying a stone every few minutes, 24 hours a day. I don't think so. You wouldn't be able to place a stone every minute, never mind carve them and move them to the site. It's so accurate, you guys. It's beyond, beyond. And it goes really, really deep, the geometry and the mathematics encoded by this structure. First of all, it's eight-sided. It's not even four-sided. You can only see it at certain times uh, on the equinox when the shadow is just right. So I'm just talking about the Great Pyramid, never mind the other pyramids. But let's take more look at the Great Pyramid. The half base of the Great Pyramid is a square whose perimeter is equal to the circumference of a circle with a radius equal to the height of the Great Pyramid. That is not a coincidence. There's only one size pyramid that does that. And then it gets even more crazy when you realize that the angle of the sides from the corner, it's 42, and on the faces, it's 5184. Well, those angles match the angles of incidence of where you see a rainbow in relation to where the angle of the light is coming to hit your eye. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> the circumference of the outer circle placed around the outside of the Great Pyramid space and minus the circumference of the circle placed inscribed inside the base, if you subtract one from the other, you get the speed of light. How in the world were the ancient Egyptians aware of the speed of light? How did they even know? That can't be a coincidence either. Because it goes beyond that. It turns out that the actual latitude and longitude line of the Great Pyramid itself is the speed of light. The latitude of the Great Pyramid is equal to the speed of light in meters per second. This can't be a coincidence, guys. So let's just cut right to the chase, right? How are ancient civilizations having profound knowledge of physics when According to what we know, no one was able to measure that in any possible way until maybe a hundred years ago or something is when we figured out speed of light. And we're still not sure exactly, exactly what it is because it may change. Everybody thinks it's absolutely constant. As far as I can tell, nothing is constant. And even the things that we call constants change, but they're changing very gradually over a long period of time. So we can't tell. But that remains to be seen. We don't know. The longest straight line that you can go on land on Earth is from Western Africa to Eastern China, and Giza is at phi on that line. That could be a coincidence. Sure, I guess. Now let's move into the work of Robert Edward Grant and Alan Green, who goes by barcode. These two, looking at the Ventruvian Man, which is the famous artwork by Leonardo da Vinci, started to realize that maybe there was more subtle information being encoded here. If you draw lines from the center point of the navel of the Vitruvian Man up to exactly where the fingers are touching the square, it is at an exact angle of 5184, the slope angle of the Great Pyramid. So he's encoding for you, actually, multiple Great Pyramids, as well as the relationship between the moon and the earth as 
described by squaring the circle. And the weird thing about this is that the Ventrivian man does not square the circle. The squaring of the circle, in case you guys need a refresher on what that means, is that you put a circle and a square over the top of each other, and the perimeter of the square is exactly the same as the circumference of the circle. It's an impossible task because, of course, a circle uh, involves pi, which is an irrational number, which is an infinite decimal that never repeats and it goes to infinity. So you can't actually square the circle, but you can get very, very close. But Da Vinci doesn't actually even get that close. He's encoding even more subtle, even more esoteric information. And if you guys want to dig into this, I highly recommend going to find Robert Edward Grant, robertedwardgrant.com and Alan Green. He goes by Bardcode, and his website is tobeornottobe.org. But if you just go find Bardcode, B-A-R-D code on social media, you'll find all of their work. And they've done a series of videos. Um, Alan has made these great animations of some of this mathematical information. It's called Giza, the Holy Grail of Geometry. I think it's going to be five parts total, and there's three parts out right now. Alan and Robert just got back from Giza yesterday <laughs> they were in egypt this whole last week with a whole crew of incredible folks and uh i'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more about that as uh information comes out from all of what those folks were doing this past week but i'll i'll let, i'll save it up for when it comes out um robert edward grant and ellen green and a whole crew of other uh, luminaries uh, just met together all at the same time so they could do some profound work. This is Robert Edward Grant's work on all the pyramids of the Giza Plateau, as well as the pyramids at Dashur, so the Bed Pyramid, the Red Pyramid. And he's looking very, very closely at the slope angles of all these pyramids. And it's very involved, it involves a lot of mathematics, but I can just say the bottom line is that the pyramids are encoding fundamental geometric ratios that relate to music. Yes, integers. These are expressing integers. So Robert did all these calculations and took the uh, height and the uh, base length measurements and looked at the ratios of height to base, giving you these different angles and analyzed it and translated it into vibrations based on a tuning uh, temperament that he created called precise temperament tuning, where you start with 432.081 hertz, not 432, a tiny, tiny bit different than 432. And then you do um, a very specific type of tuning regimen starting from A being 432.018, I believe, and might even be on this chart. Yeah, 081, 432.081. Uh, very fascinating. Um, it's gotten to the point now where pianos and even orchestras have tuned to this new tuning system, and it's unbelievable because it's very resonant, it's different, and it's very bright. I encourage you to check that out. You can look on Robert Edward Grant's YouTube channel for the 432 uh, Precise Temperament Tuning Playlist. This is Robert using GeoGebra, which is a geometry program where you can program in basically any geometries, looking at 
an analysis of the pyramids and tying together so many things, you guys. Uh, it's I, I obviously can't do <laughs> the Sim Armaids Unified Field Theory and the work of Robert Edward Grant and the work of Alan Green, who's figured out that William Shakespeare encoded a bunch of this information into his works. And it gets crazy, you guys. It gets really crazy because you start to see the connections between the solar system, the geometry of space-time, esoteric traditions, the work of masters like Leonardo da Vinci, the flower of life, more modern discoveries like the Mandelbrot set fractal, music, cymatics, it's all connected. Here's the bent pyramid. The story of the bent pyramid, the traditional story, is that they started building it and went, oh, no, it's going to be too tall. We messed up. It was a mistake. Let's change the angle for the rest of it. And then they changed it. They literally tell you that. You're on the Giza Plateau. And some of these guides are like, oh, yeah, they made a mistake. They were still working on how to make these things, and they didn't know what they were doing. No, that is incorrect. Alan Green figured out that they were very deliberately changing the angle there because they're giving you another very fundamental structure in biology, in, in, in the universe itself. It's called the relationship between a hexagon and a pentagon. And in chemistry, especially biological chemistry, and if there's anybody studying for their finals in biochemistry, they're pulling their hair out right now because of all these geometries of molecules in biology where it's a five and a six. And so this is what this is showing you. This is showing you the hexagon, and this is showing you the pentagon. And these angles are tight. Like, this is very highly precise. Alan has done a great job of measuring this in great detail. And here's another insight from Alan Green, you guys. This is beyond, beyond. This is the cover of Shakespeare's sonnets. You're like, oh, cool. It's cover with a couple lines and some stuff on it. But then Alan started looking at this very closely, and he's so observant. It's unbelievable. He's like, wait, why is there that big dot next to the G? And then there's two small dots, and there's that other. He started connecting the dots. And I, you should really just go watch his videos on his YouTube channel because this, this, as he unfolds it, but I'm just going to cut to the chase. Basically, you can draw a circle on the front of this thing and connect the end of those two lines with all the dots that are in all of the punctuation of all those um, words. And it starts to give you fundamental math and physics constants, including some that weren't even supposedly discovered yet at the time of Shakespeare's writings, including like the Euler-Mascheroni constant and phi and pi and the Bruns constant and phi minus one. So it, it's it's beyond. <laughs> and he also shows that basically that cover is encoding for you a coordinate, that all of these lines are showing you the earth and it's pointing to the Great Pyramid of Giza. And again, the all things point back to the Great Pyramid. So how is it that Da Vinci and Shakespeare all encoding information related to the pyramids. This is the sonnets. These are Shakespeare's sonnets. It's forming a pyramid. He purposely, he, meaning whoever Shakespeare was, Alan Green has figured out that Shakespeare is not Shakespeare. Hey, Shakespeare was hey. not a, a guy. There was nobody named Shakespeare. Um, you know, there's no tax records from Shakespeare. There are no letters from Shakespeare to anybody else. That was a pseudonym, and there was a group of people 
putting out work as Shakespeare, including John D., Edward de Vere, and Francis Bacon, at least. But gosh, Thank you, man. this is a this could be like a twenty hour presentation on Alan's work. Alan's work is deep and profound. So that was a little taste of what Robert and Alan are up to. And like I said, they just got back from Egypt yesterday, and we're about to hear a whole new level of discoveries. I'm sure are about to come out. So follow those guys on the socials. I just wanted to get here and circle back to the fact that we're still discovering stuff in the Great Pyramid. And only a couple of years ago, a few years ago, Scan Pyramids Project announced the cavities discovered um, above the Grand Gallery and behind the original entrance. We're trying to figure out how to get in there. Hopefully we're going to figure out some sort of technology because we are pretty damn sure there's another gigantic void in the pyramid and all kinds of chambers are probably in there. Um, Robert and Alan theorized that Da Vinci had a map of the Great Pyramid that has since been lost, and he encoded that information into the Vitruvian Man. So check out on YouTube The Real Da Vinci Code. Search The Real Da Vinci Code in YouTube, and you'll see this presentation showing that the lines on Vitruvian Man, the 14 lines where he cut them up into 14 parts like the myth of Osiris, it's showing you that there's chambers above the king's chamber. And so hopefully someday we're going to find that. Maybe we can make a little hole and drill into those chambers and send a little blimp onto a little pole, flies around, takes pictures, you know, video, and it has to land back on that thing and deflate so you can pull it back out. That's probably the best way to not mess up the chamber. This is a shot of a group of us uh, with the Simharmane and Resident Science Foundation visiting the Giza Plateau. These are incredibly large blocks at the base of the Menkari Pyramid. And notice the erosion on those blocks. Um, Robert Schock thinks that it took at least 80,000 years of erosion to, to have that kind of uh, weather erosion, because that's mostly water erosion. And we obviously know that there's not been a lot of rain in, in North Africa for quite some time. <laughs> Apparently, every 20 or 25,000 years, the Northern African uh, Sahara changes from being lush and green to desert to lush and green to desert. And they've seen that in the sediment that uh, falls from the windstorms off of the west coast of Africa in these layers. They can see that it used to be green. And so the Sphinx erosion is, you know, famously Robert Schock and John Anthony West pioneering that work, that the Sphinx is probably a lot older than has been let us led to be believed. Um, these are incredibly large stones that are just on the floor, basically right next to the Great Pyramid. Or Actually, this is next to the Khafre's Pyramid. Those lines are showing you where individual blocks are placed. These are 100-plus tons, some of them. And people don't even notice, you know, you're with all these guides and they're like, look at the pyramids. Meanwhile, you're seeing stones that we would have a very hard time moving today. Let's look at this traditional story for a second. When I was in probably sixth grade, I think I had a teacher that was like, oh, let's talk about the pyramids and showed us these pictures of the slaves pulling these rocks up this ramp. Turns out the ramp would have more stones in it than the pyramid. And we don't find any of these stones anywhere. This story is not correct. Let's just <laughs> say it. This is not how it happened. They get crazy. Some people are like, oh, yeah, they put platforms on the outside and moved them up like this. This is the biggest crane I could find a picture of. And we're having a hard time moving stuff that's that size. We need a crane this big with diesel fuel and modern technology. 
maybe you could lift something bigger if the crane doesn't have to move. If the crane just sits there, then in a boatyard, you can put the hull of a cruise ship uh, or the the bridge of a cruise ship down onto the hull of a cruise ship. And if you want to move something really big, you need like 150 wheels and, you know, you can barely move it and you have to close roads and it has to be perfectly paved and you have to have a diesel truck. This is how we move giant things today. We have no idea how they were able to move these blocks. They were not doing this pulley system and they didn't have ramps on the inside of the pyramid that we haven't discovered yet. This is all theories of Egyptology without thinking physics, without thinking of the logistics of how this actually could have worked. Doubtful that they had a column of water and they were floating these blocks up the side, all sorts of fun theories come out about what they were doing. I mean, maybe they use sound. We can levitate styrofoam with sound, but we're not exactly able to levitate, you know, tens of tons with sound yet, but maybe that's a thing. But what was the real purpose of the pyramids? You know, those guys, uh, JJ and Desiree just talked about how they thought it was an energy production uh, device and that it could have been a, a water hammer and water could have come up through the subterranean chamber Christopher Dunn wrote this book. He's a power plant. He's another proponent of the theory that the pyramid was for energy production. Perhaps Nikola Tesla understood what the uh, aquifer underneath the pyramid was uh, doing by amplifying the electricity generated naturally, piezoelectric effect of water moving over crystal of the quartz that's a lot of what the Giza Plateau and sandstone is made of. And so Tesla was trying to amplify electricity and send it wirelessly. We probably didn't have to put all those telephone poles up around the world, but of course they wouldn't have been able to make any money selling us poles and wires and putting a meter at the end of the wire. So the powers that be went in a different direction and Tesla got squashed. But we're now in the days where we're rediscovering this ancient information and connecting these dots from esoteric information to religious information to physics information to engineering and technological uh, marvels that are happening in real time as we speak. Um, It's an exciting time to witness the return of ancient technologies. This is the Baghdad batteries. We know that people understood how to generate electricity thousands of years ago, and they could use it to electroplate things to cover things in gold. We find a lot of ancient stuff covered in gold, which is a great conductor of electricity. Uh, so the pyramids are likely a combination of a spiritual device designed to help you tap in to the subtle realms of the universe, let's just say, because there's so many different frequencies of energy vibrating across the electromagnetic spectrum, and we see and hear about one ten billionth of the information that rides the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's uh, it's not fair to say that we think we understand what's going on. It's like you're looking through a cocktail straw at the universe and moving your hand around a lot and saying, oh, okay, just add up everything we've seen in this tiny little sliver and say, okay, this is the nature of reality. We probably don't know. <laughs> What is the, wait, what's going on in this picture? That's the Ark of the Covenant. If you look in the Bible, they say very, very clearly, okay, Moses, this is the deal. You got to build this box. It's called the Ark and it's got gold in the outside and gold in the inside. And it's an energy device. It fits perfectly in the sarcophagus. Is that a coincidence? Robert Edward Grant standing next to the sarcophagus looks down. 
wait, what's that? There's an alpha and an omega embossed on the lid or in the rim of the sarcophagus. Next time you're in the king's chamber, go to the back side of the of the sarcophagus, looking out towards the rest of the chamber, and then down in front of you on the right side, near the right corner there, you'll see these two uh, figures. I'm running out of time, but uh, Chinese pyramids. There's pyramids all over China, and they're laid out in a very specific arrangement. Look at that. China, and then Giza, and then Yucatan Peninsula and Mexico, and then the stars in the belt of Orion, all having similar alignments. This could be a coincidence, but I don't Jamie, think so. You, you, um, you have a little extra time because one speaker didn't make it today, so you can, you know, you can close out on your own pace. How many more minutes? How many do you want? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. Well, I could just keep going until you tell me, tell me when I have yeah, time. How about you go for another, go for another 10 or 15 minutes? Okay, no worries. So those three pyramids I just showed you, those complexes, to actually make that same kind of alignment, even though I know we're on a sphere and everything, and it's not just a straight line, but still, the fact that step pyramids, the triptych doorways, the gable, corbel arch, the mummification, we're talking across the world, ancient civilizations were doing the same things, building the same things, some cases having same symbology for their, you know, deities and things like this. Now let's look at China. Let's go to the Forbidden City. This is the Fu Dog guarding the entrance of the Forbidden City. You've got the Fu Dog in China. You've got the Sphinx in Egypt. Both are this dog, cat kind of looking guy. Wait, what's that guy? What's the, what's the, what's the Fu Dog have under his paw? Oh, a proton. It's a 3D flower of life. A 3D power of life is the geometry of the little quantum vacuum fluctuations that are oscillating inside of a proton. 10 to the 60 of them. That's a one with 60 zeros. Planck scale, tiny little oscillators, Planck spherical units, you could call them. And they're all overlapping, creating those little pedal structures, the Vesica Pisces, 3D style. Michael Evans calls that the trion ray, a three-sided solid with curved lines, not straight lines, but you can get a three-sided object by having a point and then three petals, and it comes back to the point. And you see, boy, do you see that in nature everywhere, right? So why is the food dog protecting that? That's He's protecting the knowledge. He's protecting the information. This is the most fundamental information there is, you guys. If you understand the proton, if you understand the singularities and the black holes and the dynamics of space-time, then you understand light, you understand time, you understand gravity, you probably then understand propulsion and how to take yourself across the universe. So if there are ships flying around with folks in there that figured out how to do that, they must have figured that out a long time ago. And they must have been working on it for a really long time. And it's not hard to imagine because since I was born decades ago, the amount of change in technology and coherency in the universe is astonishing. I could not do a voice call with video when I was born. The amount of change we've seen, just keep extending that thought. What is your cell phone going to look like in a thousand years? I highly doubt you're going to be like going, uh, 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 autocorrect. That's not going to be the thing. 
we're already starting to figure out how to interface directly with the technology, right? Neuralink and all these companies starting to help figure out um, paralyzed people that can't communicate or can't move. We're starting to interface our technology with our biology, and we're starting to have AI start to get closer and closer to our neural net capabilities. Pretty soon, AI will be smarter than humans and will be joining. And so where this is heading, we don't know. But it seems to me like we're heading towards more coherency and reducing human suffering through understanding the geometry. I wanted to go there myself, so I finally got to the Forbidden City, took this picture. I got a selfie stick from the vendor guy outside because I knew there was this little gate thing around it. And I wanted to get my phone close up to the to the flower of life. Cause I had been doing presentations like this for, you know, well over a decade before I got to stand there in front of this thing and take an actual picture uh, of the food dog that I've shown so many times. If you ever get a chance to go to the forbidden city, highly recommended, unbelievably cool. Uh, this food dog sitting on a square pillar with a carpet that's also square at, at an angle. So it gives you that uh, square over square, like all the Catholic, windows in the cathedrals uh what's that called a a rose rose something i'm forgetting the forbidden city is showing you including the statue in the back of the forbidden city that has this proton looking thing with these bows and these ribbons and the sim saw that he said oh look they had to tie it down so it wouldn't fly away and sure enough that's the theory right if you understand this structure you might be able to make a star you might be able to make a little sun and if you had a structure that was resonating with the structure of the vacuum then it would probably have a gravitational effect it could levitate and you'll notice when you go to egypt that all the entrances to the temples has a sphere it's not a circle. It's a sun disk. They'll say it's a sun disk, but it's actually a sun sphere. If you go to Karnak, there's a ruined arch that's one of the biggest ones. And the bigger the archway, the more convex the sun disk is, showing you that it's a sun sphere. It's an actual sphere. And it's not just a sphere. It's a sphere with wings. The sun disk with the wings on the entrance to all the temples is showing you that they had a technology that understood how to harness gravity. We have figured out how to harness an invisible field that was very mysterious to us. We would see lightning and go, what's that? What's going on over there? Benjamin Franklin, right, with the kite and the, the key and trying to figure out how to get electricity to come down to him and stuff. Now we've got electricity going into our devices, and I can sit here talking to you, and think of something and move my lips while my vocal cords vibrate the air between me and the computer's microphone. The microphone hears the vibrations in the air, translates that into electrochemical impulses going through the circuitry of the computer, transmitting it wirelessly to my router. My router talks to this dish sitting in my yard, which then talks to satellites. I'm using Starlink. And then these satellites are going around the earth and then translating that stuff back down to the routers on the ground and then into your computer and into your speaker and vibrating the air between you and your computer. And then it's vibrating the hairs on the inside of your ear and it's making these little electrochemical impulses in your neocortex and it's firing all these neurons. And then you're going, 
oh, cool, I understand what he's saying. That is unbelievable. That is a miracle all the way up and down from the biology to the technology. If the kids today just only could feel how unbelievable that is, they would not be bored. They would not just be stuck on TikTok all day on their phones. They would be out exploring the universe and being marveling at the sheer existence that you can think about the fact that you exist. It's unbelievable that we're even here, you guys. And the fact that we're starting to crack these codes, that ancient civilizations might have encoded information that came from another tetra, extra tetra, real information being given to us. Oh, then we could build this thing and then we could have control over gravity and then we might be able to move really heavy objects and align them perfectly and cut them super accurately and leave clues to for later generations that we understood this structure, we understood the geometry and the dynamics of space-time, that it's an infinite tetrahedral grid array and that all black holes are toroidal vortex dynamics and that everything spins side of spin and side of spin from infinitely large to infinitely small 122 orders of magnitude and energy density gradient physics doesn't understand that they don't understand it so much that they call that the vacuum catastrophe because it's a catastrophe that they have no clue how the quantum vacuum can be so dense and the cosmological density to be so not dense. Now we have new, new information coming out from James Webb Telescope saying, oh yeah, check it out. Here's this giant galaxy that has all these stars, a huge, fully formed galaxy that's only 300 million years since the Big Bang. That is not supposed to have happened. That messed all of them up, and they're all going back to the drawing board and going, uh, oops, maybe the universe is 13.82 billion years old. Maybe it's like 26 billion years old now. <laughs> That's what it, we're rewriting the textbooks as we speak because the James Webb is the most accurate uh, utensil that we've ever had to measure anything. And it's unbelievable the information they're getting back. Meanwhile, go around the world and you're like, oh, here I am in Bangkok, Thailand, and they also have this proton 3D flower of life. It's everywhere. You start looking for flower of life and you start looking for these geometries, you find it everywhere. Let's go I Ching style, right? How many codons are there in the I Ching? Or how many hexagrams, I should say, are there in the I Ching? 64. They're either six solid lines or six broken lines. The only thing you can make with six solid lines is a tetrahedron. And what do you need to make the opposite tetrahedron pointing the opposite way so you can get the star tetrahedron? You need six broken lines. So the I Ching is giving you the most foundational geometric information that you need to build the structure of space-time itself. And I doubt that that's a coincidence. I would guess that the I Ching is encoding this information, the yin-yang is encoding the double tube torus dynamics of a black hole, Nassim, again, had to pay animators over a decade ago to animate uh, a yin-yang to show that this is actually the dual torus dynamic of black holes at all scales. So this would be the Earth, the Sun, the galaxy, the universe, the energy field surrounding your body, the proton, the atom. This is foundational. And so, again, if you can understand the geometry and the dynamics of space-time and internalize that into your biological structure, into your consciousness – and then translate that into your actions, what you do on a daily basis, and your methodologies, and your practices, and your music, and your art. 
you can create highly resonant structures and it resonates with other people and they like it. <laughs> it's called beauty. It's called art. It's called expression. We're seeing this information being encoded all over the place in all scales, in all cultures. And there's a tradition that probably predates dynastic Egypt, predates Mesopotamia, predates Samaria, and that is a culture that was destroyed by a cataclysmic event. One of our greatest uh, evidences of this today is the Assyrian temple in Abydos, uh, down the Nile a couple hundred kilometers from Egypt, I mean from uh, Cairo. These are massive megalithic stones. This is nothing like the temple that is above it and off to the right. That's the Assyrian temple. Uh, I'm sorry, that's the King Ramses uh, temple and King Ramsey probably found this temple and said, this place is awesome. I want my temple next to this temple. And so they built their temple, but this temple is so old that it's down below the level of the sand because we're talking geo- geologic time buried this thing over time. This is seriously anomaly. Uh, you've got 60, 70 ton stones that are sitting tongue and groove on top of other ones. So they had to be lowered down. They couldn't just be slid across. So now you're lowering this stuff. You're not just moving it. You're not just pushing it. It just shows you like they're daring you to try to figure out how they did it. And then you can start to see this very accurate as well. And then there are these puffy structures coming out of it off the stones kind of looks like Cusco, Peru. So you see similar structures in Peru and in, in North America, in South America, in Asia, in Africa, all around the world, megalithic structures. This is the flower of life on the side of the pillar there in the, in the Assyrian. I got there just in time to take this shot before the sun uh, went away. And this is when I first saw it. It blew my mind because that's very highly accurate. You can't just draw that freehand. If you've ever tried to draw the flower of life, you know how difficult it is. There's Nassim Harami with Foster Gamble, the guy who created the Thrive movie, and that's uh, Mohammed Ibrahim, uh, very great Egyptologist and guide in Egypt. Uh, this is back when he had unfortunately broken his arm. This is graffiti on the other side of that same column. You can tell it's nothing like the flower of life. It's super accurate. You can tell that they understood the geometry of space-time. 64 tetrahedron grid with a sphere around each tetrahedron gives you a 3D flower of life symbol. So there's the Egyptian symbol, and here's the solution for how that creates quantum gravity. Each one of those little plonk spherical units, 10 to the 60 of them, packed together to create a proton, which is a tiny little black hole. And protons inside of atoms are black holes orbiting themselves. So flower of life, You've seen it a million times. It's now permeated into our culture. It's all over the place. And it's even in ancient civilizations all over the place. Look at how accurate that is. That is not just red ochre. This is almost like the atomic structure of the granite has been altered, and it's just there. You can't rub it off. Are we done, Neil? Two minutes. Flower of life around the world in one minute. (laughs) Flower of Life is all over the place, even in India, at the Golden Temple, even in cathedrals, even in Tibet, all over the world. Culture is showing us this overlapping spherical waveforms. Again, this is the foundational geometry of the proton. Even Leonardo da Vinci was encoding it. 
So I'll leave you with this idea. Maybe ancient information came from off of our tetra, ancient civilizations, pre-cataclysm, pre the younger dry cooling period that happened after a comet hit North America 12,500 years ago. That civilization passed information down through the survivors of that cataclysm, and it got encoded into stories that went around the Mediterranean and led eventually to Egypt and eventually to the Bible and eventually to Muhammad and to the Torah. And Da Vinci went from Italy to Egypt and learned a bunch of this information, brought it back to Europe, and then it got passed down through the works of Shakespeare into the Rosicrucians, into the Freemasons, to George Washington, who designed the dollar bill, who put that pyramid on the on the dollar bill with the eye. That's a very fundamental relationship, too. So check out the work of Robert Evergrant and Alan Green and Nassim Haramein, because they have cracked the code of various aspects of this. Um, this is Robert's work showing that inside the flower of life, you get the relationship between the meter, the cubit, and the yard. Turns out the imperial measurement system, the Egyptian cubit measuring system, and the metric system are all related. They're not random. That's profound in itself. This was alluding to those stones in all these places looking similar, like in Cusco. This is near Bolivia. And I just want to get here to the end. Last few slides. Uh, this is back to Egypt and showing that they were using some sort of ancient technology to carve this rock. This was not done with a little pounding stone. The last thing I want to leave you guys with, though, here is this important image showing that all religions are related to each other. This is the history of a religion. Notice in the center of this image, you'll see the Jewish star and the Islamic uh, crescent and star and the Christian cross. And they're very close together, those three religions, in one of those branches. <laughs> so just know that the Palestinians and the Jews right now both encoded the same information in a different way. It's like music or dance. You can dance with different styles, and it's okay. <laughs> Everybody can dance or pray in a different way. Let's celebrate the diversity of faiths on this planet instead of fighting against each other because we're interpreting the same set of information in a different way, and instead celebrate as if we are on festival earth. Thank you guys. Much love. Just to, for those who've been here for a long time, Rama Wright Mother said that uh, the Giza Pyramid was built 
in Orion's belt mm-hmm. at a place called Aldebaran, right? Mm-hmm. What was the master, the star, starship commander that brought it? Klala. Klala. Mm-hmm. So Commander Klala uh, brought the Giza pyramid fully precisely constructed at, and lowered it right on the land where it sits right now. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really creative thinking going on in that little discussion. But uh, that is a... Uh, Maybe next week we'll go back and read about it in the Keys of Enoch. It's kind of interesting. Uh, so we're going to go on now, and this one is called Mysteries of the Knights Templar. Oh, well, which one? Oh, I'm sorry, the 40s. I, yes, yes, right, Commander. All right, so this is a reshaping society with female neuroscience. What are the consequences of a male neurological model for scientific research? I was just thinking, you know, all these timelines that we've been listening to on these mm-hmm. programs here. Time is collapsing in on itself. Right, Rama? Yeah. So that we're not waiting another Holocazillion years for this. It's it's happening. It's happening now. now. And don't ask us what that word means, please. <laughs> so, what are the consequences of a male neurological model for scientific research <laughs> on our collective and on each one of us as individuals? Kayla. Osterhoff, Ph.D., and host Regina Meredith unpack the institutional architecture of a society crumbling without benefit from study of the female mind, from leadership templates uh, wired for dopamine-driven rewards, to work environments structured around a 24-hour biorhythm, we appear to have lost connection and compassion, attributes ascribed to the feminine. Osterhoff proposes that as we acknowledge the unique neural networks of the female brain, then it's possible to shift the dominant paradigm toward emotional intelligence. How can reading, and it goes on, dot, dot, dot. So this is 47 minutes. So let us begin.
The most underutilized resource on the planet has been the female human brain, according to neuroscience researcher Kayla Ostroff. This is not just clickbait. It's true. Part of the reason is that most studies done in the fields of medicine and psychology are done on males. So very little has been known about the unique capabilities of the female mind, which You've made it your life's work, your passion. In fact, you gave us a lot of food for thought last time. And since then, you have since gained your PhD in, let me say it right, neuropsychophysiology. Yes. So congratulations. Thank you. There's so much being discovered almost by the day. And this obviously our audience resonated very well with the story. And so we want kind of a carry on of what happened before between us when that information has been forwarded quite a bit since then. Yeah. So one of the things is I want to go back and touch on for those who haven't seen the previous interview. Why is it that all these medical studies, it's Mm -hmm. like, Tell us the percentage of studies too yeah. are all done on men. We always think, oh no, these studies are are male and female. We yes. just make that assumption. Yeah. But that's not true. Tell us mm-hmm. the types of studies, the percentage of studies yeah. that are mostly male and so forth. So we see mm-hmm. the kind of the problem here. Yeah, so this problem dates back to really the beginning of time or the beginning of scientific inquiry, whenever that started. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were two main reasons that women were not studied or not included in the scientific inquiry. And that's because of one, women make risky research subjects because they can potentially become pregnant at any time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's reason one. And reason number two is more frustrating and really the reason that's lingering and the reason why women are not included in studies today. And that is because of our biological complexity in comparison to our male counterparts. What I mean by that is there are more moving parts in the female biology and women's biology is driven by the ovarian hormone cycle, which is very different than the male biology, which is driven by the adrenals. And so what all that boils down to is that the female biology and physiology is constantly changing little by little each day and ebbing and flowing through four different significant phases each month. And this is why I say women are actually four different women every month, physiologically speaking. Well, so, we have four different seasons. The earth herself yeah. has her seasons. Absolutely. Yeah. That reflect these exact seasons that you talk about in terms of our neurobiology. Exactly. And so because of this ebb and flow and this constant change in our physiology, it makes us very difficult research subjects. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in 1977, the FDA formally banned all women of childbearing potential from all clinical research. <laughs> And that ban remained in effect until 1993. Oh if you can God. even fathom. And that. this is for every kind of product, psychological every, studies, yes. social studies, yes. everything. We've been blocked out. We're not even accounted for. But yeah. as you say, the men with their kind of very regular type of testosterone mm-hmm. production yes. and 24-hour cycles, it's low-hanging fruit. Absolutely. So what's happening is in our modern fast-paced, evidence-based society, we all want what? Fast, cheap data. Exactly. The only way to get it is to study male subjects, and that's including humans and animals. Even in our animal studies, we're using male subjects because they are more biologically simple. And what this really boils down to is it is cheaper to study them because you can you can take data collection from several months, which is the requirement to study women, down to a few days with men. 
And you can also, you don't have to control for so many factors because they're biologically consistent, right? So they're the, the same subject every day. Women are a different subject. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. from a practical point of view, it makes sense. Yes. But it's basically junk data. It doesn't yes. apply to half of the population. Absolutely, absolutely. So because of that um, gap in our information, that scientific gap in our information, we don't understand women. And the amount of data that we have on women and their bodies and how they really operate and what they need in order to thrive is minuscule in comparison to the data that we have on male bodies and male biology. And what we've done is we've taken that template of our science all the data that we have, which is 99.9% of it, and that's how significant it is. And then we have our 1% of data that is female-centric or at least includes Jeez. women. And we are creating our societal structures based on the data that we have, which is very male-centric. Well, I suppose it's no surprise for most of our viewers that society, institutions, and so forth, have been, the architecture of these have been set up for the male mind. Yes. Period. Yes. And the male emotional model and mental model. Absolutely. That's not working anymore. They're all, I mean, there isn't an institution that isn't really crumbling Absolutely. to one degree or another in need of transformation. So this seems to me to be a key component. Mm-hmm. Men and women have to be able to stand side by side and work in a complex way together. Yeah. For whether it's in education or medicine or politics, social structures, military, yeah. even in the military. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk. I mean, we talked about this a little bit in our last show about how the female brain would fit into the military because, and we'll get into the rest of this yeah. in a moment, yeah. but it was so fun <laughs> <laughs> that the male brain is not particularly wired for consequence, but it is wired very well for direct action. So let's yeah. talk about what this means when you have male leaders mm-hmm. in the military mm-hmm. and in politics without the modulation of the female mind. Yeah, so masculine leadership, male leadership, um, and feminine leadership or female leadership are two very different balls of wax, right? But in our society, we only have representation of male leadership. Even our female leaders are leading in a very male. Yeah, they're adopting male. Yeah, patterns. Yes. And that's why we barely see um, many female leaders. And it's also why we see women leaders burning out. And we can talk about that in a minute. But um, so what we have is this male centric template of leadership, which works really well for the male neurology. It is actually perfectly aligned with the male neurology, which is wired for productivity. Mm-hmm. It's very systematic. It's linear and it's about objects in space. It's about physical things that you can see and tangible results. And actions you can take. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, the female neurology is very different. It's wired completely differently. And female leadership is very different. It's not about what you can see and touch and smell. It's about what you can't see. It's about what you can sense, what you can feel. Mm-hmm. So, And consequence is a part of it. Absolutely. Now, the consequence piece really goes down to a psychological predisposition that men and women have. Mm-hmm. So going back to the beginning of time, men have taken on the role of provider for the family, for the community, whatever, mm-hmm. right? And so in this role, it is really important to be focused on self-achievement, 
It is really important to be focused on action and what you can do because your family or your tribe or your community is relying on you to be successful meet your goals and come back and bring what you produce. So to believe, to be clear headed and confident in your actions. Yes. And it's super important to have that in society and we have it Mm -hmm. on, on a global scale, Mm -hmm. right? Now we've become a little too focused just on productivity Mm -hmm. and that's where we've lost the other side of the coin that we really need that is starting to make its appearance now through feminine leadership. Mm -hmm. Now, that is that women, since the beginning of time, have taken on more of a caretaker role in Mm -hmm. society. Preservation of life. Right, exactly. So it's about connection. It's about consideration of the collective. And it's about what is the collective impact of my actions versus the male um, psychology, which is not necessarily so concerned about that. It's about what will be the impact on my success of these actions. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go ahead then and dive in looking technically at the differences about here. I have some, the denser neural network in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Mm -hmm. Women have a denser neural network. Let's talk about the implications of that first. Absolutely. So generally the male brain is, is a larger Mm -hmm. organ. Um, but, and the female brain is a smaller organ, but the female brain actually has denser neural networks in specific areas that are related to these different female centric cognitive capacities. Mm -hmm. The prefrontal cortex is one area, the hippocampus and the insula. So all three of these areas also interestingly have high densities of receptors for estrogen and progesterone. Okay. So let's talk about what each of those are tasked with. Yes. Yes. So the prefrontal cortex is, um, it's kind of your lens of the world. It's hard to generalize Mm -hmm. each area because it's not really how the brain works. Mm -hmm. I know it's sensationalized as this area does this and this area. It's not really like that, but in general, the prefrontal cortex is about your lens of the world and it's it's kind of how you see things but it's also how you see yourself. It's also responsible for discernment, decision making, um and kind of these executive functions. That's the prefrontal cortex. The hippocampus is involved in memory. Um that's kind of the biggest mm-hmm. is memory. Mm-hmm. Um and and specifically episodic memory is more strong in the female brain than in the male brain, which is more about working memory. Yeah, we'll get into that in a moment. Yeah. Talk about the insula and then yeah. let's get best back to that working memory thing. Yes. So the insula is all about emotional regulation and emotional intelligence. It's also about understanding the emotional undercurrents of a situation. Like reading a room. Exactly. Now, really interestingly, too, about the female brain is it has a larger mirror neuron uh, system. What's that mean? So a mirror neuron system is taking in um, nonverbal cues to understand the emotional undercurrents of situations. Mm-hmm. So in the female brain, there is this larger mirror neuron system, and it's attributed to one of the factors in, um, in, you know, intuition or female mm-hmm. intuition, which mm-hmm. is literally a real thing that now we can measure, um, through scientific inquiry. 
So this mirror neuron system allows this larger, stronger mirror neuron system in the female brain allows women to take in nonverbal information to understand not only what the situation might require that is not being said, but to also understand what somebody else may need, what the community may need, and to establish stronger rapport. Right. Okay, so now we take all this, we go back to the war room. Until war becomes extinct, it's still here. Mm. And so we go back to the military as a model just because it's so extreme. Yeah. So the ideal, it seems to me, would be you would want your supreme commander to probably be female as it's taking in all of this subtle data and preservation of the species is kind of innately woven into that. But then you would want to have the right-hand man, the strategist, be male. Absolutely. It sounds like. Yes. Yes. And then when you go into the execution in the field, Mm -hmm. I mean, it really helps, I think, to not have consequence in mind when you're a young soldier. And it's very unfortunate because these young men sign up Mm -hmm. for the excitement of camaraderie and battle and everything, and then the poor mother's left crying when their sons are taken down. I mean, and this is just kind of the way it's wired. Absolutely. And it it comes down to these cultural norms as well. And just the expectations that we have Mm -hmm. on genders. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is really important. I. Think that every leadership role that is driving our global economy that is driving um the he- the collective healing of our world these positions really need to be two absolutely a male and a female consequence has to be long-term yeah. view yeah um reading the net effect yeah. in the end really has to be part of the equation yeah. and look around it's not not no. on any level no it's absolutely not you know our collective health in this world and in humanity and even the earth's health it seems like we're on this brink mm-hmm. of of breaking mm-hmm. right um and the solution i feel and what i'm seeing is is happening little by little is honoring the feminine in partnership with the masculine and understanding that we need both roles in order to bring balance and harmony back into humanity. Yes. Yeah. It can't be this one-dimensional story of these repetitive cycles because, A, that is not reality. It's not the nature, as I said earlier, of the earth and her cycles. It's yeah. not the nature of the cosmos and its cycles. It's not the nature of beings. Yeah. We go through troughs and then we go to great heights and troughs again where yeah. we recollect and we learn and then we explore outward again. Yeah. I mean, this is natural, but nothing, not one system we have is designed based on this. Yeah. So you're one of the young pioneers that's going to be changing that um, for all of us in yeah. the future. So I want to go back to this working memory thing, because this yeah. is a thing that is very frustrating for women. Yes. Because <laughs> you'll be, you'll read something. I mean, I research a lot, right? Yeah. So I've read a lot you know, of everything. And so I'll understand something in a subject, uh, feel like I have a a grasp on it enough Mm -hmm. that I can converse on it. But if I'm with a man who says, no, no, this, because this particular event happened on this particular day and this happened and you start becoming overwhelmed with these kind of very bald facts that are detracting from what you feel is the larger flow of the story. Mm -hmm. And women generally tend to shut up at that point. 
feel mm-hmm. like, well, okay, yeah. but I don't have the facts at hand when you can actually yeah. see the flow of the story and you know the flow of the story. Yeah. So this actually goes back to a really interesting aspect of um, human development, human neurological development. Mm-hmm. So when studying human babies, we have found that the male babies, the boys, have a stronger reaction to objects in space. Mm-hmm. And the female babies have a stronger reaction and connection to faces and emotional um, uh, output, right? Mm-hmm. So because of this, even in adulthood, women are more connected to emotions and facial expressions where men, males, are more connected to things in space. So this actually aligns with the different memory capacities that we each have, right? Mm-hmm. So with men having a stronger um, capacity for this uh, working memory, that mm-hmm. makes sense because it's objects in data, space, it's timelines, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas women have have a stronger episodic memory, yes. which is about the emotional undercurrent of the situations. It's the story. And how the story played out. Yes. Yeah. So if we think about this, how we are teaching our young people should align with this, right? We should have a combination of timeline and facts and stories that are just as important. Learning those emotional undercurrents of situations is going to help young women to understand history, to understand certain subjects, and for them to retain that information. But how do we get to the point where women aren't intimidated to speak up, even if they may understand the episodic flow of a historical event very Mm -hmm. well, stand up against the facts that are being tossed out there by, say, a guy? Well, it's because we have this... um, cultural default to the male model mm-hmm. and what is important to the male model. Now, in my opinion, this is not something that we created on purpose. It's kind of just something that happens because our data is male centric. Yes. And our world is driven by data, right? Evidence based. So because we have gotten to this place where we're the male model is the default, what's important for the male model to thrive and operate at their highest level has become important on a societal level. Mm -hmm. Now, the solution to me is we just need to bring awareness around the female model. We need to start normalizing the female model at the same level as the male model. We need to start teaching the female model, which we do not do. Right. For instance, if you go back into any of your biology textbooks, go if you have one at home, go back and look at it. Page after page after page. What are you going to find? The male model. Right. Because it's the default. It's because it's what the data that we have. It's what we teach. But the only place you're going to find the female model specifically is when we're talking about reproductive health. (laughs) Women's health (laughs) has been boiled down to reproductive health, and that's only one tiny aspect. Yeah. There's everything else that we just don't understand that has implications on women and their role and function in society. So we need to start teaching that so that on a societal level, what's important for women to operate and thrive becomes also important on a societal level. It makes total sense. Now we get into something that's dicey because we have a lot to talk about. Men and dopamine, there's so much to talk about here oxytocin but yeah. let's talk about politics for a moment yeah so the politics right now are to degenderize the population so we uh-huh. don't really have masculine don't uh-huh. have feminine yes 
But you can't get away from that. No. When, when what we're talking about, we are male and female. Yes. Our brains do operate mm-hmm. differently. Our bodies biologically operate differently. How do you navigate the political mm-hmm. landscape when people are saying, well, you can't divide us up like that, male and female? Well, what I'm talking about is biology. Right. And neurology. Right. And physiology. And when I'm talking male and female, this is on a chromosomal level. So even those who don't identify as female but were born with the female chromosomes carry that throughout their entire lives. So they still operate in the way that we're talking about, right? right? So anyone, no matter how they identify um, as male, female, and I, I, I totally understand um, these issues around gender and I'm very cognizant and sensitive to those things, um, however, no matter how you identify the scientific Certain underpinnings chemicals or chemicals. It is the way yeah. that it is. So we do need to understand both so that we can support all people. Now, here's the thing where I think we've gotten it wrong on a societal level. I think we can all agree, or most of us in the world can all agree that we want peace and equality, right? Yeah. But the problem is the strategy that we've taken to come to a place of equality. The strategy is wrong. What we have done is level the playing field, standardize everything, and create the same playing field for everyone to come in and be able to play on, right? So the problem is we actually need a playing field that is expansive enough and customizable enough to meet the unique needs and strengths and qualities of each person, including male and female. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And so we're not looking to, oftentimes it has been, you know, it's kind of a common term that uh, within every male is the, within the male is the female and within the female is the male and, you know, we, all of that. But the reality is you're talking about, you're talking about functional, physiological, biological, neurological realities. Yeah. So let me ask you again, this is another one because we're coming up now and seeing more and more of it, which is when you go to transgender, when you're talking about mm-hmm. taking hormones, yeah. a female taking male hormones, for example, uh, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Now, what is that doing? What does that do to the brain? <laughs> well, um, what I would assume is it's very confusing for the brain because these the ovarian hormones are extremely important and impactful for female neurology and cognitive development. Right. Um, and testosterone is also important for the male brain, but not on the same level of capacity. So when you are eliminating or modulating these hormones, of course, it's going to have a physiological impact. The problem is we certainly don't study transgender Right. No, we if we're not study studying women, women we're not studying <laughs> exactly. They're a even greater uh, blind spot in our scientific right. inquiry. Right. So my answer is I don't know because we're not studying it. Right. So I don't know what the only guess what would implications happen. would be, but I could imagine that for the brain specifically, it would be very confusing. Mm-hmm. So we really need to study transgender folks and their neurology and the impact of these hormones because we know that hormones have a global modulatory impact on right. everything in our bodies. It's not just localized to, you know, sex and reproduction. Right. Since you said the word globalized, I'm going to hop back in the yeah. conversation because <laughs> I went astray on the politics and transgenderism because I'm curious about it. 
Um, but one of the other aspects of the female brain is that the two hemispheres and along the centrals seem to communicate a little more easily. Mm-hmm. Now that seems to me like it would have some very important ramifications. Oh, absolutely. It really changes everything about yeah. what we understand about the human brain. Yeah. Um, how many times have you heard like, oh, I'm a left versus right brain, right? Um, that's actually more in alignment with the male brain because the male brain has more localized, like regional activity and it has a stronger dominance of left or right. But the female brain is not really So you like mean that. like vacillating between left and right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. there's there's typically um each person each male will mm-hmm. have like a propensity to be more left or right brain. Mm-hmm. Um and you could technically say that about women but it's not it's not a one to one. It's not really a accurate comparison. So with women, there is, um, because of these, these denser neural networks, there is more connectivity between brain hemispheres yeah. and regions. So what this, uh, translates to is a global processing of information, a more global processing of information. That's why women tend to have an easier time thinking big picture. Right. They can kind of pull in all the different information, including the information that is not physically seen or touched, right? Mm-hmm. That emotional undercurrent information. Mm-hmm. And they and, process and it. Mix that with all of the data and the, yes. the ordinary kind mm-hmm. of left brain processing. Yeah. Yeah. So this goes back to a woman's intuition, which again is a real thing that we are understanding. Mm-hmm. And I also just want to make the caveat that intuition and emotional processing and, and productivity these are qualities that all humans have, mm-hmm. right? But what I'm talking about is the neurological um, propensity and the strength that each um, male and female has naturally. Right. Right. Okay. So going back to the male, because yeah. we all we have a lot of women watching that have yeah. little boys and little girls, yeah. and we have to see the strengths of each and yeah. and not try to condemn them and behave like the other. Yeah. This this is what I'm saying. I think the degenderization mm. it, that's where it's not a good idea when you don't let people live their natural state and you're politically trying to move them into another mm-hmm. state of being and a way of thinking and feeling that's not accurate for them personally. Yes. Well, and it also perpetuates a couple of issues that we have globally, which is a loss of identity. Yes. Across the globe. Yes. And when it comes to women, this loss of identity comes from a taut detachment from our bodies, from our natural cycles and rhythms, from our natural abilities, from the way our brain operates, because we just didn't know and we didn't understand. Right. And we thought that it was the same for Mm -hmm. males and females. But the solution is honoring our differences. Absolutely. Acknowledging our differences. And not trying to get rid of them. And they work perfectly together. It's the two working together that makes the whole possible. So let's look at now the little boys and the men. Mm -hmm. Dopamine regulated systems. Reward driven. Yes. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So the male brain is um, reward driven, as you mentioned, because dopamine is the master neuroregulator for the male neurology and for the endocrine cascade that happens, uh, the neuroendocrine cascade that happens. Um, dopamine is kind of the supportive driving factor there. Mm-hmm. For women, it's very different. It's oxytocin regulated. 
So oxytocin is the master neuroregulator for women, which means that the female brain and the female physiology is more connection-based because what is oxytocin about? It's called the cuddle hormone. And yes, when you hug somebody, you can get some oxytocin, but that's not all it is. It's about feeling connected. Yes. So it takes us full circle to what is that um, neuropsychological gift of the female neurology. It's this ability to think for the collective. It's about being connected. It's about understanding emotions. It's about compassion. It's about empathy, right? So it all matches up perfectly to this beautiful feminine leadership, which is different than the masculine leadership. Yeah. And some of this is very misunderstood and you almost have to turn to, you know, fields of entertainment, films and novels and so forth. And, and music in particular, yeah. when you, you, you think of this and you think, okay, the women, they have the love hormone, they have yeah. the oxytocin. Yeah. And so they're all concerned and, you know, they're in love with their little children and love, love, love. And then what happens is the male seems to be marginalized in that area where yeah. oftentimes the type of love that males represent and express in the mm-hmm. world is almost life alter. It's life altering in yeah. a way. For them on a different level, the type of love that these beautiful songs and, and books, you know, and, and such have been written about. Yeah. So how, what is it in the male model of love? Mm. What's the hallmark of that that makes it so mm. kind of extreme and committed and focused? Ah, so committed and focused yeah. is, is the core component because remember, um, the gift of the male neurology is productivity, right? Being able to produce even the the male physiology when it comes to, you know, how we reproduce, it's about producing, mm-hmm. spreading the seed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the, the female, um, physiology is about creativity, creating life. It's a mm-hmm. different energy. Totally, yeah. And it is connected in with that love and connection with your family. Different with kind your of love a different than the male. Yes. And with, with males, oftentimes the way that they express love will be more through the doing for, for, through the providing, through the safety, through the container. Yeah. So it's different, but both are absolutely so important and needed. Oh, absolutely. And both are as intense. Yes, they are. It's, it's important to say that just because men don't create as much oxytocin, right? No. It doesn't mean the love isn't there. It is. But another important piece about this oxytocin versus dopamine, dopamine Mm -hmm. regulation is when you look into our society, it's Mm -hmm. very dopamine driven, right? Mm Checking things off the to-do list, social media, all this stimulation, the way that we have set up our world to be like goal-oriented and step-by-step process, all that is dopamine-driven. And that's why typically men have an easier time operating Mm -hmm. in these systems because they're regulated by that, right? It doesn't mean that too much dopamine isn't bad for them just like it is for anyone, right? right? But it is healthier. And then for women... This dopamine-driven society is very problematic because dopamine actually squelches oxytocin. Makes total sense. And we're already not getting enough opportunity for oxytocin in our society. It's not a priority, even though it's so crucial and important for women. And then we have all this dopamine flooding in that is taking those oxytocin levels down even more. So we're like deprived from our master neuroregulator. 
We're burnt out. We're burnt out. burnt out. I mean, I wake up and as soon as I open up my computer, look at my iPhone and the email list, I, I want to go back to bed. Yes. To me, it's overwhelming and exhausting and not enjoyable at all. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And that's again. Well, people, men in particular, it's a buzz. It's something to engage with and yeah. tick off number one, two, and three. Yes. We are all, we're very different that way. We're very different. So let's talk about how we start incorporating the understanding of the female neurobiology mm-hmm. into the workplace, for example. Mm-hmm. So again, what this kind of boils down to is creating a more, um, a more expansive, more inclusive environment, a playing field, you can call it. So kind of going back to this playing field idea, right? Let's say that you have Michael Jordan, a player, an amazing player, and then you have, um, Tom Brady, right? He's a really great football player. So you have Michael Jordan and Tom Brady, and you drop them both on the football field and you say, play your best game. No. Who's going to play the best <laughs> right, game, right? right? They're, they're both exactly. amazing players. Athletes. <laughs> but different sports. Is, is only adapted to right, one. Right. So that's what we have in the workplace. Yeah. We have a playing field that is very male centric, but both men and women are dropped in and expected to play their best game. And they are both amazing players, right? So we need to create a more adaptive, a more expansive, more inclusive playing field that can allow the flexibility that women need in order to operate in this ebb and flow way that their body naturally operates in. But you th- how does that language even start because yeah. first thing you're going to have men saying oh my god now we have to know who's on their period and who's <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean right. you can see everybody yeah. throwing their hands up in the air because it's going to be a messy type of convergence sure oh. it, it is while we're building our awareness so yes. self-awareness is always step one yeah. right um and i work with major corporations around the world and they are actually very extremely open to this because they see the problem of women leaving the workforce by mass. Yes. They see the problem that this is this is having major economic implications for our world. Nobody wants this to happen, right? So they're looking for creative solutions. And it's not about menstrual leave, not that I think that that's a bad idea. I think it's a fine idea. It's not about us disclosing, "Oh, I'm on my period, I'm not," right? That's right. not what it's about. It's about expanding the playing field to be more inclusive. And the biggest piece, the one tidbit that I would say for everyone that you can start adopting is more flexibility. I'll give you one example. Let's say that your goals are oriented on a weekly basis at work, which is typical, right? We have these things that we have to complete every week, right? And check the things off the box. Mm-hmm. Now, if we could simply just expand that to a month view, then women could orient and create their workflow to get the same amount of things done, but in a way that works for them. Because if we're expected to operate the same way and have the same output and energy levels and focus week after week after week and day after day after day, it's never going to work. And that's why women are burning out. So now if we simply expand that and we allow women the flexibility to adjust their schedules and workflows in alignment with their biology, with their bodies and The amazing part is they have these different cognitive gifts that come online in different weeks over the course of the month that they could use to be more productive in their work if they were allowed to do it and if they were taught about it. 
So then you look at it in a linear sense and you think, okay, we've got X number of tasks and we have one month to do them. Yeah. And the man is consistent and on task. He's ticking off every day because yeah. he's dopamine and reward driven. Yeah. Dopamine centered and reward driven. Okay. So you think, whoa, that's really unfair because it seems to me she's just kind of spaced out and daydreaming and not really showing up right now. Mm. And yet, there's something that will carry the female through at the end for a kind of super performance yes. when it's all said and done. Yeah. There are these sort of super infused moments mm-hmm. with the feminine that are, that are kind of superhuman. So let's Absolutely. talk about that and see so just so the men don't feel like it's un, an unfair burden. Let's yeah. see how the woman mm-hmm. catches up and this all equalizes in yeah. its own way. So we have to stop micromanaging people and we need to allow them to work in a way that is in um, alignment with our bodies and our natural abilities. So during the week that we may not have as much mental energy and focus it's we're going to spin our wheels if we're trying to sit down and do that kind of work for yeah just hours. drinking coffee and feeling depressed yeah and we're not actually going to be very productive right. but there are a couple weeks during the month where that actually is an activity that would be supportive and in alignment with our neurophysiology and we're going to get a lot more done we're going to be so much more productive with those kinds of tasks during that time So if we allowed women to have the flexibility and we weren't looking over their shoulders saying, wait, this week you were too slow on your productivity. If we had just allow the space and allow the trust and we all understand what the goal is at the end of the month, who cares how we get there, right? If men want to work consistently little by little each day to get there, amazing. I would actually recommend that they do that because that is in alignment with their neurology. Yes. And if women (laughs) want to rest and gain the inspiration and recover and then hit it hard and work longer hours and be super hyper-focused during a certain And super creative because some of these portions of the brain are hyper-creative in the female. Yes, exactly. Then we're both going to make it to the same finish line. Yeah. And in fact, female leaders, when we actually measure this, they outperform male leaders across the board. It makes sense, but the men would argue because we're going through these ups and downs emotionally mm-hmm. and also in terms of the, the way our mind is processing yeah. that we make unfit leaders because on any given day, you can't rely on a woman to be very specifically on. Yes, but that's because we're, we have unfair expectations of women. We have set a consistent bar and we said, you have to meet this every single day. Not only that, but we've set a male-centric model for society and how success looks. And again, because we're using this male-centric model, that is what we are understanding is is important in society. So when we start to shift that, we're going to see that some of the issues that we're experiencing across the world can be solved when we start to elevate the other half of the population and bring them up to the level and level of importance and level of normalcy as the male model. So it starts at home yeah. with our, our children. It does. Yeah. So we have, we have say a boy and we have a girl yeah. 
and the the boy's on it. You know, he has all his skills. I think I've written them all down. His motor skills, his math, mathematical reasoning, his working memory, his pattern recognition, all these very strong male traits. He's going, going, going. And the girl is like dragging herself and then she comes up with some brilliant off the wall solution to something. How do parents best start accommodating mm-hmm. for this in home when yeah. they both have ma- they both have their tests due the same day they both have to graduate mm-hmm. in the same year it's the same solution i think yeah. in the corporate space mm-hmm. and in for our world's economy which is we want to expand the expectations in the playing field to be more inclusive of the little girls and the different way that they operate. Even the way that we do our K through 12 education is is based around the male model. Sit at the desk for five straight hours and do subject after subject after subject, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't really think that works for any human, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be honest. I don't think it works for for men or women. Um, But it is more aligned with the capacities of of the male um, neurophysiology. So parents can start to understand that there are differences and that that's okay. And what I would suggest is to celebrate the differences. When you see your little boys are more interested in activities that might be related to dopamine, Mm -hmm. you can celebrate that and honor that. When you see our little girls are more interested in like connection and um, creating stories about their dolls that are also really important for them to understand society and how it works. We celebrate that um, and we don't make it lesser than. One is not better or lesser than the other. They're both extremely important. They're just different paths, again, to get to the same place. So what would you say to a mother who's, you know, maybe a little bit of a helicopter mom and wants her kids to do well and score high and has all kinds of after school activities and the girl is dragging. She's she's not she's in her low phase. Mm. Uh, What would you say to these Mm -hmm. moms? Well, again, remember, it's just a phase and it's going to be over in less than a week. Right. So maybe what we could do and say, you know, I know you're feeling a little less energized right now and I'm going to go ahead and honor that. We're going to allow you to get more rest. I'm not going to push you to do all of these tasks that you need to do. I'm going to allow you to rest and also know that next week when I know you're feeling better, and I know you have more energy and more focus and more capacity for this type of work. We're going to do a little extra. Yeah. We're going to do a couple, we're going to do two hours of homework yeah. instead of one. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to help you through and we're going to learn how to navigate this. That would be ideal. That's so intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> and so not being done. You used to work for the CDC. Yeah. And so you started seeing, you saw all these patterns playing out and yeah. you saw all the burnout. Yeah. And what at what rate? We talked about this a little last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to know now. Um, what kind of rate are you seeing of female burnout in the workplace, and at what ages? Um, it's it's every age, to be honest. Um, our female leaders are are really reporting this across the globe. Um, the the most public example of this you might remember from January of this year was when Jacinda Ardern stepped down as Prime Minister yes, of New Zealand. New Zealand, yeah. And what she said was, "I have no gas left in the tank." Yeah. And the reason why is because she had these male centric expectations and environment, this playing field to work within that was so limiting and not in alignment with her natural gifts and rhythms, mm-hmm. right? 
And then the BBC had the audacity to ask the question, well, can women actually have it all then? Right. I remember. And the answer is no, not if we continue to have the same expectations of what success is, right? So I think what what we need to do is we need to understand that what is contributing to these excessive burnout rates, Mm -hmm. which is more than 200% higher in women than men across the board in the workplace. And this isn't just in the U.S. This is in the U.K., Canada. I'm doing a lot of projects in other countries, and we're finding the same thing is being reported from the women in in the corporate structure. So we really need to um, take a look at why. What is the underlying issue? And the solution isn't just plop more women into leadership positions. That's that's just fixing the numbers temporarily. Right. The perception really more than anything. That's not doing it because guess what? We're going to plop women into these leadership positions in a male centric environment and they're still going to burn out because it's not set up for them. It's not set up an acknowledgement of their unique capacities, needs and skills. Yeah. And your work is really, that's what you're covering. That you're looking at these female psychos, mm-hmm. cycles, so that we can see how this starts plugging in and where we give this grace of time Absolutely. and space to women so that we can have the gift of all those other incredible, um, mental capabilities, including yeah. super high creativity yes. to whatever solutions are being needed on a global scale. Absolutely. So, um, again, congratulations uh, on Thank all the work you. you're doing and you're just beginning. So, um, any final thoughts before we sign off here? We've mm-hmm. covered quite a bit and a lot. And I thank you for the kind of functional advice. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. This is so important. And I want everyone who is watching, whether you're a male or a female, to just understand that across the globe, we're really disconnected from nature and the natural phases and cycles and rhythms, right? And one way that we can connect back in with nature is by connecting back in with the natural rhythms of nature, Mm -hmm. the natural rhythms of plants and animals, and the natural biological rhythms of women that have been ignored and, and suppressed for so long. If we can all start to acknowledge that and think about how that impacts how we operate and how we relate to one another and how we support one another, then we can really make a sustainable change, I think. And when you look at it that way, it's actually magical. It is magical. Yes. <laughs> Kayla, thank you so much. Thank you. This is exciting work, so necessary that we begin to incorporate these traits and gifts side by side for the creation of the new world we all want to be giving birth to now. We simply can't do it the old way anymore. It's not working. Systems aren't working. None of it's working. So we have to start from the ground up, beginning at home. You can connect with Kayla's research at herbiorhythm.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Amazing. So much uh, expansion into higher knowledge, integrating and synthesizing and expanding uh, consciousness into all of the uh, quote-unquote knowledge positions on things is changing everything. So I am attempting to remember 
going to finish this tonight, I believe, um, to remember the title of this piece, Rama. UFO of God. UFO of God. This is Roito. Rama's going to get there. While he's doing that, I'm just going to read the front page of Today Aurora Ray put something out, and it says here, Earth's orbit teems with thousands of Pleiadian motherships. Yeah, this is the real news. Say that louder, Ramos. This is the real news. <laughs> oh, all of this has its place, Rama. All it of does. It. it does, yes. Sparking excitement with their increased presence. Armed with advanced spiritual technology, they ignite humanity's awakening, broadcasting high vibrational frequencies to propel collective ascension. Brace for a thrilling journey toward elevated consciousness and the dawn of a new spiritual era. Ah, that sounds like a proclamation and a half, everybody. Yeah. Are you almost there, House? Is almost there. The Pleiadians, an advanced extraterrestrial race, originate from the Pleiades, star Starduster, which is located over 400 light years away from Earth. Yes. And they're physically visible with this physical eye. Um, they're much uh, farther away than the star Sirius. And again, the star Sirius is pretty much the largest star in our night sky. So there's quite a difference there. They have been visiting and quietly observing the Earth for thousands of years, sharing ancient wisdom and assisting humanity's evolution. The Pleiadians are spiritually and technologically advanced beyond our current understanding. Tell me when you got it, okay? Their goal is to guide humanity into a new age of peace, cooperation, spiritual growth, and expanded consciousness. The Pleiadians are deeply concerned about the current state of humanity and the planet. They hope their presence and assistance will help accelerate humanity's spiritual awakening and evolution of consciousness. The Pleiadians employ love, trust, and mutual understanding in their interactions with humanity, believing we must uplift ourselves through our own efforts. However, they stand ready to help and teach those who seek higher wisdom and wish to create a better world. The presence of thousands of Pleiadian motherships 
in Earth's orbit signifies a monumental increase in their direct activity and interaction with humanity. The massive motherships contain areas specially designed to facilitate spiritual awakening and ascension to higher dimensional levels of existence. This promises to be a truly remarkable phase in the history of humanity and our relationship with our galactic neighbors. Recent increase in motherships. Over the past few years, there have been a growing number of reports about a major increase in the number of Pleiadian motherships around Earth, whereas previously there were an estimated few hundred motherships orbiting the planet. Recent observations indicate this number has expanded dramatically into the thousands. Both professional and amateur astronomers have reported detecting many new large... Tell me when you, you got it? Yeah. Oh, okay. New large objects around Earth. I just don't remember where we were. An hour and 48 or something? You got it? I went 45 minutes. Well, okay, we're, we're going to jump to this because of the time. Mm-hmm. So we'll finish this maybe a tiny little more at the end, but we got the gist that there's a whole pile of more Pleiadian starships for some purpose here. All right, let's mm-hmm. see what that says. Okay, it's hour and 47 minutes at five. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, yeah, the other NASA individual you met after Hal, how long, what, where on the timeline did you meet him? I met him in 20... It was either late 2012 or early 2013. And um, what happened there, I was at a, a gathering in an old log cabin in upstate Pennsylvania on the Delaware River. We're on a lake. We crossed the river and to this beautiful historic cabin. It had Thomas Edison's bedroom suit there, right? So big money and uh Taylor had heard I was there, and he was out in uh, L.A., California. And so he heard I was at that meeting, and he wanted to meet me. And he called and said, I'm coming from L.A. I'm heading to Huntsville, but I'm going to swing by Pennsylvania first to meet you. I want to I want to talk. And so he showed up that afternoon. I'd been there one day. We got there Friday, Saturday evening. He shows up, and... Uh, we became very close friends from that point on. And uh, after he left from there, he flew out the next morning back to Huntsville. So he came in one evening, met me, made arrangements to come to my house and to meet my family. And a week or so later, he was in Fayetteville at my house. And uh, 
the rest is history from there. So, Tim, he was, what was his background? Where did he work? What was his, what was he studying and what was his interest in you? Tim is, uh, is an amazing guy. Uh, he's a genius and he's a very kind hearted person. Um, he is an engineer for NASA that, uh, he's probably been at NASA now 40 some years, over 40 years and he runs all the launches. He's the man. He's an NRO guy, National Reconnaissance Office. And, and sorry to interrupt, but let's just clarify for people what that means, National Reconnaissance Office. National, what do they do? National Reconnaissance was a very secretive organization until a few years ago when they were discovered and it went public. But he uh, he was a part of the Air Force, a part of NASA and the CIA, all three. So he holds the credentials for all three and what they do these guys they are the top ranks they have the highest security clearances they're so high they can't even travel like he can't go in the hospital and have surgery unless somebody's escorting him because he might talk so they're the eyes on the sky and our guys see it all they have if there's anything flying in our space there's a select few of those guys that get to see it I mean, it's compartmentalized down to just a handful. So they they own all the satellites, all the spy planes. They run the launches because this every time they launch something, something from up there, come check it out, swim right up to it or fly up to it and make sure it's not something that shouldn't, shouldn't be. And I'll stop with that. So let's just say something. Okay, well, that's something we're going to have to talk about <laughs> later, a little bit later. <laughs> Swim right up to it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyways, uh, we defined NRO. So he was a uh, an aerospace engineer working for NASA for 40 years. Yeah. And um, 40 years now, probably. He was there 30 years when I met him. And what did he say to you? What what kind of things was he was he asking you when he when you guys first met? Um, he was the kindest person, understanding, somebody I liked. He never doubted me. One of the worst things to do with this subject, and everybody feels that you're, you know, a new person on the block is so afraid to tell anybody because of the way you're going to be perceived. You're crazy, right? Right. He was never like that. He was, uh, and and what really was the difference, and I'm sitting here with a, a lead scientist from NASA, the one of the top guys from NASA. He runs the launches. He is. He runs the launches. He runs them all. This guy. He's in charge. He's the dragon. He has a dragon tattoo on his arm. His console is called Dragon Console. I had the number to his Dragon Console. Yeah. He's, his console is named the Dragon, which is his space in Mission Control where he stands and runs the launch. He's the Dragon. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so to have that kind of person questioning me about what they look like, not, are you sure you saw this? Not, I don't believe you. It was none of that. It was, what, what did they look like? Describe them to me. Were they this way? Were they that way? Did they walk this way? They knew. They knew all this stuff. And so for right away, I found somebody that, um, 
and I appreciated that could help me understand. And he he felt so sorry for Chris Jr. That his mission was to meet him. He wanted to meet Jr. He came and he spent a lot of time with him. Changed his life because Junior had the worst problem being 17 years old with people telling him he's a liar. Mm. You know, that's the worst thing you can do. Grandmas and grandpas even saying, I don't believe you. Uh, You know, were you on drugs or something? And it wasn't the case. And so this guy comes and he knew it was real. And he went right straight to my house and he met everybody briefed us with an official briefing on a laptop with our name, our eyes only, the Bledsoe family. He tested each one of us with metamaterial and to see if we'd have a reaction to it. And uh, he, he counseled Junior for a long time and changed his life because now he had some pride. He had somebody to believe him. And if NASA people would do that, then that's a really big deal. So. That's how that he briefed you specifically. What do you mean by that? (laughs) You can tell him. (laughs) Well, you can see in this photo, it was the day of my homecoming uh, game. I had I was running for homecoming. And so we were all called into my brother's room one by one to watch this briefing video. He had this PowerPoint that said for the blood, so eyes only, and it had different photos and things that he would explain to us that I probably am not going to say or share. And then he would hand us all a piece of metal and we would, you know, hold another piece and see if there was any sort of reaction. And he would test us all privately and separately. So we wouldn't know what was happening. So he could get more of like a, I don't know, like a, a real reaction. So we didn't like pretend or something and mm. we all felt something. But when dad held the, the material, even though we all felt like electricity, he was like seizing from it because his experiences had been so intense. Um, the photos he was showing you or the stuff that he was showing you, was it like trying to cross reference things that you guys had seen with things that he had documented or? It was some, some of it was area 51, which I can't say nothing about. But um, uh, he would show us things and then ask questions. Why do you think that's like that? Why do you think that door is nine foot tall? And I won't say no more there, but let's just say um, because it was official briefing, I I probably shouldn't go very deep. And why do you think it's so classified? It's always been the most classified subject, higher than the atomic bomb. And it's been that way forever. Do you think it's a good thing that's so secret? Well, I think it's, it's the cat's out of the bag now and they can't hold on to the secret. They're going to try it because they have no choice. So there's nobody at NASA qualified to walk up in front of the television and say this is this and that because it takes an act of Congress to change their whole mechanics before they can do that. So. These organizations can't tell it, and they're not going to. Congress is up there wanting them to, trying to demand them, but their protocol says no. So it takes a whole lot of 
politics to, to maneuver around to get the Air Force to ever open up about anything. It's its own entity, basically. And for technology and for um, state security, national security, that's why the government's not open about it. Uh, they don't want to talk about it because it's, it's technology involved with this stuff is incredible. And they're not about to give it away to just anybody. So explain what happened again when he handed you this piece of material. Well, he handed me. I was the last person in the room. So imagine my five, my wife and four children and Jenny. I wasn't in the room when you held it, but go ahead. But most everybody was yeah. in there. They were sitting on a bed or on a, right at a couch in his room. But um, when I walked in the room, everybody was watching me and quiet. Couldn't say a word. And up on top of the dresser, and, you know, the dresser is tall, not the the nightstand. Not nightstand, but the dresser. He had the laptop set up there. So it was, I'm looking up at it, and he goes through the whole everything, watching his PowerPoint and asking questions. And then he goes over to the chair and picks up a backpack reaches in it and he pulls out this little piece of metal it's about a half inch square size of a postage stamp thin I mean thin and he put it in my hand and it just looked a square of gray metal he said what do you think of that he said it looks like aluminum I don't know I didn't know what it was so he reaches in his backpack and he pulls out another piece and he puts it in this hand and it's like aluminum foil. It looked like aluminum foil. You could crinkle it up, but it wouldn't crinkle. It would stay wavy, but it wouldn't crease. So I messed with it, and it just sat there. But the minute he put it in the hand. It's thin as aluminum foil? Yeah. This one was thicker. It was a piece of metal. This was aluminum foil. And he described this as the insulation. He said, this is the insulation. Like I already knew what he was talking about, right? But when he put that in his hand, it made a connection through my body to this hand. And my arms began to thump like that. And suddenly my eyes just started to black out. And he reached in my hand and took it out. And I got my vision good. And he said, he was this close to my face. He said, why you? I said, do what? What just happened? He said, why you? I said, what do you mean, why me? He said, I would have known you were lying if you hadn't had a reaction. He said, I've never seen a reaction like that. He said, I've only ever seen two. Yours was by and far different than anybody's. Why you? I never understood what he meant by why you, but he said it three or four times. And from that point on, we become friends and done some traveling together. And uh, I ended up with him. Um, where is this? It's at Cape Canaveral. That building right there, that door, is, is very famous at NASA. That is the astronaut crew quarter. And that building was built in, I think, in the 50s. So when they, or 60s, when they put the first rocket in space, when an astronaut rides that rocket, they can't, they have to be in quarantine for like six weeks, I think. So they don't get a cold and the doctors 
So they have a crew quarters that have bedrooms in there and a conference room and bathrooms and a doctor's office. And when they go in there, they live for weeks with their wife and children and the same house den mother that arranges food. And so there's a lot more pictures of inside that place. But he told me that, in fact, when when we walked in the front door of it, the den mother come up and said, how, who are you? I said, I'm his friend. He said, how'd he get in here? Who'd you point to? Your whose friend? Tim. Oh. It was me and Tim walked in there and she <laughs> said, who are you? I said, I'm his. She said, well, you know, there's only 300 people ever been in this building. And that's only one U.S. president, no Congress, nobody. Just 300 since its existence. That's including all the astronauts and the family members. In other words, she was asking why I was going into a place with such security. And I couldn't answer it, but I enjoyed the tour. I got to sit where John Glenn sat or uh, all of them got to hang out in in the whole place and got to sit where they put their suits on. and, And then they filmed me coming out the door. That door is where all the astronauts would walk out holding their gear with the suits on. They would walk out that door and get in a an Airstream camper van, a gas-powered one, and they would be transported from that door to the rocket before they took off. So that's a really famous photo op there. So they treated me like royal. And I'll give you a secret he told me. He said, uh, he said your life will never be the same. When you leave from this place, it'll change you. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, every time these astronauts went to space, something come back with them. And it's here. It's still here. Something comes back with them? Yeah. It's, it's invisible, but it becomes visible every now and then. They see orbs all over the place there. Sure do. Near the at the launch site, they see orbs <clears throat> and what, pictures of them. What comes back with them? I don't know. I know it. It it, it heightened everything happening with me. My experience with the phenomenon grew greater. Understanding of it grew. It's the spirit. It's, 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 there's a lot of misunderstanding about these orbs. And aliens, they um, maybe it's technology, maybe. But to me, it's more like a spirit. They're like spirits, like ghosts, but they can come full physical. So did you ever clarify what he meant by why you? Nope, he never did. He's a secretive guy. I mean, he's he's like a ghost. Tim is. That's why Diana wrote his book. Wrote her book. She didn't put his name in there. Was, oh yeah, he was Tyler D. Yeah. in uh, American Cosmic. Yeah. But you know that's that was then. Now the subject is. He probably don't like me talking about him, but that's okay. It's part of my life, and I'm sorry. You a good friend of mine, Tim. He never. So he never clarified anything about like them trying to learn more about it, and like them being interested, and like why were they interested, or why. 
did they make themselves so visible to you and not other people? Yeah, we went over that a lot, you know. And and, and you said there was two other people that experienced the same thing you experienced with the medals. He didn't tell me who. He just said, I've seen two other, uh, in my life, I'd seen two other reactions, but nothing like yours. I remember something from your book. I don't remember in what, what it was in reference to, but I remember there were, you mentioned a conversation that you had with him when you were at Cape Canaveral and he said something like they weren't interested in anyone else. Like they're, we know about them. Oh, they, you know, they're not interested. They don't care about us. Right. Okay. So when he first came, remember we were afraid of government people. We were still had Al there and I was still petrified about this guy. So I asked him, Remember, we're afraid of the government. So I was being tight-lipped and I said, why are you here? You know, thank you for helping my children. Thank you for helping Junior. But why are you here? Why do you need me? Why does the government need me? Because I'm still worried about the government, right? Everybody's talking that they're going to kill you. People have died and I heard all this, but that hadn't been my feeling. Everybody I'd met had been really nice people. He said... Because we see them. He said, we see them, but they don't nothing to do with us. Zero. And we want to study them. We want to know more. And we would like to study you. Um, and we would suggest you don't go to any UFO events. Don't go to any conferences. Don't get involved. Because people that go to those tend to take on each other's stories. You get somebody that sees a light fly by during the car and the orb goes over. Suddenly they involved with names. They're from the Galactic Federation. They were the Pleiadians. They were the Octurians. They did this. They did that. They know everything about when they only saw a light. This happens in the UFO world. And a lot of those things people tend to know more than uh, the experts do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So he said, we see them, but they have nothing to do with us. And we'd like to know why they want you. We know they like you. We know that. And we just want to investigate something. So that's how that happened. Do do you have any idea the answer to that question? Why do they like you? Why do they want to communicate with you and not with anybody else? I have no idea. I've asked that to a, a hundred times. And Hal Pavemeyer told me one day, and, and he was always very tight-lipped to how was. He would ask a million questions and tell you one answer, right? That's the way he always was. <laughs> and I'm like, Hal, why are they here? Why did they want me? Why are they around me like this all the time? Uh, he said, because they're your family. That's what he told me. He said, they're probably your family. What that means, I don't know. And I'll tell you something else Hal told me. Serious as all get out. Because Hal mapped the moon. He wrote the book on occultation, occultation grazing. I don't know how you say that word, occultation grazing. Mm-hmm. In other words, he wrote many books on the moon. Okay. So he mapped the moon. He mapped the landing spot for the Apollo mission. He said, you got to land here. And he drew out the coordinates. That's what Hal did. He studied the moon more than anybody in the world. He's the expert on the moon. 
So we were talking one night out watching the stars, and I'm like, how? I said, is there really something on the backside of the moon? He looked at me, and he said, there are buildings up there, big ones, and we didn't build them. And they're ancient. 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 So help me, that's what he told me. And I didn't ask any more questions, but he, he wouldn't answer. But he told me that. He said, there are structures up there that we did not build, and they're very old. This is coming from the world's expert on the moon. Did you ask him if the moon landing was real? I never did. <laughs> I never did, but he says it was. Yeah. So I believe him. Wow. Wow. He had his technology is still on the moon that he put up there. Uh, something for lasers to shoot off of and there's stuff up there, scientific equipment right. that he was responsible for putting up there. Didn't wow. he say the buildings look like mushrooms? Some of them. I thought that was really weird. Some very ancient buildings that look like mushrooms on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, that's what he said. I said, Tim, um, what do you think about the moon? Is there uh, there's something going on up there? Is there structures up there? He said. He said, "Do you think that it landed by chance in the perfect spot where it eclipses the sun and it doesn't ever change its face to the earth? It stays locked in a position." He said, "None of that was by accident." He wouldn't elaborate anymore. He said, but there's something going on up there. I can't say, but it's not by accident. I knew the moon was a spaceship. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, that's what he told me. So, what is it? How is it all? I don't know. We're at the beginning of studying this thing. And, uh, what is it we're dealing with? Who is it? How? All I can tell you is how it reacts to me. And um, wow, wow. Dem- demonstrate that part. So, okay. Getting back to what he told you about music and keeping music in your head, right? When? Why did he tell you to do that? Because uh, along about twenty. 15, I think, 2014 or 2015, somewhere in there. I get a call from a lady. I showed you a picture today of Chris Jr. walking in a field with mm-hmm. Tim. Yes. And a lady by the name of Chase Klutsky. Yes. Chase is uh, very well known in the UFO world. Chase Klutsky? Klutsky. I have her photo here. I can yeah. Chase and her husband, Pete, Pete, worked with the U.S. Navy in the Intel, right? So... Just so, just so happened, Pete's, uh, Tim's at my house. And so the day that we were tested with metal, the bottom one, there you go. There they are. That guy on the right is Navy, U.S. Naval Sub Commander, Naval Intelligence. And Tim is, right, National Reconnaissance Office, mm-hmm. NASA. Chase. Yvonne, my wife, and of course Emily. And this is the 10th grade, right? Uh, 11th grade. 11th grade. He told them if they wanted to visit, they had to come to my game. So <laughs> they all came to watch me. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So after that event there, 
uh, what, when was this homecoming? October? Um, yeah. It would have been like September, October of 2013. So I think it's, we're fast forward to November of that year. Chase calls me and says, Chris, you ever heard of St. Paul's? I said, yeah, but before you tell me, let me tell you something. I said, Chase. I said, last night, Saturday night, I was uh, sitting on my back patio, had a fire going, just me laying back, looking straight up at the sky, and two orange orbs appeared, red ones, just like you saw last night, the same color. They just appeared, boom, just appeared, sitting stationary above me, up, way up. And they came on down. And when they got to the top of the trees, they stopped. Now there's these two orange balls. Suddenly they fired off straight towards St. Paul's, just above the trees. She said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I should have known. She said, "Um, Saturday night, this was Monday night, she called me. She said, Saturday night, um, I got a call yesterday about, a ghost hunter group from Wilmington, North Carolina, Wilmington Ghost Hunters, Wilmington Paranormal, I think the name of the group was. They were in St. Paul's at an old plantation house investigating ghosts. And they walked outside into the woods, and there's this old rickety house that the farm tenants used to live in. It's old. I mean, it was falling in. But they were in there in the edge of the woods, and these two orange balls of light flew right over their head, right over the trees. And it freaked them out when they saw it. And suddenly, one of them said that this tall being peeped around a tree at them, and they pulled out their guns. One of them was a police detective. One was a prison guard. But they started shooting at it. They were shooting at this. They didn't just had a glimpse of it. So they were shooting in the woods, you know, at this Shoot thing. first, ask questions later. Right. <laughs> and so I said, uh, I said, oh, my Lord. She said, would you go with me over there? I'm coming next Saturday to investigate. I said, yeah, I'd be glad to go with you. So Saturday comes, Friday. I'd already called Tim. I said, Tim, uh I've got something, and I told him the whole story about seeing orders at my house, and then over Saint, they went to St. Paul's, and this happened to these people. He said, pick me up Saturday morning from the airport. So I went to Fable and picked him up Saturday morning, and we rode over. That's the picture you saw of them walking across the field, Tim, Chase, and Chris Jr. Okay. So we walked across that field and went into these woods, and, um, what I noticed immediately was that the whole place had been timbered, except where the house sat. It was a grove of trees, but behind it, on behind it, had been timbered out. And mm-hmm. they went in through the swamps and the cypress pond and destroyed it. And it was just a mess in there. And I got the impression that it was because of the destruction of that environment is the reason they were there. Who knows why, but that's what I told Tim. He said, you think they're still here? I said, yeah, I think they're still here. They haven't gone anywhere. He said, uh, what they decided to do was to recreate the ghost hunt that night. They wanted us to go with them and do a ghost hunt. So Tim's like, I'm going back to 
Alabama. So I took him three o'clock to the airport and he flew back to Alabama, come in just for the day. And that night I went back over there at six in the evening to do a ghost hunt with him. And so that evening I show up and I'm with the ghost hunting group. And there are eight of us. I'm the eighth person. So you got Chase and Pete and myself and then five members from Wilmington, the ghost hunter crew came. So we were going to recreate the whole thing. So eight of us, they finished the house thing and then we walked across the field to the, the old farm tenant house. And here, if I can explain it to you, because it's, I wrote about this in the book. When you walk in the cabin, is old and dilapidated. This is the one room, basically one room cabin. It is um, 10 feet into the forest, in a real thick forest. So you can't see it unless you get right up to it. But once you get into the forest, there um, there's this old cabin. When you walk out the back door, couldn't even go in the front. You had to go in and out the back door. The front was boarded up. But when you step off the steps of the back door of that cabin, you walk about six or eight feet is all. And then there's a ditch, a real big ditch. It's six six foot deep. And it's dry, trees growing up in the ditch. It's old. But the ditch goes all the way down the property, right behind the cabin, less than 10 feet from the back door. So they were telling us after we were recreating everything, we went through the the, the little house and they had all their ghost hunting equipment inside and they said, now we're going to go out the back and take you the same way we went before. And Tim and I discussed the possibility that these beings were still there. I assumed, I told him I thought they were and why they came. And uh, he said, well, tonight, to get in a little more depth, um, he explained to me that the uh that these beings can hear your thoughts and they can stay hidden from you by knowing what you're thinking. So if you happen to see one by accident, they can rewind your memory basically by a device that they have that I've seen the patents on it. Patents. Yeah. But if you were to sing this song, not let them know what you're thinking, you might get a chance to see one. That's what he told me. I've held this. I'm telling you this first time publicly about these little details. So that night, we walk out the back door with the ghost hunting crew, and I'm in the back. I'm in the eighth guy in the in the rear. Chase is in front of me, so she's seven. I'm eight. But Pete, he he navigates under the world with submarines, right? He he's got a compass on his arm, and so Pete's got us in tow. And we got to go out of the back of that cabin and walk across the hundred yards this hall of woods. That's really thick in that spot. The rest of the forest to the right and left has been timbered, but we got to walk through that clump of trees to get to a power line. One of these big high-tension power lines. You can see for a mile either direction, right? So it runs parallel with the, the cabin field 
only 100 yards to walk through. It takes 15 minutes to walk that section from the back of the cabin to the power line. It's important I say that. Because when we started through the woods, everything was fine. We were all perfect. Talking, carrying on, excited. Made our way to the power line. So when we get to it, we walk up and down the power line for an hour. We were testing all these equipment. They had these ghost hunters, just recreating the whole thing. So when it was time to go back to the cabin, we had to go straight east, 15 minutes, and we would end up at the cabin. We went right back to the spot we went come out at, right, where we exited onto the power line. We started back in right there. Pete's in tow with his watch, navigating. So I'm behind him. I'm singing my song, singing, singing, singing. And I noticed everybody got out loud or in your head, in my head. I noticed everybody got nervous, kind of weirded out. And they're, you know, I saw what looked like they were drawing their guns again, getting ready to. And what I've learned about this, that they can put fear in you. These beings can control what you think. So they can make you afraid, make you go a different direction if they don't want you here, right? They can put fear into you. I'm just repeating what I was told. We're starting in 15 minutes across. Pete's leading the way. I saw him get nervous, and that's when I started singing. Suddenly I saw this green orb look like eyes peep around the tree. I tapped. Chase on the back and pointed at it. She saw it immediately with me. Next thing I know, Pete is right at the ditch. So when we walked through that ditch, nobody else saw this, just Chase and I saw it, right? She remembers it. But when we crossed that ditch, we had 10 feet to walk. I mean, you could see it was from here to that wall. It's the cabin, right? But when we got to the ditch and we walked in that ditch, when we come out the other side of the ditch, we step back out on the power line. And that freaked everyone out. It freaked Pete out. He's like, what just happened? He's a, he's a submarine commander, navigates under the ocean. It blew him away what had just happened. I knew what had happened. So you basically stepped out exactly where you started? Yep. Yep, we pulled an east heading for 15 minutes. We got to the ditch. We walked in the ditch and out onto the power line. And there's no ditch on the power line side. So what happened? They couldn't figure it out. But I saw the being. And I knew right then we were missing time. What they did is they wiped our mind on the trip across. So I didn't tell them that. Um, because when, once we got to the cabin again, we went back across, went in the ditch and come back out the cabin. So we made two trips across that power line from the power line to that building. So Monday comes along, Chase calls me. Chris, you'll never believe this. I said, yeah, I will, uh, Chase. We lost 15 minutes, didn't we? She said, no, we lost 12 minutes. And they recorded it. They had helmet cans on. They had all these stopwatches. And they know that we lost 12 minutes of time with that group of people that night. And Tim was there. Tim was there that day. Oh, the day. That was the night after he left. Yeah. 
And they'll tell the story. The same group of people, Chase tells it, tells about missing time with me. That's not the only group that's done that. This happened with several. Okay, so fast forward to when you were going through the security doors at Cape Canaveral at NASA. Mm-hmm. There was a black a black glass building that you go that you pass. It was like a hut, like a guard shack. A guard shack. Right beside this fence. You know, you got mission control and a fence around it. Mm-hmm. We got fences within fences. But right. when you get to the main building where the launch is going off, right. They have razor wire and a barbed wire fence, mm-hmm. um, about 10 foot high all the way around that thing with guards standing there with machine guns. And to go through that gate, you got to walk by this guard shack and it's about eight by eight black. The middle's black and the windows are black. You can't see in it at all. But it was like, it was like when you walk by that building, they can read your thoughts. Never told me who they or what they or how they. He just said they can read your thoughts, so just sing a song. And uh, that's why I first heard about it. This was before the ghost hunting trip. So I already knew about it. He just told me to do it again when I was on the... This was before the ghost hunting trip. Yeah. What was in the building that could read your thoughts? I've had that question ever since. I have no clue. This is the kind of way these guys will communicate. They give you a little bit. Is it a lie? Or are they throwing me off uh, on a wrong course? But uh, they didn't, uh, you know, they seemed pretty real, what he was telling me. So once you were, once you got into the building, the launch control center where, where Tim goes. Right. What, what did he show you in there? There's specific room. Was there, did he show you specifically where he is and, and yeah. what he does and what he works on when he's there? Yeah. So if you can imagine, uh, mission control is basically a square. It looks like a square. It looks like, um, one of those construction site trailers you would bring on a job, but bigger. It's square. And um, there's a hallway right down the middle and glass on either side. So you got this hallway with glass, big, long hallway with glass. And if you look to the right, is NASA scientist controlling the launch. So you got all these 50 people or however many is in there standing or sitting at each console, like you see on TV, same thing. On the left side is an exact duplicate of the right. But the left side's all Air Force. So the Air Force is involved big time with NASA. That's part of the NRO thing, I think. Right. So there are all these cadets, all these young soldiers are there learning to, to control launches. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet the general there. She came out in the hallway and spoke to me. And I was even told how to address her before I got to meet her. And, uh, which I did. And that was pretty cool. But there's a room, this uh, closed-off room, only Tim goes into. How big is the room? I don't. I didn't get to go oh, into it, okay. but I saw it where it was, and he explained to me that was his office. And in that office, once the launch goes off, he has to stand in his control. When that rocket leaves and everything looks good, he goes into that room. 
and it's for his eyes only and the other guys in the NRO that are involved in other ways. In other words, when that rocket leaves the ground, they have ground-based cameras that looks like giant binoculars that you sit in and they can swivel and film this rocket, right? Mm-hmm. But once it gets up so high, it gets gaseous and they can't see the detail. Mm. And they want to know every angle of that thing. They want to see every bit they can see in case something goes wrong. They know how to fix it, right? And um, it's how they found that O-ring that leaked and caused the explosion with the shuttle. I remember when it blew up. They could see. Challenger. Yeah, they could see the the uh, fuel coming out where the O-ring was stretched. But when that rocket gets to 50,000 feet, they have um, what's called a WB-57, which is a really big, it's like an old U-2 spy plane, um, the huge wings, and it just hovers up there about 50,000 feet, a group of guys in RO, and they intercept the rocket. So when it's going up and starts going over, that rock, that WV-57 is right behind it filming it because the ground-based cameras don't have clear now this airplane has it when it gets on up there about a hundred thousand feet they have uh you could see the picture of the 104 starfighter that's it right there that thing can fly right on up to about a hundred thousand feet following that rocket that can and they chase it keeping a film on it a camera on it the whole time and the rocket's going so fast it'll outrun it right and then it loses sight and then comes the satellite cameras pick it up and when tim goes into that door his eyes are on every stage of that camera as it's going up and so he sees if anything from somewhere else up gets nosy and goes up and takes a look, or even shoots it down, because it's happened before. It's got they've gotten shot down. I've seen one. You saw one get shot down. I saw the video. Sure did. Is this one that we all know about? Some people do. You won't find it. It's been scrubbed. But and what was it shot down by? The video I saw was. Um, you see, I get a little nervous here. It was a rocket. This thing was going 15,000 miles an hour. And when it arcs over, and it don't go straight up. They go up a ways and then they go over and they fly out gradually climbing up as they go around the world. They don't leave it. What I saw was when this rocket left over the Pacific coast, I think it was launched out of Vandenberg. When it went up out of started over all of a sudden this little flying saucer appears flies right up to it intercepts it as it's going 15,000 miles an hour flies around it and a little white laser beam comes out and shoots it from every side as it's going around it at 15,000 miles an hour suddenly the whole rocket malfunctions doesn't blow up just quits and tumbles out to the sea I saw that. What was on this rocket? That's what I asked him. He said, why do you think they did that? I said, do you have weapons on there? 
And he wouldn't answer that. He said, well, it might have been a mock warhead, but it wasn't a lie. On man? Yeah. So I saw it with my own eye. So that rocket, that one out of Vandenberg is known. It's known. There's people that have seen it before. I think I've heard vague, yep. vague stories told about that before. Yep. It's real. I've seen it. Did you ever have you ever uh, heard or spoke to Gary about uh, this, the research he's been doing on and the brain scans he's been doing with people that have experienced the phenomenon where he's noticed uh, a certain part of the human brain? I think it's the caudate putamen or the in the basal ganglia that is uh, it's extremely dense with neurons. It's different. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised he spoke about that because that's been kind of secret for a long time. Mm. Uh, um, yeah. Well, you know, they study my brain. They're going to start studying hers this year. Emily's. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You allowed to talk about that? <laughs> well, I can't say no more, but I was just going to say, yeah. So, yeah. So, so what do they do? What, what's going on here in this photo? That I write about in the last chapter of the book. That's, uh, that's at the Monroe Institute. That whole deal was um, created basically around me that whole week we were there. Yeah. Um, they wanted to get me up there and see if we could film the phenomenon. Mm. It, it's never been done, right? Nobody's never walked out and had it come and, and they film it like that. So if they get a video, it's by accident. But we were going to do it intentionally. And so they invited Emily and I and... Uh, uh, some other people, friends of ours, that um, that came, and the rest of the group was while they were dining or having fun. I'm in the lab being wired up, right? The lab rat. Yeah. And so when we go out at night, we had orbs appearing. They'd never seen anything like it. They filmed. They got sensors sitting on tops of the mountains, random generators, and all, and they were going off. The orbs were appear, and um. There is an orb that we filmed. A friend of ours named Rob Freeman, he came from Canada. He brought a $250,000 camera that he bought just to film the phenomenon. So it's all this big apparatus of cameras and spectrum, all kind of stuff. I couldn't even tell you. It was a big setup. So um, he walks up to me and he says, Chris, he said, you know what? You've changed my life. He said, I want to apologize. So I stood up and I said, thank you, Rob. Uh, don't worry. I, you know, I, I, I forgive you. I reached out and I hugged him. And as soon as I hugged him, flash. Somebody said, love, flash. So Rob runs back to his camera, locks it in on this object, turns it on. And for 45 minutes, that object never moved. It said, flash, flash. The star field moved across the sky, but the, the object never wiggled. So you can find that called the Monroe Flasher on YouTube. And that was from that night when Rob and I, uh, and <laughs> we made a great bond. I mean, I'm going to be with Rob again this November. Yeah. The Monroe Flasher on YouTube. Can you, you got, yeah. you got yeah. Safari. Maybe we should look at it. Oh wow. This is like a, some sort of like analysis video. Somebody may be talking about it. 
Okay. Now these are so this is that two hundred fifty thousand dollar camera that this yep. guy brought out here. Yep. See if it flashes. There it is. You see it in one spot. You can enlarge the screen. You can see it better. Mm. It varied in intensity to how bright it flashed. It, wow. It's so tiny. Well, it was way up there. Right. But, but it got bigger and brighter at times. A lot brighter. About the same distance as the one we saw last night. No, this no? further up. Further. It was way up there. But the thing is, the, there was 45 minutes of it. And there's parts of that is a whole lot brighter and bigger. Mm. But MUFON Canada, uh, which is where he's from, certified it true and on. So but that was the story there that what we were doing was filming with scientists, government scientists, a whole lot of them, uh, using sensors and all to record this for the first time. Now, were they using some of the same technology that Andy was using during the filming of that show where they were kind of tracking it against the FAA and against satellites to make sure it wasn't planes or satellites? I didn't see one of those. They may have had it because they had sensors on the mountains and so on. Right. Uh, but, yeah. Can you play that video from last night? It's on there. It's in there. It's uh, there's like I think there's three videos, but there's What's two of them. Is that it are, in here? Yeah, it's in there. It's the fifty. Oh no, never mind. Stephen has them. Okay. Steven. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen's got them. Look at him queued up. So yeah, so we sat out there for maybe thirty minutes before before we saw anything, and then all of a sudden these things started appearing on the horizon, and there was a couple. A couple of things that happened over our head looked like shooting stars. Yeah, that's that's the orbs a lot of times because they'll they'll go straight up. Let's see if we got audio going on here. Right, here What's cool is this uh this there's the surf you can see here. Oh, it's uh the contrast is like crazy. It's like darkened on the screen. Yeah, you see the horizon. Okay, there you go. So, so the planes were far above this. This was very, very low on the horizon, and you can see the planes that are there was airplanes above it. Uh, find the one that's the longest one, the fifty-second one. That one has it a two in it. There are two orbs in that. Right, one, right. right. <clears throat> and the first one's right on the water. In fact, I don't doubt that it didn't come from the water. Hmm. As you know, what's weird is you just had asked me about that. Right before, right about the water. What yeah. do I think about the water? And then we get one right on top of the water. So that thing was right above the horizon, and it was getting really bright, and then getting going invisible, going dim. Yep. And airplanes don't do that. Nope. Nope. And and you could, we could t- we know that because there was literally airplanes coming in yeah. for landing that would turn on their their bright headlights for. The, right their landing approach or whatever it's called. In that 50-second video, you can actually see planes all around it, right up above it. There's one there, top right. You see that little flash? Yep, yep. Sure that one was flashing. Yeah. Let me see if I can get the the, the, <sighs> the older one, the, 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 the bigger one yeah. working, because that doesn't make sense why it wouldn't. So what what is the connection, do you think? You talk a lot about in your book this sort of, which, which it got me wrapped up in this Edward, this Ed Casey thing, um, with the healing power. What is the connection with this ability to heal? How real is that? And, and, and was Tim involved in any of that with some of the stuff that he was doing with the medical research and the medical patents? Well, 
Yeah, in a way. Um, how that came about was in 2013, Easter again, one year later. Remember 2012 on Easter, I had the lady experience, right? Mm-hmm. She came and told me about the red star or the star of Regulus and, um, um, granted me the ability to record this stuff. Right. She did it. It came straight from her 2012. Right. Well, 2013, she comes back. This time she takes me, these beings take me. Somehow I'm transported from my home up through the top of my house. I saw the rafters. I went and was pulled up into a ball of light. Next thing I know, we're um, touching down from this orb and walk out of it into this desert environment, look like Utah. I've been obsessed for five years with Utah, more than that. They mm-hmm. know my kids know this. Okay, so here's the video. You got it pulled up, Steve? Yeah, it, it doesn't play on the computer, but it does play on Dropbox. So here, okay, here cool. we go. So you see, a, is that a, that's a plane that's on the top of That's an airplane, left. two planes. Now There's, that thing comes right out of the water. Yeah, right up out of the ocean. Those are planes around it. Now it's going to disappear, but if you'll look to the right of it here in a second, there's a second one right close to it that appears. There it comes. Now it's going to appear. That down disappears, and then that one. Yeah. What? That, like, it gets real bright. Uh, those are your orbs. And see these planes right above it? They can mm-hmm. see that. That's why they're so elusive. Uh, I mean, there's three planes, four planes in the picture, mm-hmm. and then you got this one orb. And then it, I think it goes out again, right? Yep. Yeah. It just disappeared. <sighs> but I don't know how you can explain that away with logic. <laughs> you can't. You can't. And if you, maybe tonight we go out sky watching again. Yeah. Maybe I'm just hoping something comes much closer. Like real close. Well, we were we were right on Indian Rocks Beach in front of a lot of really bright buildings and condos, and there was yeah. lots of airplanes. So yeah, we were on the main flight path. Yeah. Right, right. But um, it's pretty amazing for that to show up with all of that around. Yeah, I knew it was a hamper though because all these planes around. Now, what do the like the most hardcore skeptics say about these things? Do they, do they try, how do they try to explain these things? Well, you know, uh, there are hardly no skeptics anymore. I don't really have that issue. Um, the, okay. Um, the main thing I hear now is this demon. You're dealing with demons because they've already accepted the fact that there is something there. There's something there. happening. It was like satellites or at one point someone said swamp gas. <laughs> Ball lightning, ball, yeah. all this ball stuff. lightning. Yeah. Right. But now it's like, oh, there maybe is something happening, but it's evil. Yeah, it's got to be evil. It's got to be a demon. Right? There are videos on YouTube you can watch about ball lightning where people show these balls in their house, these light that explode. They show up and they float around and they explode away. But mm. in your situations, there was no thunderstorms. There was no lightning. Mm-mm. No, and, and this is every day. I mean, yes. uh, I, I record this stuff every single day. I showed you my Sonics app, and there are 2,700 videos in yeah. less than 24 months. That's a lot. 
And I could have taken twice that because half the time I don't even record. We see, we see 10 times more than I ever record. Because a lot of times it's so fast, you can't get it on camera. It'll come by you, it'll appear 10 feet away and zoom right by your face. That quick. Happens with crowds of 20, 30, 70, 70 people. Mm. I've had it appear around and 20 feet away. And it happens at significant moments. So it's like, why would ball lightning respond to specific questions, thoughts, emotions? Right. And, and yeah. So this, this is a new day. The people now are knowing there's something there. And so the skeptics have mainly gone bye bye. Um, and, and the ones that are skeptical more um, would be the scientists because they just, their paradigm don't allow anything there. Right. In fact, I think between you and I, uh, one reason they don't, that they've hid this so long and don't want to tell it because it's not the people that would melt down. It's not me and you. It's not Alice in the mobile home park down the street or the average person. They would say, oh boy, wonderful. And then tomorrow they're back grocery shopping. Yeah. But it's the scientific community. It's the academic world that has spent their life in college and teaching people about evolution and all these far old things that they're still teaching that so far they got to change everything. So half the community that's teaching this would be lost. Where do we go from here? You know, so I think the meltdown would be there more than the average people. Another and another thing people say about this is that if this was to become accepted in within humanity, it would destroy all religion. But what you see now with like going back to even the Vatican is that they are looking into astronomy. I mean, there, there's a there's an observatory at the Vatican and, and they're looking at the stars and they're talking about, about the idea of extraterrestrial life. And, you know, they even say, like, if God could have created us and it could create ants sure. and caterpillars, why couldn't it create other beings that are somewhere else in the galaxy that are even yeah. intelligent? Exactly. Right. You can't limit God's creative freedom. Right. Um, and. And, you know, the Vatican is kind of becoming, you know, the religion, it, it is not counter into, it is not counter to the idea of extraterrestrial life or another sort of multi-dimensional life form or being or entity that lives parallel to us. So when you think about that, I don't necessarily believe that it would have a negative effect on established religions today i think it will for the the strictest of people you got religions that are pure cults that um you know only we're going to go to heaven you know these baptists over there they can't make it or these these or them you know they're they're, you know you believe like us or you're going to burn in hell they don't even rationalize when it comes to this stuff, it's just straight by that book, and they'll be the ones that would have the most to deal with, I think, because they don't have room for any deviation of uh, possibilities other than what that book says. Mm-hmm. Example in our area, North Carolina, in the mountains, um, you have these snake charmers, 
snake handlers, churches that get together and they pull out rattlesnakes and they're sitting there dancing with rattlesnakes. And about every year, two or three of them fall over dead. But they still believe because the book says, if you believe in Jesus, you can drink poison and you won't die. Or you can take up a serpent and he'll bite you and you won't die. But yet they get several a year fall out dead because of it. But they still go right back and do the same thing. And if you brought anything else into their belief spectrum, you're probably going to melt their, their brain. Mm. Didn't you also say that some, like sometimes beings come out of the orbs? Yeah, I have a video of one coming out of a orb. Do we have that? I have it on my phone right here. Um, I don't know how you're going to... I can download is it. Is this the same video, Dad? This photo? No. That's not it. Now, that's a pretty interesting photo, though, if you want to show that while I find this. Well, I have this one that we showed them yesterday. Oh, is this the one of the person walking through the woods? It was very dark, but... Yeah. This person right here you can see is our friend Lori. Yeah. And um, we're, uh, I wasn't there, but this was in a wooded area behind our old home, so it's a little shady here, but you can see the light daylight outside beyond the trees but this figure here was not anyone in our party um so whenever they looked at the photo later there was just this fully fledged figure standing in front of Lori, and also this peculiar flash mm. of light appeared um right behind her right turn your airdrop on if you know how there uh, i'm seeing you what you're going to see here this video she's getting now. Okay. Is this the video of the thing coming out of the orb? No, she should be getting it now. Okay. This video, Dad? That one. Okay. Now, let me tell you before you start this what you're going to see. Okay. I write about this in my book. There's um, a lady by the name of Sharon, very close to me and this family. Uh, we met her. I met her in a chapter in the book about how the, um, this Bible college tried to set me up and it backfired on them. The whole audience left with me and left them sitting. Uh, but one of the ladies there was sick, had kidney cancer and her cancer, her, she had one kidney already removed and her second kidney was uh, already metastasized with cancer and her chemo wasn't working. So she was looking at death. And I met her on Saturday night. It's in the book. There's a lot about it. But um, Sunday morning um, or Monday morning, she went in for a scan and it was gone. Her kidney cancer was gone. And um, she was healed from it. So a couple of years later, she calls me. But okay, well... We'll finish the last little bit next week. But there's not too much left. But um, we're living in a new era. And uh, I would just say the time for peace is upon us. And our galactic brothers and sisters are backing us up for this right now. And let's fall, let's all get Rainbird here. Uh, and all of the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, and crystals are on here. This talking stick. And uh, 
that emerald serpent feather one is right at the top. And here comes that talking stick, Rainbird. Okay, I thought it, we get to stay the night together again tonight, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for today. It was fun. We had, yep. we had a good time. We all did. So lots of gratitude. All righty. And uh, so we'll say good night to everyone together. And uh, Nasara isn't far away. What do you say, Rama? Ghetto. <laughs> okay. So thank you, everyone, for witnessing this uh, grand uh, transformation we're all going through. And may you have a wonderful week and transformative uh, time. Uh, and we'll see you in the light of the most radiant one. Uh, come and join us tomorrow. Uh, real quick. Haven't given these numbers out at the end for a while, but uh, and I hope Rainbird that uh, Cheryl's I believe she'll be fine tomorrow. Cheryl does this work calling in the higher beings of light and specific teachings of higher awareness and consciousness on Sunday and Monday evenings uh, with some music and some mantras. It's a medley of good things for all of us. And I'm just looking for the page. Moment, Tito, one, two, three. There we go. All right. So the numbers are uh, four, two, five, four, three, six, sixty-two, sixty, and the pin code is. Nine four six seven four four one pound. I uh, I call in uh, the highest good of all concern to happen here, and uh, miracles are abounding, and magic is afoot, and goddess is alive. So um, we'll see you possibly tomorrow and Monday night. Uh, it starts at 7 o'clock uh, Mountain Time, 9 o'clock Eastern. Aloha, everyone. Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ji. 13 thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. Aloha, everyone. Namaste. Namaste.